opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Sagebrush 2021. My name is Karen Blackwitz, and I will be co-hosting today with Scott Egan. Scott, say hello to everybody. Well, good, mo- good morning, good afternoon, whatever it may be where you are. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very full agenda today. Um, but before I get into some introductions, I was told that we have to do a couple door prizes first. So we're going to kick off the day with door prizes before we go into our programming. Um, Yes, and I have four door prizes. Uh, we normally do three, but someone could not accept one of them yesterday and told me to draw it again. So I've got four. So I'll try not to butcher your names. The first one is Tommy Sullivan. The second one is Lyle Schmatz. The third one is Jim Gallenbecki. And the fourth one is Daryl McCall. So congratulations, you'll be receiving an email next week. Thanks. Thank you so much, artists. And I don't know, all the names sounded pretty good to me. Um, our first section coming up. Um, can, Karen, Karen, can can I share the CE code right off the bat and then we can move to the first thing? Sure. So the, C, the CE code for the first session here this morning is 3C21AB. Thank you. All right, thank you so much for that, Scott. Um, our, our first section today is on touchless vending and micro markets. And um, I'm gonna let Scott do some terrific introductions because I'm positive he will get names more accurate than I will. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try. So uh, looks like on this panelist, we have Ananya Gupta. And he's the project manager from Crane. Uh, also, we have uh, Frankie Scavera from East Coast Regional, uh, the East Coast Regional Sales Manager from uh, Par Level, and Bunny Proof, the Director of Inside Sales at USA Technologies. Well, thank you all for being uh, willing participants. And we have about um, 20 minutes for your presentation. So um, I will step back and let you take over your presentations. Thank you, folks. All right, I'll, I'll start. Hi, hi, everyone. I am Ananya Gupta. I'm a product manager at CPI. I am responsible for leading the vending system solutions uh, at the organization uh, from a product management perspective. I am very excited to be here today and I would I want to talk to you about some of our vision uh, for touchless vending and the developments that we've done in our machines uh, to enable that vision. So I'm going to share a couple of slides out and I'll talk through that as well. Uh, just give me a second here uh, or share sound. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, you know, when we uh, talk about contactless well uh, vending uh, from our perspective. The goal uh, is to enable consumers to complete the full purchase cycle uh, without needing to touch anything in between. So when I talk about that purchase cycle, uh, the first step 
comes in is the order part of that. So that order and selection of the product has now been enabled by using the latest MDB 4.3 spec. MDB is the industry standard for uh, vending machine interface. And now it's available for all our machine types. And it requires a third party mobile application and a Bluetooth connector uh, to connect the phone to the vending machine. I have a simple workflow that I'll uh, talk about uh, a little later. And we also have a demonstration uh, video uh, that shows the proof of concept of how this, you know, of how this works. The second part of that purchase cycle is the payment itself. Uh, contactless payment is already standard on all of our uh, vending machines uh, through NFC and can also be done uh, now by using the mobile phone. The third part of that is the delivery itself. So how does the vending machine deliver the product uh, to the consumer? Uh, the contactless delivery is now already standard on our, all our beverage machines. Our goal is to enable this vision for the rest of our portfolio. And finally, the fourth part that is new is the interaction aspect of that. Because of mobile phone app, it now gives us the opportunity to send safety and advertisement information to the user. So this also provides some incentives for our operators and our users uh, to use this touchless feature uh, as we commercialize it. Uh, uh, as I said, you know, we have a simple, very simple workflow of how this solution uh, works on our machine. So essentially, the consumer walks up to the machine, uh, uses their cell phone uh, to connect with the machine, and they send uh, payment information and the selection ID of the product that they want from the vending. The mobile phone app connects uh, to the Bluetooth receiver that has been connected and installed in the vending machine. That Bluetooth receiver is connected via Bluetooth to the phone and through the MDB protocol to the vending machine interface. Because we've upgraded our vending machine to uh, allow for remote vend using the latest MDB spec, this Bluetooth receiver can now you know, send remote vend messages to our machine. Our machine will process that remote vend information and dispense the product. So the consumer can now just order the product through their phone and pick it up from the vending machine when it gets display, dispensed by the machine. The best part about this solution is that it's very simple and it's retrofit capable. So it can be done for every machine that we have in the field uh, and it just needs a software update from our perspective. Uh, finally, I have a quick demonstration video uh, that just shows us our proof of concept uh, of, of this feature. Uh, this video has a voiceover, so please let me know if you're not able uh, to hear the voiceover. With CPI and pay for their product and have a complete touchless experience with the vending machine. In this video, the consumer uses a mobile phone app to select the location of the product as they would on the touchscreen of the vending machine. They then authorize the payment on the mobile phone app and the product is vended by the machine. The consumer's only touch points are their own mobile phone and the product they wished to purchase. All right, uh, as you can see, it's a very simple workflow and we've made, uh, we've made a lot of developments in this side uh, and we're very excited to bring this new feature to the market. And we're also eager to learn the user and operator feedback on this feature. Uh, 
with that, uh, I want to thank you for your time today, and I look forward to answering uh, some of the questions in the Q&A session. Thank you so much. That was a great presentation and very exciting. The new changes, everything's... Uh, yeah, um, we're excited to bring it to the market as well. Thank you. Uh, the next presenters <laughs> for this section, if you guys can unmute yourselves. Hi, uh, this is Bunny Proof. Uh, I don't know whether I'm next or not, but I'll be um, happy to um, chat with anybody. Um, I'm the Director of Inside Sales at USA Technologies. Uh, a lot of um, you out there know who USA Technologies is and are active users of our platform. Um, in the um, Most of the questions I receive from operators on a day-to-day -day basis are surrounding um, COVID-19 and um, contactless transactions prior to and post um, COVID-19 and its deployment um, and the, the whole advent of not wanting to touch anything. Um, so prior to uh, COVID, uh, over 60% of um, transactions were contactless in nature um, outside of the U.S. The U.S. has since, um, over the last year, deployed over 300 million contactless cards. Um, so your credit and debit cards are now able to um, transact at the machine with a simple tap. Um, so uh, what we're seeing post-COVID and pre-COVID trends um, in the contactless space um, for processing card transactions were about 50%. So those consumers at your vending machines um, were paying via um, either swiping a card, tapping their phone, tapping their card. About 50% of their transactions were cashless or not using cash in any way, shape, or form. Um, in the first seven months of COVID leading up to December when we last ran our analytics, um, over 62% of transactions are cashless. That is, that is a massive increase in just a few short seven months. Part of that, um, part of that really cool cashless number, it's enabling operators like yourselves to manage your business better because you're actually able to um, visualize your transactions through a portal, through um, USA Live, or through Seed um, or Cantaloupe Seed Services. Um, but more importantly, you're able to reach all your consumers. Um, the advent of the millennial generation, um, myself, I'm not included in that. However, I am a contactless user. Um, and I'm an old contactless user. I'm 50 years old. So um, my 15-year-old daughter has a card and she can't find it. She doesn't know where it is because it's actually within her mobile wallet in her phone. Um, so we're seeing this um, COVID is actually accelerating this contactless usage, which is making it easier for people to um, manage their businesses. It's also, um, it's also accelerating um, small and medium business customers like yourselves who are um, recognizing that their consumers, hey, we're not quite reaching their consumers right now. Um, as you all probably know, processing cash isn't free. It takes time. Um, you're touching money, which is just kind of icky in and of itself. Um, you're gathering all of your cash from your machines. So um, 
outside of having a possible health cost because you might have some COVID or something transmitted on the, the actual bill itself, you um, you also now have the ability to um, visualize everything on your own platform. So part of that evolution, it's driven by you as an operator, but it's also driven by your consumers. Um, with the CARE Act and with the implementation of funds throughout the entire um, United States with COVID, um, most of those funds actually were distributed on Visa debit cards. Um, and I'm sure those of you who received those funds got those funds via debit card. That was over 80 million contactless cards were added to the network just from the CARE Act. So as you're um, moving forward in your business, um, COVID is accelerating contactless payments like never before. Um, consumers are now driven to, they're driven to that contactless space. And we're, we're seeing um, on a daily basis, my, um, my sales team are constantly consulting with, with all of you on a regular basis about implementing more and more cashless on your machines. Um, I thank you for our, the continued business um, that you have, that we have with you. Um, I've worked with almost all of you over the last 10 years um, through USA Technologies, and um, we look forward to discussing your business plans going forward and um, answering any questions you may have on the contactless space. Thank you so much. Um, that was great. Um, I'd like to have our next presenter uh, come on, and then afterwards we will open it up for some questions. Frankie, go ahead. Hello, everyone. I'm Frankie with Power Level Systems. I apologize if I was supposed to go next in the presentation line. I, um, I'm in Texas right now, and we're going through a pretty nasty eye storm right now, which the state is definitely not prepared for. So the internet and electricity has been real weird the past couple of days. But um, just as Bunny said, whenever she was talking about having operators um, talking to her about contact lists, especially with vending machines, I equally get the same amount of questions when it comes to micromarkets. How do you make a micromarket contact list, especially the kiosk? And how do you encourage or how does the operator encourage customers to use their market while also telling them, hey, you're still at low risk you know, with COVID-19 being um, such an issue with having people come back to work. So uh, fortunately for us, Par Level has not had to do too much of a pivot in order to make our kiosk contactless. Um, it kind of already, it was designed that way in the beginning. So you could walk up to my kiosk, have a product in your hand to purchase, scan the item with the barcode scanner, and then either use the tap function on the credit card reader to purchase the item, or you can still even swipe your card as needed um, without having to touch the screen or other parts of the kiosk that somebody else has touched previously before you. And from there, the kiosk will check you out and you'll be completely done and be able to walk away and enjoy your snacks. Uh, we also have an app feature now that um, does the same function. So you can either be at your desk, scroll to the market, find the product that you want to purchase, put it in your cart and check out right all from your desk on your phone through our app called Coin. Or you can walk to the market, grab the item, still be able to see the inventory level in the app, but go walk to your market, see the item that it is that you would like to purchase, 
scan, barcode scan the item with your phone and then check out that way. So fortunately for everybody involved with uh, micromarkets, our kiosk has um, from the beginning been um, a contactless feature that we have. So um, it's definitely safe to use micromarkets in your office. It's just now we need to get people to come back to work. Um, I also have been able to work with quite a few uh, BEP operators. So there's probably quite a few out listening and watching this presentation that I've had conversations with in the past. Um, Par Level absolutely appreciates all of your business and we look forward to navigating the new waters um, with COVID as we move into, you know, a new era, I guess you can say in the vending industry. So again, thank you for our business and for your business. And we look forward to working with you guys in the future. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. Um, Scott, was that the last person to do a presentation during this section? Yes, it was. It was. That's terrific. Um, we can open it up to some questions, um, which are our wonderful host will tell everybody how to do that. And then I do have the first question. I, I guess my, my big question with all the new apps and everything out there is um, how accessible are you making them for the blind or the visually impaired? Not just the apps to utilize, but also the back end. So us as managers, for those of us that have no vision, are able to operate these systems. Yeah, I, I can take a part of that question. So with uh, what we're doing with our vending machines at uh, CPI is we're opening up our interface so that any mobile application that uh, is compliant with MDB can uh, interact with our machines. Uh, we are testing this with a proof of concept with the PayRange Solutions app. And that uh, PayRange has integrations with Apple's uh, uh, accessibility features and has support for voiceover. So when you use that app, you'll be able to use the voiceover feature uh, to interact uh, with our machines. That, that's terrific. Thank you. Um, from, from USA Tech, I do have to say I am a USA Tech user and I do find everything um, very accessible, including the reports. Um, and I thank you so much for for making everything so accessible. Uh, I am totally blind, so it makes things just a, a great experience for me. Um, but then same question to Parla. Sure. So our apps, any of the apps that you use with our system are all accessible now um, because it does work with iOS and Android voiceover. So you, you're able to go into my app now and be able to completely use the app from start to finish. If you are visually impaired, we've actually tested that uh, quite a few times in the office to make sure that we could navigate and that, you know, the cursors and all of that lined up to where it needs to be. Now, for the back end, um, we, we do work very well with JAWS, ZoomTech, any of the screen reader um, programs that are out there. We are a very visual company with our back end. So there are some, some tweaks here and there that we've been needing to do in order to make the program work even better for our, our visually impaired operators now. Um, but our system does work with any of the, you know, any of those, those softwares that you may need to be able to use it. Well, I, I certainly appreciate all you folks taking into consideration that you know, a big part of vending is is us in the blind or visually impaired community. Uh, yeah. So thank you all for an answering that question. 
Hey, Karen, um, this is Bunny. I wanted to thank you very much for that um, ringing endorsement, and thank you for using us. Um, but I wanted to t let everybody know to stay tuned. Um, coming in March, we will be launching um, uh, our new seed mobile application for Cashless Plus. Um, Cashless Plus is our VEN management platform um, for smaller operators. Um, the seed mobile application will be um, embedded in that Cashless Plus application, and it will be um, highly usable for Apple users. So if you're using your Apple phone, you should be able to not have any problem. We are um, already integrated, and um, we're actually in the test of the beta testing mode with several BEP operators across the country. Um, so stay tuned some, for some really cool um, videos um, that will be coming out shortly. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, I'm gonna turn it over to Tyson and Rick now to let us know if there's any other questions, gentlemen, if you don't mind. First one we have is John. Hi, thanks a lot. Um, we can hear you. For, okay, cool. So for USI, first of all, is um, your software, will, will it work with the menus in the back and like on the machine that the people use to change prices, for example, and also um, can it be retrofitted to old machines that are like five, 10 years old? And also for the uh, person with the, that was talking about all the working with Apple and with the PC, does your software also work with the Mac? Thanks. Um, so remote price change is one of the features that we have on our Venn management platform. Um, so if you decide to deploy Cashless Plus, that, uh, USA Tech is USA Live, so most operators are receiving, um, receiving information from their USA Live account on transactions on a regular basis. Cashless Plus is a VEN management platform that layers on top of that. Um, so your USA Live um, system will feed into Cashless Plus, which will allow you to do planograms and, and the like. Um, it will work with our remote price change system. And I believe at this point, about 60% of, of the machines allow for remote price changing. Um, Ten-year-old machines generally are already MDB compatible, and uh, so long as you have that DEX interface in the machine, um, we should be able to transmit that data to Cashless Plus pretty seamlessly. Um, if you're using an Apple phone or for Seed Mobile versus that using a Mac, they basically work the same, so you should be fine. If you don't mind, I would like to just jump in a little bit. Both my software and apps both work on iOS, which is Mac, Apple, um, as well as Android. So you are able to use either app on either type of phone that you have or desktop computer. And and from a vending machine perspective, uh, the touchless feature uh, is uh, going to be available for some of our legacy machines as well. Uh, they would just need a software update. So I would recommend uh, you reach out to our you know regional sales manager and they can assist you with that. Timothy. I'm a little bit new to this and I'm learning more. I'm coming from a VR standpoint as a VR counselor. So I guess I'm curious about the, the software and the things that are loaded onto the machines. What are the repair costs? And what have you seen as far as how often do these things, apps break down? And when they do, how, how are the vendors able to monitor that monitor that uh, need for repair and then respond in an efficient way. And that's to 
all whoever wants to take that question. I hope that made sense. Folks, we, we have about two minutes if somebody can um, answer uh, this question. If you're using a Venn management platform, you would use Dex Telemetry, which uh, provides for um, data exchange between the vending machine and the Venn management platform. The Venn management platform itself would be able to um, read signals from the machine saying that there was an issue with that machine, like the door is ajar, uh, the coin mech is jammed, the bill validator is jammed, so on and so forth. Um, so that, that is how the Venn management platform would be able to read that Dex information from the machine. Thank you. Um, so I'm sure that there's there's more answers to this question and other questions. And unfortunately, we're we're running out of time on this section. But if if all three of you make sure that we have your contact information, and for anybody listening, if you have questions for any of our presenters, please um, you know contact us at RSVA, and we'll make sure that we forward your questions along or exchange contact information if everybody agrees. Karen, um, Karen? Yeah. Uh, Dan Sipplier, I'd just like to personally thank all three of our presenters, excellent job. But uh, as well, I'd like to remind our listeners that um, we have, courtesy of ACB Radio, we are broad, uh, live streaming this entire programming nationwide. And, and it's for the benefit of our um, presenters here, some of them are international uh, purveyors, we are, uh, ACB Radio is live streaming worldwide. So your audience is quite vast. And um, I really appreciate all of your time and sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. Also, I just want to, I'll let you know the general email for uh, RSVA is rsva at randolph-shepherd.org for anyone who wants to forward questions. Thank you. Thank you, artists, and thank you to um, all three of you. Um, great presentations, and I certainly look forward to hearing more uh, from all of you down the line. Um, so next up in our program, it is all about Uselect. And Scott, I'm gonna try this name here, Steve hey. Endress. Yep. Uh, you have the floor for about 10 minutes, and I do believe that Uselect is one of our Zebra sponsors, so thank you very much. And you have the floor. My name is Steve Endress. I'm the Western Regional Sales Manager for USI. I have been with USI since 2016. Before that, I owned and operated SNL Vending for 25 years in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, in 2009, I sold SNL Vending and was contracted by the Arizona BEP as a trainer and a service tech. Um, USI is part of the Wittern Group, and the Wittern Group is a family-owned business celebrating their 90-year anniversary this year. Um, I've had the pleasure of attending Sagebrush Conference in Las Vegas for the past four years with Bob Daubach. This is different, as we all know. <laughs> and, uh, I kind of enjoyed going to Vegas every February. Last year, I even had my wife fly in for Valentine's Day. Yeah. Next year, we can get back to normal. <laughs> okay. Um, at USI, we we take pride in service. Uh, I lost my. 
Oh, okay. I hope you enjoyed the U Inside the USI video we shared with you yesterday featuring all of our new products. I'd like to thank our marketing department for doing such a great job, Ashley Huber and Matt Shattuck. Tomorrow, we're going to share another video with you, which goes inside the USI factory. Um, I'd like to introduce our team, USI team, which consists of Jim Chico, president of Cells. Lou Zanella, he's the Southeast Regional Sales Manager. Anna Santiago is the International Markets Manager. Ashley Hubler, which is the Marketing Director. Mike Pofton takes care of the East Coast. Alex Castillo is in Latin America. And then Bob Daubach, which covers the Central Midwest of the United States. Next. Why USI? We're the largest range of full range of full line vending equipment. We have ambient snack machines, refrigerated combo food machines, the elevator, the outdoor evoke, the Summit 500, which is a traditional stacker machine, the Geneva coffee cup drop machine. Next, twelve thirty four. USI is the lowest total cost of ownership. All of our machines are foam insulated. They come with Braille backlit keypads for visually impaired, auto energy management system, open architect with API control. They're fully welded doors and cabinets, fully ADA compliant, integrated touch screens. Full Energy Star compliant. Yeah. All of our refrigerated machines come with the full health safety program by selection, range, and row. Next, we the USI equipment comes with the best accessibility with standard text-to-speech feature. Um, we're going to play a short video that demonstrates. Options save. Service main menu. Set price, tap again to open. Set price, system update, tap again to open. System updates, advanced option, shopping cart enable. The standard Braille backlit keypad interface also comes, you can use the double talk option. Next, the Evoke series has a smooth corner design both interior and exterior are especially friendly and safe for the visually impaired operators. USI has the most robust, durable, state-of-the-art machine quality designed to last many years through easy service. USI is the most solid state piece of equipment in the bin. The Evoke Snack 5 and 6 has the largest delivery bin, largest merchandising window, Oh, the Evoke 6 has over 2.5 more product headroom. It also offers LED lighting with twice the brightness output. The Evoke Combo 5 and 3 ST and VT come with the health safety programmable by selection, range, or row. They have a heated glass option and come with the high capacity tray option. The Evoke Outdoor is UL certified it has options for extreme climate, 
custom graphics and a security package option, which offers Lexan security glass, high security glass, hockey puck lock, and a camera. The Evoke Elevator has a soft delivery. It, it allows you to vend fragile items such as sandwiches, salads, fresh fruit cups, and carbonated beverages. It also helps with the first in, first out loading that reduces spoiling of up to 30%. You get true inventory control with trackable SQU management. The video demonstrates to our right how the elevator has the soft delivery. It also has an ADA compliant delivery bin with the large capacity bin for all sizes of packaging. <clears throat> this is a new concept we have come up with. It's called the Evoke Market. It's coming soon. You see the video that demonstrates. To operate it, you put cash or credit, swipe your card, press the unlock option on the touch screen, pull your product, scan your product, and, and swipe your product on the barcode on the touch screen. This is coming soon. <clears throat> that sounds like a lot of exciting things going on. Um, we, we all look forward um, to hearing much more about you folks. Um, we are at the end of the time frame for your presentation right now, but we wanna thank you so much for being one of our sponsors and being here today. And we look forward to hearing from more from you guys in the future. Thank you very much for your support and um, please reach out if you need anything and we'll look forward to the video for tomorrow's presentation. Thanks. Thank you. And I'm sure we all definitely appreciate um, the accessibility and everything um, you folks are doing. Okay, have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Our, our next section is going to be uh, a fun one, and I guess not really fun, but definitely reflects the times that we're living in. Um, we're going to be talking uh, a little bit about how things are going to look um, COVID. Um, Scott, uh, if you'd like to do the introduction for me, that'd be great. All right. It looks like uh, Ed Manley is here. and. Uh, Ed is from Ed Manley and Associates, and uh, we'll just turn the floor over to Ed. I see he's ready to go. Maybe he's almost ready to go, Scott. Oh, he, he's, yep, he's. <laughs> okay, now I'm ready to go. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry about that. Uh, so, yes, uh, I'm here to uh, solve some of your problems, uh, both in terms of uh, how certifications can help you with your business and uh, also how to um, open your business post-COVID or in the period that we're in right now so that your guests are happy to be with you, that they feel safe. Um, and so uh, those are the two parts of, of my talk today. Uh, I definitely highly recommend that you, uh, at, I think 2.45 tomorrow, I have a, an interview with um, Robert Vick who is one of the um, 
Shepherd Act uh, guys, and uh, he's just terrific. And he he talks about how he uses the certifications to have a better operation. So definitely have a look at that. Uh, so that's kind of pictures of me. Uh, I was a chief petty officer in the Navy, hospital corpsman, and retired as a lieutenant commander. I've taught all over the world uh, for the military, uh, from Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, White House. I'm in the middle, actually, of a COVID-interrupted Camp David class. Uh, I talk about the bottom one. Uh, which is bottom middle, which is me talking to uh, Vice President Cheney. And uh, we talk in the customer service class uh, about uh, being concentrating on the person you're talking to. There's no one else in the room, uh, you know, so your total focus is on that. So uh, I'm asking him, a friend of mine, I had a class in the house where they live when they're the vice president. Uh, and so uh, my buddy said, hey, uh, if you get to talk to the VP, ask him when's the best time to go duck hunting. And wherever it was, he shot the lawyer that time. <laughs> so that's what I'm asking him. And he's looking at me like he cares, right? Uh, and, and, and so I teach that, you know, look at your people like you care, even if you don't care, right? When they're complaining or offering advice or how you ought to run the place, whatever. Uh, so, um, so that's kind of me. I taught business enterprise Nevada uh, for about 10 years, mostly food safety, but was getting into uh, the other training as well that we do as they started to figure out that that would be good. Then I left town. I have macular degeneration. In fact, I'm going to the eye doctor after I finish this because my eye is kind of scratchy. I get shots in both eyes uh, for a couple of years now and I just had cataracts removed. So I have some empathy uh, for you. I had the pleasure to meet so many people who are doing outstanding things despite uh, not having uh, good eyes to use. So I applaud each one of you that God bless you for uh, what you do and the things you accomplish. So, and some of you have business like Robert uh, Vic does. So he has a restaurant in town besides his, um, his uh, uh, base uh, operation. So I'm talking to both of those. I have videos on here, but there's not time to show them. I actually put this up on, on the internet. I'll show you the link to that so that you can look and see the videos because I think they're really good and, uh, and worthwhile as well as you'll see uh, the one on uh, Thursday. Plus I did one on, on Tuesday about certifications. Uh, so I'm happy to be here. I've been here before when it was live. I've been here a couple of times when it was live. So I decided to participate in this one. Uh, so I'm the number one provider of hospitality certifications in worldwide locations because I'm the only one. So when you're the only one, you're number one. So I'm the only one that goes all over the, the world teaching at those locations. We also can do everything online. I just did a class with Robert for his, his people um, online, but previously I've done them in the, um, at his place. I fly to Albuquerque and do them there. So we can do, we got multiple ways of taking care of them. So I manage certifications for both the Global Food Service Institute and the Food Service Executives Association, which has been around since 1901. We've been certifying since the mid 60s. And uh, so I'm also the chairman of the board elect, though I'll never be the chairman of the board again, been there, done that. So these are the certifications that uh, GFI has some of which would apply to you and some of which wouldn't. So culinary is the culinary terminology. We have a level two, three, that's hands-on. Uh, food safety, you're well aware of. Uh, HACCP, higher level food safety. Nutrition for the back of the house, uh, you know, would be helpful to know uh, something about, not to make you a dietitian, but something about uh, various diets and, and how to help people lose weight, et cetera. Uh, the alcohol service, most of you probably don't need. Serving alcohol responsibly, you serve safe alcohol. The Master Certified Food Service Professional is um, 
affectionately call it the holy crap test. Holy crap, that's the hardest test I ever took in my life. How to run a restaurant, how to price menus, um, hiring, firing, a little bit of everything in the food service. Customer service, a very unique uh, program uh, built by the restaurant doctor, Bill Marvin. And uh, uh, there's nothing like it. So uh, you all deal with customer service no matter what you do. And beverage professional is, uh, sorry, is um, uh, mostly what wine goes with what food, which doesn't apply to most of you. And food and beverage director is after you've taken all the other ones, you take a final exam and you become a master certified food and beverage director. Does that sound good on a resume? All those sound good on a resume when you're applying for jobs or when you're applying to get contracts uh, for jobs, particularly the uh, screening programs are looking for keywords. So there's a bunch of keywords. So I suggest these for you, Master Certified Food Service Professional, HACCP, Culinary Nutrition, Customer Service, and Food Safety. Of course, some of you have to do that, but everybody should do that. Robert has 15, 16 people who are food safety certified. Don't just have the one that's required, you know, do more than is required. So why I'm suggesting certifications for you and your staff, the knowledge learned, uh, self-confidence earned, the um, enhanced business proposals when you send out business uh, proposals, um, it looks better. I'm not convinced that there can't be two blind people in, a, in an area. And if you're going from your DMV hot dog stand kind of a thing, and you want to take over a prestigious site, I can't imagine that there's not somebody looking to see who's the best qualified, not just who's the blindest, but who can do the best job. Increases your bottom line, your profits, because you have more people that know the cost of food and, how, and why wasting food, over serving, uh, cooking improperly so you get less servings out of a, uh, um, out of a, uh, a roast, let's say, a turkey, a whole turkey. Employees stay with you longer because you've invested in them. They can see there's more to this business than flipping burgers. And so they're going to stay with you because you're putting, uh, you're increasing their value. I guess, see the difference in your people. I, I'm doing a lot of work with a nursing home company and they're wearing their certified food manager pins. The, the managers who uh, get these cert, uh, required certifications uh, for federal standards. And the patients are saying, oh, what's that pin? Oh, I'm a certified food manager. Oh, wow, that's cool. So even, you know, in nursing homes, the old folks are liking that they have those certifications. Business profile has more wow when you can say, I'm a master certified food service professional. I'm a certified HACCP professional. The other person trying to get the same job probably isn't. Robert Vick with Vick's Vittles Restaurant, award-winning Kirtland Air Force Base, uh, Randolph Shepard since 1988. I just did some training for him for six people uh, online, all online. He's got 16 people that have been gone through this whole, all of that list I showed you, the whole list, not just the reduced list. And they're master certified food and beverage directors. So uh, Robert on this, uh, what's coming up uh, on Thursday, will uh, discuss how they help his business so he says, Robert says, I want to be known as having the best food service operation in the Air Force. And oh, by the way, you know, Robert's blind, really? Instead of, yeah, we got this blind guy over there. Robert is blind and he has this Randolph Shepard Act and he runs good food service. No, he wants to be good food service, whether he can see or he can't see. And secondarily, uh, he's, he's uh, blind. Certifications make us all better, not just the one person. So typically, you know, the manager gets these certifications. 
he's spreading the knowledge to all the people. So he says, now one person's not making a shift move forward. He has six sets of eyes that are looking and touching and making sure that everything's good. More people, I've had uh, done submarines uh, for the whole, um, the whole fleet of submarines at a base. And the guy in charge said, the, the food safety, how much food safety have they had from the Navy and others? I did a class for them and the food safety standards are ramped up because you're putting them through a concentrated uh, effort, you know? So it all helps, it doesn't ever hurt. We set up benchmarks, Robert says, for the Air Force. So the Air Force is using things that he sets up. Training helped us do that. We have 16 people who have been through the training. Some moved on, some got better jobs. He says, I'd rather have, and I say this too, I'd rather have a hotshot for two years than a dummy for 10. So if they take your certifications and get a better job out of that, all the more power to them. And you had a great motivated person for however long you had them. So he says, I've invested in them and they've invested in me. He has 4% turnover. The industry average is 30% turnover. They don't leave him. He's had people with him for 20 years and he's invested in the 18th year they're with him. He's investing because they're saying, well, what about me? You know, his, his restaurant, I did the, the Air Force base and the, the restaurants, people say, well, what about us? So then I flew back and I, I did his uh, restaurant people. So they have more pride in what they do. Uh, the certifications on their uniforms, the initials, their certificates are up on the wall back in the kitchen and some of them are out front so that the, the staff can see when people come in, when inspectors come in, health inspectors, they see all these certificates on the wall. And they say, hmm, okay, the anticipation is it's a well-run place. So he says, I can't be there all the time. So now all the people who are trained and looking for all different things can be fixed before they become a problem. So he's got a whole bunch of trained, educated, motivated people. Training options, live recorded Zoom classes for uh, all topics, PowerPoint presentation. So without me talking, textbook comes with each topic. If you have 10 or more, I'll do live. Uh, I'm doing one uh, coming up soon for some people in DC, the comment on the Coast Guard. Uh, I'm doing some uh, live online and I'll do that uh, for you as well. 10 helps pay the bills. Uh, we send links to, uh, to all those options. When you sign up for the class, when you pay, you get links to five different ways to take this. All of the classes are uh, done online. We can also have big print tests and we can send them to somebody if that's uh, the only option you have. So how can we help you? Food Service Institute, there's my contact information. And IFSI, so I'm running IFSI for the third time. Uh, so we're uh, big in mentoring, networking, certifying students and um, uh, military are a big focus of ours. The dues are only 25 or $49. So 25 for students, people over 65, active duty and retired military. So I'd love to have you join IFSI, cheapest deal in town. Why? Because I can't, I can make money with certifications. I can't make members. So we're looking for uh, people to join us. So life in the post COVID world, um, this is what can we, what can the customer, this, so this is uh, somebody has this in their window. So what can you expect from us when you come into our place of business? This is what I'm going to be talking to you about. And then what we ask of you, or in some cases demand of you, the customers. So together we, the customer and the operator, we can keep each other healthy. So this is obviously critical. 
you know, I'm hoping I've been teaching food safety for 30 years. I'm hoping people are going to remember to, how to wash their hands. They're learning now. All this, there's nothing new. They're training what we've been teaching for 30 years. It's the same stuff. Clean, sanitize, wash your hands, 20 seconds. Everybody knows that. Most people don't do it. So I'm hoping that once we're past the mask, we'll still remember all the other things we did for COVID. So for you, the place has to look different than it used to look. So you get your butt out of the office and go sit, stand where the customers are if you're like at the DMV or sit if you're in a, a restaurant type operation, sit where the customers sit and just look around and, and see what you see. Take a critical look at what you see. If it looks the same as it did before, because you did a great job before, it doesn't matter. It's got to be better than you do before, more obvious. So typically, when do we clean? I was a hospital food service director for 25 years. When do you clean? You clean when the people are not there. Now we need to clean when the people are there as well as when they're not there. So they need to see you. They need to see somebody out on the floor at all times, wiping, wiping the whole thing, not wiping the way you used to wipe, which is the middle of the table, right? What do people touch? They don't touch the middle of the table. They touch the edge of the table. You don't wipe the edge of the table, that kind of stuff. So. Do you see customers touching things that you didn't used to care about? So they're leaning as they're waiting to, for the cashier. They're leaning on something that didn't used to matter. Now it matters, right? While you have COVID and people are going to be thinking that way anyway, hopefully, uh, even after COVID. So now you have to get that on somebody's list to wipe those surfaces periodically. So see what people are touching that you didn't think about adding to your list uh, for COVID to look better. So do you see a staff member on constant sanitizing uh, role out there? Do you see people, let me move my picture, which is blocking half of my slides. Do you see a staff member on constant cleaning, sanitizing, inspecting? Do you, because you're pretending you're the customer, does the customer see somebody out there at all times, very visible, not like normally you're sneaking around and you're cleaning so they don't see. No, now you wanna clean so they do see. Do you see customers looking anxious or do they look comfortable? If they're looking anxious, maybe it's you. Maybe they see somebody. You know, I was watching one time, so they're doing what I'm gonna mention later. They're folding up uh, the uh, silverware into a napkin, but they're doing it without gloves on and they're, and they're grabbing, they didn't miss a one, grabbing them by the eating end. <laughs> so, you know, you see that and you're not coming back if you don't even walk out immediately. So are you rushing to go to restaurants? I'm not. Okay, I've been in the business forever. I'm not rushing out to a restaurant. They're largely not great food safety wise in normal times. So, you know, if I if I do, I think I've been to two since this all started. I'm, I'm now, I got my second COVID shot, so I'm gonna start going, but I'm gonna be looking, I look anyway, because of what I teach, but uh, you know, People are not going to rush to your place if they're not comfortable with it. They're going to adios amigo. Does the sign on the window, which you hit, should have a sign saying, here's what we're doing to keep you safe. It needs to look like that when you get inside. So I'm not going to show you the videos. I just put them up there. And if you look at this afterward, I suppose you could do it. And if you uh, grab it online, I'll give you that link. Uh, later uh, and watch those videos. So that's Robert. He was on TV because he was doing stuff before you had to do it. He was doing what's right because he wants to be the best and he wants to be the first. So they did a really nice interview with him and what he's demanding of the customers. If you don't like that, get out of here. There's restaurants all over town that'll take you. We won't. You have to follow the standards and his customers, the ones that like that, like that. Some of them got their attitude. Well, I don't wear a mask. Well, then you're not eating your, sorry, goodbye. 
So uh, this one is just uh, fun. I came across it and it's um, Dancing Queen, da -da -da, uh, set to COVID music. So I just thought you might get a kick out of that and play that for your staff. Just fun reminders of what to do to that tune. Uh, this is uh, National Restaurant Consultants. The uh, chairman of board of IPSI has his consulting company and he interviewed me. I have to say, I did a terrific job. <laughs> I think you would love to, <laughs> if I do. Uh, I, you, I, I'm very enthusiastic on it, and by God, you better do this. You have to do this, and there's good reasons to do this. And so I basically going through this, uh, and very enthusiastically, I think, again, show it to your people. So uh, that's an interview where I was interviewed. Uh, this is what Robert Vick has uh, when you walk in. There's a big banner right, right by where you walk in the door, and he's telling you what your deal is. So you got to have a mask on before you come in. Leave your attitude out there. If you don't like, if you don't want to sit over there, not over there, well, I'm sorry, but we have to just, you're sitting over there. You don't want to sit over there? Goodbye. Uh, we're going to check your temperature. If you don't like that, goodbye. Uh, don't move the tables and chairs. They're set there for a purpose. I know you want to eat inside, but we can only feed outside. So you're going outside. Otherwise, goodbye. When you're seated, that's going to be your table. You can't say, oh, it's better. Oh, it's more sunny over there. No, you know, wherever we seat you, that's where you are. And life's what you make it. I don't give a hoot about your political views. This is what it says on the thing. Uh, I don't care about your political views. This is our rules, and we have a right to have those rules. And our other customers beside you appreciate them. Staff can kill you. Robert, he has those two facilities. Both of them closed at the same time because one person in each place uh, was at a function, picked up COVID, came to work. Now everybody's quarantined. They had to close shop. He's just about to open. And another person, I, I think just one of the places, another person showed up and I think they had to close again. So tell you people, don't be the one that shuts down our business. We're all out of work. Okay, and Robert paid them, I guess, uh, some as best he could, but you know, Wear a mask, whether you want to wear a mask or don't want to wear a mask. If you work here, don't put me out of business. So uh, Tim Molson, who I uh, love this guy, he worked with uh, Ray Kroc at McDonald's for many years, got a lot of great stories from that experience. He's, uh, he's the guy in Las Vegas that uh, operators, um, that the health department calls if they're having uh, issues with a restaurant and he goes and fixes them. So this is for his clients. He says, our restaurants are beefing up their attention to personal hygiene, sanitation, contact with food is basically an enhanced version of what they were already supposed to do. We have them using revised food safety checklists, also the frequency of cleaning areas, such as, um, just read my own slides there. There you go, get out of the way. Uh, such as shelves, monthly details become now weekly details for evaporator coils, bins, and fans, which are going to spread those viruses around, right? Just like you cough, well, a fan's going to blow it around for you. Uh, hand washing frequency has been accelerated, use of masks, more frequent use of hand sanitizer, and much more use of uh, checklists, which include infrared thermometer for checking employees' temperatures. Anybody with a temperature above 100, adios, go home. Be more aware, I am struggling with this, get out of there, sorry. Uh, be more aware of personal space in the kitchen. So make less foods, get your most popular ones and don't make things that, you, that have people in there for a long time making them and you don't sell that many anyway. So reduce the menu so you can have less staff so that they can distance. Uh, Dick Weil uh, put together a great uh, program, uh, which is one of the videos I'll, I'll uh, introduce you to later. 
so he's got a laundry list of things that you need to do post-COVID. Personal hygiene, overall hygiene of staff members must be restated, obvious to your customers that you're doing it. When people go to dinner with me, you know, my family or whatever, they're like, oh, oh my God, Ed, look at that. Look at, oh, look at over there, you know. So they're going to be looking. So make it, again, more obvious. Six staff members, no staff members coming to work. Send them home. That includes the owners and the managers who can spread. Temperature testing of the staff should be part of management. Robert has these, uh, these uh, automated things at, at the back door for the employees, at the front door for the guests. So you stand in front of it. It has a visual, it has a uh, facial recognition thing, takes your temperature, shows you what your temperature is, and records that for what they call it, for following, you know, if something happens. Staff wearing face masks, mask required, should be required to change their mask at least every hour. Single-use gloves, back of the house, front of the house, hosts and bussers all the way through the organization, change gloves when changing workstations, front of the house staff when you're bringing food to the table, taking an order, bussing a table, change your gloves. For back of the house, when each customer orders has been finished, change. you should go through a whole bunch of gloves. Had somebody one time, yeah, they tell us we're using too many gloves. One of the Reynolds Shepherd people. No, 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 you can't be using, you can't be using too many. They should be changed at a minimum every hour. Washing hands every time a staff member changes the workstation, retrain all the staff on proper hand washing. Make sure they're actually doing it. Okay, so you have those rules in place. Oh, I'm sure they do it. They don't. You know that as well as I do. So again, all those people that come to your place, they're they're watching what you're doing. They're watching if you are making a sandwich and then you're cha making change and then you're going back to the sandwich making. Hand sanitizing stations, have, have hand sanitizing stations, preferably touchless if you can, uh, around for the restrooms, front door area, so both for the employees, have them see the employees doing that periodically. Hand washing in guest, uh, guest restrooms, I always hate the signs, uh, staff must wash their hands. How about everybody must wash their hands? So at least put, staff must, why don't you, the guest also, because you contaminate us. You're not going to put that on there, but they contaminate us as well as we can contaminate them. So encourage the people with a sign that they need to wash their hands. Guest health uh, need perceptions, a guest that is sneezing or coughing. The reality is the other people around are going to notice that and be very nervous and maybe not come back to a restaurant. When they come to your place, you're holding up the whole industry because if I have a bad experience in this restaurant, I'm going to assume all restaurants are that way. So ask those people to leave. We'll pack up your order. I'm sorry, but I have to ask you to leave because of the COVID requirements. You deserve the right to serve and refuse service to customers, proof of wellness. That's why you're taking their temperature. You're making sure they're not contaminating the staff or the guests. Top three concerns consumers will look at in terms of safety, staff wearing protective equipment like masks and gloves, sanitizing the entire tabletop, underside where the people might touch, hand sanitizer at the table would be nice, maybe the, you know, open up a little pouch, or uh, somebody I know puts, uh, puts a little hand sanitizer there, squirt, and then, you know, wipe them between uses, but that would be, people want to use hand sanitizer these days. Lots of deep cleaning restaurants ongoing, not just the restrooms, but all areas, showing reassurance to the guests. Have them see you where you put the dishes. Have them see you wiping down it, right? So again, have somebody, that's all they're doing is they're out there, they're wiping, they're sanitizing. That's all they're doing. It's worth the money if you want to have a full restaurant. 
unless they feel safe, the customers won't come to your restaurant, hot dog stand, whatever, right? They're going to bring a sandwich if they're not, if they don't think you do a good job. Uh, in even if you just have a simple menu, probably the best is to bring flatware to the table after the guests are seated, wrapped in a napkin. If you're wrapping the napkin, as I mentioned before, where they can see you, make sure you're wearing gloves when you do it. And rather than have it sitting there when they're not sure who touched it, better to probably bring it to them and not have presets on the tables. Table presets, eliminate table presets for now and use rolled silverware. Make sure staff wears gloves when preparing rolled silverware, like I just said. Tabletop condiments, table side sanitation, eliminate the use of bottled condiments, salt and pepper shakers, use disposable packets. If you run out of those, put the little cups of uh, ketchup and mayo out there. Creating laminated tabletop card that tells the guests what you're doing to make them safe and sanitize that in between uh, guests. Reduce the menu to limit the kitchen staff so they're not on top of each other. Gloves more important than, than before. Redo table numbers and floor plans to help you with your seating. Post cleaning schedules that people can see and that is not filled out for tomorrow today. And that is not eight hours behind or yesterday's. So as they're doing it, uh, sign initial. Don't come back and go around and sign everything all at one time. When you finish cleaning the bathroom, initial it with the current time. Have sanitizer easily available. Eliminate things people touch but don't have to, like games, charging stations. Build the trust factor. Let people, let guests see the sanitizing buckets and towels that you're using. Have a bathroom attendant, not in the bathroom, uh, not uh, you know having a hand out and squirting some soap, not that kind, but uh, visible. So in between people, excuse me, ma'am, let me go in and and sanitize that area for you. Come out next, okay, and do that. Make sure only one person at a time goes in, depending on how big your bathroom is. Make sure the view inside looks like it does outside. Look for ways to minimize how many people have to touch an item. Create a lot of them are, are they're handing you the packets, right? Instead of you dipping into the packets, they have a, a worker handing out the packets with gloves on. Create a kitchen station setup sheets for dining room and kitchen spacing. So here's where one person in the kitchen is, and here's where the other one has to be, not next to each other. Wrap clean high chairs and boosters so people know it's clean. Children's amenities have to be sealed, use them only once. Customer comment cards, no more. Uh, please go online on your little sign on the table. Please go online and fill out your customer comment cards. Protect yourself. Don't lean too close to the guest. When you, if you can't hear them, ask them to speak louder. Don't get right in their face because then you're going to get COVID and we'll get shut down. If a group is really loud while eating, ask them to quiet down and put their masks on while talking to protect others. And uh, right on time. So this one is another one to look at. Now, this is the last one was uh, Dick interviewing me. This is me interviewing uh, Richard Weil uh, about his COVID white paper, which is three or four pages of things to do to make yourself uh, look safe. So uh, it's on uh, tinyurl.com slash sagebrush-fsi, Food Service Institute, dash Manly. And uh, you'll be able to watch those videos. I suggest a good use of your time and your staff's time. Uh, so that's me. My time is up, and uh, I hope that you got something good out of it, and we're ready for questions. That that was an amazing presentation. Thank you so much. And we do. We have about five minutes for questions right now. Um, so um, our hosts, Tyson and Rick, if you want to tell us if there's any hands up. If you have anything that uh, after the fact, send me an email. We can send you the white paper that Richard did. We can send you uh, links, any information about certification. So uh, I'm, we're always available.
Well, I mean, I, I don't have a question, but I have a comment. I thought I thought the presentation was so good. There was certainly things that I learned and that I picked up from from a lot of things you said, some things that I never thought of. So I certainly thank you, as I'm sure we all uh, picked up a lot of um, uh, good good things to implement into all of our businesses. Absolutely. Ed and Scott Egan, I, I, I've heard your presentation before, and it's there's pieces that were a great refresher and uh, some things that I need to think about again. So thank you very much for presenting to us today. You're welcome. I, I'm uh, happy to be a participant, and uh, I love working with uh, people that are visually impaired, and I'm happy to help you whatever we need to do to help your business. Uh, I got all the empathy in the world for you, so uh, God bless you, and give me a call if I can help you. Okay, we do have two hands up. First one is Woody. Okay. Uh, thank you, Tyson. Ed, wonderful presentation. Thank you so much. Thank you, um, I live in the state of Florida, and we are been for the last five years uh, aggressively seeking military contracts. Um, we have fewer bases here in Florida than most states, but uh, it is something that we're pursuing. Um, the... Uh, training certificates this is something you're doing um on with the military basis uh this is pretty much the norm and i'm I, i'm thinking that maybe this is something we're not doing as much with our blind operators that are uh, um and and relying on them and their uh, teaming partners uh can you go back to that a little bit please so uh, yes, the the military. If you want a military contract, somebody, this chef who was in a seven star resort, seven stars in Dubai. He's the only seven star. He's not good enough to be in a military sea lift command ship because because he doesn't have an ACF culinary certification. He's been cooking. He's sixty one years old. He's been cooking for fifty nine of those years, I think. And you know, four star hotel, seven star hotel, uh, top of the line cruise lines. And he's not good enough. They'll start him as a cook too, and he can work his way up. So I, I, I was in there. I actually wrote a negative uh, report saying, "Are you kidding me? Uh, how dumb is that to require certifications?" And I sell certifications for 30 years. I'm the biggest proponent of them, right? But to say that if you've been cooking in a seven-star resort, you're my man. You know, I'm, I'm not going to test your cooking ability, and I'm not going to give you a test. You know, so yes, so. Um, so we'll do, uh, for example, if you had uh, 10 people in, in, let's say, Tallahassee area, I could come and, and teach them, you know, not for one class, but if they're going to do two or three, uh, I would come up there and teach them. If, you, if, uh, if they're around the state, we can do a live like this, a live Zoom video. I go through the slideshow and, they, and then they go online and take the test. We have a variety of ways of taking the test for just about any option and we can create new options. So uh, so they have the ability to get a DVD. I can send them a DVD if that's the only way they can see. So we have, um, and, and so then we, we give you a, a lapel pin for some of them for HACCP, for the MCFE, uh, HACCP and um, something else. We have lapel pins and then, um, and then uh, we have certificates for all of them. And uh, they, the military definitely appreciates certifications. That's how they, they live on, you know, check marks. Is that, does that Thank help? You. Send me an email. I'll be happy to love to correspond with you since we're both in Florida. Thank you. I'm in, um, I'm in Palm Beach. 
Oh, Palm Beach. I am so jealous. I'm outside of Buffalo and we're at 10 degrees today. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for that presentation. Um, unfortunately, we don't have any more time for questions with this section, but I know all of your contact information is up on the RSVA website. And um, people can feel free to reach out, shoot emails, or... Uh... I, I'm an awesome resource. I am an awesome, if I do pat myself on the back, <laughs> I'm a great resource for you. I like that. I like that content. Thanks. Excellent. Excellent. You should be proud. It sounds like you know your stuff. Thank you. Um, thank you. I'm trying. We here at RSVA appreciate all your wisdom that you bring to the conference and your presentation. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thanks for Okay. Karen, can I give the uh, the uh, CE code real quick, and then we'll have artists do some uh, door prizes, and then we'll move on to the film here. Absolutely. All right. the The CE code for the closing is three C two one CD. Artists. Okay. I have uh, four more door prizes uh, for you guys, and the names are Julie Coleman or Julia. Uh, Roger Hall, Brent Dolan, and Barry Bryant. Fantastic. Easier to pronounce this time. Thank you. <laughs> thank, you uh, th thank you so much, artists. Um, uh, I hope everybody enjoys their door prizes. Um, Scott, we have a video. This is the... Uh, the audio Hi, the this is Lydia of, uh, Washington with the Bureau Engraving of Engraving and Printing. and Printing, producers of U.S. Currency. First, let me say that it's a pleasure speaking to you today. After that, we'll have I wanted CD to remind code. listeners that as part of the U.S. government's Meaningful Access Initiative, Sounds the Bureau great. of Engraving and Printing is providing free we'll currency reader devices to U.S. citizens yep, and legal residents who are blind or visually impaired to assist them with the denomination of all U.S. currency notes in circulation. The iBill Talking Banknote Identifier is a small, handheld device about the size of a key fob, which makes it convenient to carry and use during everyday financial transactions. When a user inserts a note and pushes the button on the side of the device, the currency reader announces the note's denomination in one of three modes, a clear, natural we voice, a pattern of tones, or a pattern of vibrations for privacy. The, <laughs> the vibration mode is also helpful for those who are blind and deaf. Uh, the iBill uses a AAA battery, which uh, is included. 4D also included in the box are instructions in Braille, so large print, and a CD. For next and for those who would prefer a digital Thank option, you, the yep. BEP also has two free hey, mobile guys, applications available for download the, the for audio. Apple and Android smartphone users. Please mute. The iNote, that's E-Y-E -E Note, for iOS, and the hmm. Ideal Currency Identifier for Android users. To date... So more than 79,000 currency the, readers the have been requested, uh, and there have been more than 103,000 downloads of BEP-sponsored mobile apps. Uh, Pepsi? The yes. iBill currency reader device and mobile apps are ideal for Pepsi anyone having problems great, identifying exciting, their U.S. currency notes. Although neither the device nor mobile apps authenticate notes, they do provide those with vision impairments Hi, or blindness it's, it's with a means of added independence and security okay? and are being used by business owners and individuals of all oh, ages perfect. across Thank the country. You. To obtain a free currency reader for yourself or someone else, mail in an application form to the Bureau of Engraving and Printing 
along with verification of a visual impairment so I, signed by a certifying authority, such as a doctor or other medical professional. Should, uh, the fillable right, form can be found yeah, on the Bureau's on website to, uh, at www.moneyfactory.gov in both English in, and so Spanish. Registered patrons of the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled need only to okay, contact NLS good. directly. I think I'm also pleased two. to announce that we have uh, a special program in place to assist healthcare. Is, uh, also a panelist Fantastic. on this yep. one with me. Yep. <laughs> Hi, Poonam. How are you? Good. Um, so, Poonam, I don't know if you, um, would you like to go first? Sure. I don't mind. Go for it. <laughs> Thanks everyone for joining. Uh, this is Poonam Tatwarkar. I'm currently a senior software engineer at Intuit and also the accessibility lead for TurboTax, which is one of the products that Intuit has. Um, and just a disclaimer, I'm unfortunately not a tax analyst or a CPA, so do not have a lot of in-depth knowledge about taxes, but what I hope to have today for you guys is um, a high-level overview of some of the tax concepts that are overlapping with small businesses. Um, and some useful resource links, hopefully, for all of you. Um, so with that, I would like to announce the link at which the slides are at, because it does contain a lot of useful links that you guys might want to refer to. Um, so the link is bit.ly uh, forward slash two uppercase N as in Nancy, G as in George, S as in Sam, uppercase V as in Victor, uppercase T as in Tom, and the number one. Let me go ahead. So here's where the slides are at. Um, let me repeat it one more time. It's bit.ly forward slash the number two, uppercase N as in Nancy, G as in George, S as in Sam, uppercase V as in Victor, uppercase T as in Tom, and the number one. So for some of you who might not be aware of this concept, uh, what exactly is a small business tax deduction? Um, it is basically an IRS qualifying expense that is subtracted from your taxable income. Um, and there are two primary ways in which you can go ahead and file for a deduction, which is standard and itemized. Um, so the way a standard deduction works is it lowers your income by one fixed amount. On the other hand, the itemized deductions are made up of a list of eligible expenses. Um, so you can claim whichever lowers your tax bill the most. Um, and here is where I have a link uh, which explains the complete list of 2021 small business tax deductions. Next is a link which specifically has some tax tips for the blind. Um, it does consist of some of the areas that it uh, enhances and talks about more is a bigger standard tax deduction in this case, uh, medical deductions, and also concepts around earned income tax credit. With the whole coronavirus situation going on, I do have some of the links that we have, especially to address that situation as well. So to start with, uh, there is a new coronavirus relief package that has been announced, uh, and that could be your potential second stimulus check. Um, so if you want to learn more about expanded paycheck protection program for small businesses and much more what we have in this package um, on how that could affect your taxes, that's available at the link that's shared in this particular slide. Next is especially the stimulus tax relief program itself. Uh, and this uh, particular link that I have in this slide uh, will be beneficial for uh, self-employed tax relief. Um, the FFCRA and the CARES Act, they have created a lot of new tax credits for self-employed taxpayers. Um, and some of the topics, important topics that are covered in this particular article that we have is stimulus payment and retirement. 
So feel free to check that out. Again, for self-employed coronavirus relief center, there is a particular tool that we have come up with, which is called the tax credit estimator. Um, so this is basically available for employers and self-employed. Um, it helps estimate how much cash you can get from ERC, from paid leave and a tax deferral. Um, also, you can retain employees and you might qualify for a credit of up to $5,000 per employee. Um, so if you are eligible for this or not, or how much tax credit you might be eligible for is something you can quickly check via this app. Uh, and the link to that is available in the link mentioned in the slide as well, and a lot more information. And last but not the least, um, for anybody who's trying to look at uh, TurboTax products in order to help file their taxes, we do have a couple of products. Some of the shout outs to some of the products are the TurboTax self-employed product, which we have specially for people who are self-employed. Um, there's one more SKU that we are offering, which is the TurboTax Live. Um, it does consist of a full service plan in which a CPA does the taxes for you. Um, and there's also another version of it where you can input all of your data, get to the step of filing, and then have your taxes reviewed by some CPA uh, by asking for live help, uh, which is available in the product itself, either via form of a call or chat, uh, where they are able to view your screen using a safe mechanism. And last but not the least, one more thing is uh, TurboTax does offer filing for free um, for some potential customers. Um, and this is something that you would need to file your taxes before the 27th of March to be eligible for it. Um, so all of this and another uh, other few products that we do offer are mentioned at the link below. Um, so feel free to check them out. And if you have any questions around any of the content that I mentioned outside of the content, uh, do feel free to reach out to, to, to me at my email, which is mentioned in the slide, which is punam underbartathworker at intuit.com. Also, we have intuit.com slash accessibility, which is our help center for any questions you might have related to Intuit accessibility as a whole. So I'm hoping this information helps um, some of you. And thank you for giving me a platform to share this. Awesome. Thank you, Poonam. So um, I guess I, I'm the other one. <laughs> um, thank you for having me. Yes. Um, so I, my name is Lisa Nguyen. I am uh, the founder and uh, CEO of Smart Bean Inc., a bookkeeping company in Southern California. And I'm so excited to be here because um, on Monday, I got the opportunity to be a part of the uh, rerun, pre-run of this program. And I can just see the support and the kindness of the group, of the community. And so I'm just so honored that I get to be a part uh, of it today. And please know that if I can be of service, if you think I can be of service, just reach out. Either I can help you, I can direct you to someone um, that, that knows. Uh, but my goal for today, as we talked about, um, the topic is, you know, tax, bookkeeping, payroll, and really exciting stuff, I know. <laughs> I, I'm sure if it wasn't, if we're not in the middle of tax season, probably uh, no one would join us, but I uh, hope, good thing that we're in the tax season. So uh, the topic is, some, uh, is very relevant. Um, and what I'd like to do today is, you know, talk a little bit about from a small business standpoint, um, those that are my clients, small micro businesses, sole proprietor, the people that start their business, uh, because they love what they want to do, uh, but they, you know, they didn't start the business to be keeping the books or paying taxes or doing payroll. And so uh, my uh, goal for today is basically giving you some best practices that I have seen 
Um, cause like my mom always said, you know, people like to eat, but nobody wants to do the dishes. And so <laughs> bookkeeping is kind of like the doing the dishes. And, um, I remember growing up, my, uh, my mom advises, like, if you go to somebody's, uh, somebody else's house and you want to be useful, just get in the kitchen and do the dishes because that's something that no one's want to do. And, uh, so after college, um, I didn't become a dishwasher, uh, but at least I always remember her advice and I always try to do the thing that um, I know I wanted to work with small business. Uh, my first um, experience with working with small business was working at ADP, that big payroll company that we can talk about as you know some of the choices that you can have when it comes to payroll. Um, and then after ADP, I actually started my own payroll company and um, I managed and growed that for 10 years, uh, and it was acquired in 2015. So you can say I have some experience with payroll. Um, and then I started this company, um, uh, Smart Bean Bookkeeping, in 2018. So we're going on our third year and really exciting about it because I get to work with the small businesses and I get to do the dishes because no one starts a business so that they can stay up late at night and figure out the books. So that's what I tell my mom. I did take your advice. I am doing the dishes for the small businesses. Um, and so with that said, um, in terms of payroll, let's just start with payroll first. So you start your business. Actually, we should start with bookkeeping because when you first start your business, um, you don't have any employees. You're it. You're the janitor. You're the sale person. You're the delivery person. You do everything. And one of the things that you know you have to do is keep track of your financials so that you can, at the very least, uh, file the taxes and answer to Uncle Sam, right? So, um, but that is something that is typically last on the, um, the entrepreneur's a list of to-do lists because one is, is tedious. Um, it's not very few people that I've met that love uh, numbers as much as I do. Um, and so they uh, usually fall off the list. And then, you know, a year into it, time to file your taxes and you have a shoebox right, of receipts uh, and bank statements uh, that you bring to your CPA. And during this is the crazy busy as time of the year for the CPA, you can't realistically expect your CPA to really comb through every single receipt to find all the deductions for you and file your taxes. But they have to do what they have to do to file your taxes and so that you can stay in compliance. So the reason I think Smart Bean, uh, my approach to bookkeeping is a little different in that, yes, Absolutely, we need to have bookkeeping, we need to have accurate numbers, accurate financial statements, so that you can take it to your CPA to file your taxes. But more importantly, bookkeeping should help you make better decisions for your business. So because of that, our service actually, our team work on our clients' books daily. So they go into your QuickBooks with you, QuickBooks, Poonam. Uh, so we use uh, Intuit product, QuickBooks Online, and we um, work on the books lately. So anytime our clients uh, go onto their books and run the financial statements, the information is always up to date. So if you want to know if you should be hiring an employee, right, or if you should be uh, comparing vendors um, or comparing projects to see if this project makes more money than the other, 
um, you have real-time data because that is what the big company has, right? They have a full accounting department to run these numbers for them all the time. The small business owner, you need the same information. You just don't have the resources for it. So that's what we do. So talk about setting up bookkeeping is when you start out, absolutely, if you feel like you only have a few transactions, you can and you can maintain your own book, by all means do that. But please make sure that the setup is correct. Okay, so Intuit tend to give me people this false um, confidence that they're going to guide you through the whole process of setting up your account by answering their questions. And then, boom, you know, your book is ready for you to track your expense and income. Uh, Why that they are, the software is very helpful. If you don't have background in accounting or this is your first business that you're starting, uh, I don't suggest that get a professional to at least help you set up the charge of account and then stick to that charge of account. I can't even tell you how many times I've gone into um, a client's books and noticed that they have, you know, five different things, five different ways they name office supplies, right? And so, because what happened is um, QuickBooks does make it very easy for you to just create a new category and name something. And because you don't work on the book daily, maybe a year you, you started out and then a quarter later or a year later, you realize, oh my God, I got to do my books to do the taxes. You get back into, into it and you forgot what code you use or what name you had used in the past to uh, for purchase that you got from Staples, for example. Okay, so my advice is set, have someone who knows, set up the correct charge of account, and then just stick with those categories. Don't just name the categories um, on the fly because usually you have multiple categories and then you risk your CPA miss the deductions because they already found what they need and then there's four other one at the bottom of the financial statement that they are not looking for, right? Um, and then when it comes to payroll, so let's say your business is doing great and then now you realize you need help and you want to hire um, employees. You have to put them on payroll. Now, just keep in mind that as a sole proprietor, you cannot put yourself on payroll, okay? Um, you can take draw out of the business, but you cannot officially be on payroll, like have a payroll service, getting a check from the business. But if you are an S-corporation, even if you own the S-corporation 100%, if your business is making money, the IRS expects to see payroll in your S-corporation. So oftentimes what you do is if your business is making money, then you should put yourself on payroll. Okay, so at that point, you have one employee that you, and you need to hire a payroll company to do this for you. Now in the past, my uh, past life, not too long ago, uh, I had a payroll company. So I'm very familiar with how that works. Um, and I can definitely help you if you have any question with that. Uh, but you know, payroll for yourself or one person and then maybe add on another employee. Although it's very easy, it's all in the setup, okay? So Intuit offer payroll service that integrate with your books, with your accounting software. It sounds beautiful. <laughs> All these payroll company, online payroll company like Gusto, and uh, so I, I know I probably will get some death threats from this, but uh, you know, these great uh, online payroll company talk about integration with your accounting software, and it sounds so easy to do. 
And it is if you have some accounting background or if you have done payroll in the past. Like done payroll, meaning you've had payroll, you pay employees, and you know what are the different informations that you need in order to properly set up payroll. Because when it comes to payroll, the tax penalties are so high, and the there's California alone, right? For every paycheck, there's nine different taxes that we have to calculate, right? For the paychecks, and then you have to take the correct withholding, and then you have to deposit that money or send it to the IRS and the state at a certain time. So it's time sensitive. They penalize you very heavily if you do it wrong because they feel that it's not your money. It's your employee's money and then it becomes the government money, not yours. So they get really sensitive about that. So you want to make sure that when you set up payroll for the first time, I unless you are an introvert who loves to read every single you know, every single agreement or contract that you read every single word or you are good at following directions, I don't suggest that you use those online payroll company and just, you know, do it a self set up, right? Because there's more involved than that. So what you want to do is you want to either, um, you know, believe it or not, I would suggest having like a local ADP or paycheck sales rep, right? They can help, they need that sales. So the salesperson, they don't know a whole lot about payroll either, but at least they know how to get you set up if you're a new business. So they can help you get the state ID number, get the right tax rate and set it up for you. Now they typically are more expensive, right? So I don't recommend it for everybody, but if you don't know any, don't have any accounting background and your CPA is not helping you or your bookkeeper can't help you with setting it up, go to, uh, somebody like that, a, a, an actual person to help you set up the payroll. If after, you know, a quarter, a year, you're good with it, then absolutely into it, Gusto, those payroll companies are good in that they do have integration with QuickBooks so that when you run the payroll, what you have to make sure is that the numbers that the payroll company show you on the reports and the report that they're filing with your government agency matches what you have in the books. Now, oftentimes that gets confused because the payroll company, the way they take out the taxes, the way they, uh, they provide you the report, it can be confusing. Um, so if there is already a direct integration between the payroll company and the accounting software, that helps. Now, just like any integration, it will only work if the data in is getting into the correct place. So it's again, all in the setup. If you want that to be done correctly, you need to have the correct mapping and whoever do that mapping, typically the IT person does not know which tax go where for the payroll. So, you know, you might have the IT person, but you also need your CPAs or your bookkeeper who knows payroll to set that up for you. And that's really will be helpful because um, then you don't have to go in and do the journal entry uh, or reconcile the payroll, every payroll, because that's what needs to be done. Just like bank statements and credit card statements, you need to reconcile your books, meaning you need to compare what is being reported on the bank statement, on the credit card statement, on PayPal statements, and your payroll statements versus what's in the books. Then once you got at the end of the year, I know, right, really exciting right now. Everybody's like, oh, my God, let's just hire Lisa because there's so much to do. No, I'm just kidding. So, uh, but really, once at the end of the year, you got your book all reconciled and good and ready to go file your taxes. 
your CPA loves it because he doesn't have to go through the shoebox and figure out your receipts, right? And they have a financial statement. What they need is the profit and loss, or people also call it the income statement, and the balance sheet in order to file your taxes. What's important at that point, though, is that once a CPA, you know, extracts this information, put on your tax return and file it for you, during that process, the CPA might make some adjustments to your books because they might find that, hey, this one particular expense is better to be writing off somewhere else. Or maybe there was an expense on your, uh, uh, on your profit and loss that maybe shouldn't be a business expense. They might take that off. Or maybe there was a big purchase that they want to write it off over a period of, um, you know, period of time, like maybe five years. Then they make all those adjustments or they want you to make all those adjustments in the books because that's what they're going to be doing on the tax returns. So it's so important for the small business owners that after your accountant has filed your taxes, you check in with them to see what he has changed, right? What, from what you provide to him or her from the time they file the taxes, make all that adjustment in the books, okay? Because if you don't make that change, the following year when you file your taxes, he, also, he or she will see the wrong information. It's not, it's not going to match what was filed on the tax return. If you ever get an audit, that's not a good thing either. The tax returns need to match what's in your books, need to match your financials. So make sure that after the taxes have been filed, that you also move that information back into your books to make sure everything's matching. So bookkeeper is all about matching numbers, right? We don't, we, we, I, I love it when I do a reconciliation and the discrepancy is zero uh, because that's what we allow, we don't allow for any other discrepancy, only zero discrepancy is what we allowed in, in at SmartBean. So I hope that's been helpful. I know I, I've been so excited to share this information because it's tax season and I've seen so many books coming through my desk that really need a lot of help. Um, so if you have any question at all, um, please yeah. reach out to me. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, uh, Lisa and, and Punam, are you available for questions here for a few minutes? Absolutely. Okay. Um, Thank you. I got to tell you, I, I just love your energy. I'm not sure I've ever heard anybody quite so enthusiastic about bookkeeping before, but you're amazing. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. <laughs> So uh, do we have any audience members who, who would have any questions for our two panelists? We do. Lance. Hi, Lance. Hi, how are you doing? And actually my question was for the uh, lady that was talking about TurboTax. Is she still available? Tyson, do you want to tell folks again how to unmute themselves or? I thought I, I think hey, Poonam is here. Yep, Poonam is here. Go ahead, Poonam. Yeah, I'm here. Yes, I had a question regarding TurboTax, and I've used it for, oh, I don't know, maybe 20 years, and I find a flaw in there every year, or I consider a flaw, and they never seem to find or fix it. If you do multiple Schedule Cs, and you use the quick uh, or the easy step, which is what I think most of us tend to do, your first Schedule C works fine your second Schedule C, and where this comes in play is a lot of times 
uh, vendors will be husband and wife. In your second Schedule C, it never offers you the option to put payroll in there. Now you can go to form and enter it, which is what I've done for years, but why is that not available on the second Schedule C going through easy step? Yeah, thank you so much, Lance, for the question. I think I think this is great feedback. Um, unfortunately, even if I do not directly work on that team to have the domain knowledge, but uh, fortunately, I am aware of a few folks who directly work in that area. Um, and I'll be sure to convey this to them and take this up as a priority um, and get back to you. So is there any way I can know where to reach you at? Well, if they'll just fix it, it doesn't matter whether they talk to me or not. But like I say, where you have... Uh, a husband and wife vendor, and they try to use the TurboTax, and the easy step for us is by far the easiest way to do it. When you get to the second one, uh, it eliminates your option to enter payroll, and uh, you have to go to form and put it in there manually. I just don't think you should have to do that, and it's been that way for 20 years, so uh, I'm, uh, I'm not using it now uh for uh, you know kind of for obvious reasons but uh they really do need to fix that because there are a lot of couples that need to put two schedule c's on there and one of them will not uh easily take that uh set of payroll data for the second uh, schedule c thank you sounds good i think i've noted down your concern and i'll uh, try my best to get this prioritized well, thank our, our panelists, uh, Lisa Puna. Thank you so very much. It was a great, enthusiastic presentation. And uh, yeah. I, I would welcome. Thank, thank you both. You both did great presentations. Again, I just love that energy. That was just amazing. Um, so, folks, I guess we have a couple of videos we can um, sit back and listen to. Um, Tyson, whenever you're ready. Hi, this is Lydia Washington with the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, producers of U.S. Currency. First, let me say that it's a pleasure speaking to you today. I wanted to remind listeners that as part of the U.S. government's Meaningful Access Initiative, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing is providing free currency reader devices to U.S. citizens and legal residents who are blind or visually impaired to assist them with the denomination of all U.S. currency notes in circulation. The iBill Talking Banknote Identifier is a small, handheld device about the size of a key fob, which makes it convenient to carry and use during everyday financial transactions. When a user inserts a note and pushes the button on the side of the device, the currency reader announces the note's denomination in one of three modes, a clear, natural voice, a pattern of tones, or a pattern of vibrations for privacy. The vibration mode is also helpful for those who are blind and deaf. The iBell uses a AAA battery, which is included. Also included in the box are instructions in Braille, large print, and a CD. And for those who would prefer a digital option, the BEP also has two free mobile applications available for download for Apple and Android smartphone users. The iNote, that's E-Y-E Note, for iOS, and the Ideal Currency Identifier for Android users. To date, more than 79,000 currency readers have been requested, and there have been more than 103,000 downloads of BEP-sponsored mobile apps. The iBill currency reader device and mobile apps are ideal for anyone having problems identifying their U.S. currency notes. 
Although neither the device nor mobile apps authenticate notes, they do provide those with vision impairments or blindness with a means of added independence and security and are being used by business owners and individuals of all ages across the country. To obtain a free currency reader for yourself or someone else, mail in an application form to the Bureau of Engraving and Printing along with verification of a visual impairment signed by a certifying authority such as a doctor or other medical professional. The fillable form can be found on the Bureau's website at www.moneyfactory.gov in both English and Spanish. Registered patrons of the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled need only to contact NLS directly. I'm also pleased to announce that we have a special program in place to assist healthcare, social welfare organizations with their bulk clientele demonstration and distribution needs. If you would like an application sent to you or if you have any questions about our programs, please call the U.S. Currency Reader Program Information Line toll-free at 844-815-9388 or email meaningful.access at BEP.gov. Please note that due to the pandemic situation, there is currently an extended delay on Currency Reader fulfillment. Once again, thank you for listening and don't forget to spread the word. A, a huge shout out to ACB Radio for all your hard work. We know uh, throwing in all these videos and commercials and ads and everything certainly can't be easy for you folks. So a big, big shout out to ACB Radio and all you've done for... Uh, yeah. Right. Hey, uh, definitely, I, I uh, second that. Since we've got a minute, can I talk about our auction coming up tomorrow afternoon or evening? Absolutely, Scott. Yeah, we have not hardly talked about that, but uh, last I looked, we have 21 items on our auction coming up, and uh, really would like to encourage you all to uh, be around tomorrow afternoon, because we're going to have a lot of fun. We've got a lot of great items on that auction, and uh, Whenever they're ready with the video, they'll start in on the video here. But I, I just want to remind folks that that's happening. Uh, we've got everything from some great gift cards, some mystery items. There's an Afghan on there. Uh, we ha also have some cookware, you know, uh, cast iron cookware. Can't beat it. Great thing to have this time of year with the cold weather everybody's experiencing. So, um, yeah, be, be sure to make sure you're here tomorrow. And uh, we're definitely going to have some fun. It, it's going to be a good time. It is. Yeah, it's, it's, At PepsiCo, every morning we get up and go to work on a mission to create more smiles with every sip and every bite. Already, we inspire one billion smiles every day. We begin before dawn on farms and fields in 60 countries around the world where we source our raw ingredients. Improving the lives of farmers by providing them with training and resources to increase productivity, resiliency, and sustainability. We're aiming to conserve nature's precious resources at every step through next-generation agriculture and positive water impact. Doing our part to curb climate change, striving to build a circular future for packaging, and a world where plastics need never become waste. Offering improved choices across our portfolio and creating smiles in our community where we don't just meet basic needs, we feed potential. We create smiles for over 260,000 passionate associates. From meaningful opportunities for work and advancement in a diverse and inclusive workplace, 
and for our customers by being the best possible partner, driving game-changing innovation and delivering a level of growth unmatched in our industry. We create smiles for our consumers through our delicious and nourishing products. We build brands with purpose and inspire generations with music, sports, and fashion. And smiles for the shareholders who have championed our growth for decades. More than 50 years ago, Don Kendall and Herman Lane sealed their partnership with a handshake. Today, PepsiCo is an integral part of the way the world lives, loves, laughs, drinks, and eats. And we're just getting started. Our future is limited only by our imagination, so we're dreaming big. Harnessing our talent, ingenuity, and passion to become a faster, stronger, and better company. So why stop at 1 billion smiles? Our new goal is to deliver 2 billion smiles every single day all across the world. One sip and one bite at a time. Oh, that was awesome. Yeah. Hey, hey, Karen, can I mention one thing and then we'll move forward? A, a couple things, actually. Looking forward to hearing from Pepsi directly. I, I know uh, they, they're further down the list here today and really are looking forward to their presentation. But I did want to mention about the auction. It's on a separate link. So for you folks that are thinking about that auction or maybe you know someone, a friend, an acquaintance who might have some interest in auctions. Apparently these are a big deal and I want to make sure that we get the word out there. It's a separate link. So you be able to share that link with your friends and uh, they can join us as well. So it'll be a good time. Thanks. Absolutely. And just to piggyback on that just a little bit, and you do not have to be registered uh, for the RSVA Sagebrush uh, conference. Uh, the link for the um, auction is open to everybody we just ask that you do um, reach out to Artist Basin with an email with your contact information uh, ahead of time, kind of kind of like a registration, but not really because you're not paying for anything. Um, just so we know once you start bidding uh, who we need to bill. Um, and I can tell you it's going to be a lot of fun. Scott and I are co-hosting it, and we, we can be just slightly a little bit more uncensored during the auction. So if you think we're fun now, wait till you hear us tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> thank goodness the fcc won't be listening i'm just kidding <laughs> uh well i think we're keeping everything family friendly but oh absolutely uh, definitely definitely just a little bit more uh a relaxed environment so we can all have some fun um uh throughout the auction and um you know scott's a riot i'm sure he's gonna throw a joke in here or there and you know i might laugh at one here and there <laughs> Hey guys, it's Rick. If I can, if I can, that's just... good. And we may have some time for a little meet and greet action as well. So, uh, great, great time to get to know some of those other folks throughout the country. And uh, we do have that action, so it'll be it'll be a good time, very good time. Absolutely, and you don't have to be a member of RSVA to join into the auction. Um, all are welcome. Um, you know, auctions are for everybody. You know, RSVA. We are we are using it as a fundraiser and. You know, the uh, the funding is important uh, to all organizations, um, us especially, so we can advocate in the behalf of all the vendors. Right, um, and and I will say too on on this auction, folks, it's quality stuff. It's not it's not stuff that's been drug out of the closet somewhere. There's some real quality items on this auction, so. Uh, yeah, it's it's it will be worth your time to check out. And uh, these things are a lot of fun. 
And uh, I just encourage everybody to make sure that they put a little, little time. Even if you can only stop in for a few minutes, we'd love to have you. It'd be great. I am really looking forward to our next couple of guest speakers. Um, we, uh, our next topic, we're going to be talking about something called fair minimum return, which I know a lot of folks um, aren't quite sure on what that is, but we have two presenters that are, are really going to explain some of that and how their state um, is, is implementing that and may be able to, to answer some questions to the vendors on what a fair minimum return is. Um, so from Texas, we have uh, Michael Hook um, from the Office of Disabilities and Scott, I'm going to need help with this next name, Lisa. Well, let's see here. I, I don't want to kill the name here. I don't have that. Oh, uh, I don't have that one on my list. I'm sorry. Liz, Lizzie, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, the, the director of the Business Enterprise Program of Texas. Um, Michael, are you on the line? I am on the line. I, I should be on the videos as well. And the name you're looking for there is uh, Ms. Lizette Hinojosa. Uh, yeah. Thank you. So, thank you. you know, I'm going to hire you to do my job for me. Thank you so much. Um, at this point, I'm going to turn this over to you and um, let you talk about fair minimum return. Thank you. Well, and, uh, and thank you. Thank you for having uh, Lizette and I uh, here today. Lizette uh, is the new uh, Business Enterprises of Texas, or BET as we call it, director. Uh, I have her with me uh, here today to just, just uh, keep an eye on me. Uh, those of you that know me know I, I need supervision pretty much full time. Uh, the, uh, I see you laughing, Dan. Uh, the, uh, I cannot express uh, how happy I am that Ms. Hinosa is at the helm of the program that I directed for over uh, two, two decades. Uh, um, not to age myself, but BET is in good hands. Uh, Texas is in good hands. Uh, I, the, I'm here today to talk about the, BE, the Texas BET benefit program and how it helped us provide an emergency income assistance program for BET licensed managers, that's what we call our vendors, our licensed managers, as their businesses closed during the pandemic. Now, as I mentioned to artists when we were uh, setting this up, I, we don't have a fair minimum return uh, policy in Texas. And, and there's a reason for that. Uh, in 2019, the Texas Randolph Shepherd managers experienced uh, average reporting earnings of about 114,000 a year with a median of about 65. Texas consistently has and licensed managers. Uh, therefore, income is, is available for those who take advantage of, uh, of opportunities. But she asked me to talk about how we put together the program to, to help managers uh, and, and, and maybe that applies to some states that are looking for ways uh, to handle fair minimum return. But that's not what this is in Texas. This was a plan uh, to help folks. Uh, so I'll, uh, I'll walk through that uh, uh, for you. Uh, the, um, you know, as you know, 2020, uh, last year changed everything. The pandemic turned all of our lives uh, upside down. Uh, and I, I know that's been talked about a, a lot already, but uh, I can tell you that the elected committee uh, of managers uh, in Texas and the agency are, are proud that we were able to put together uh, some aid uh, for the licensed managers here due to fiscally responsible decisions that uh, were made in the past uh, and paid off in our, in our time of need. 
uh, just to make sure before I, because you, you can see, I'll just keep talking unless you stop me. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, great. We're, you know, we're having uh, just a bit of an ice storm here in Texas. So uh, we're here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, our, uh, our grid, our, our utility grid is more set for 110 degrees, not 10 degrees. Uh, so uh, we're, <laughs> we're having rolling blackouts, but I think I've got my backup set to where even if I go out, the power goes out, I think I'll still be with you. I just won't be able to, to see you, but I just wanted to warn you uh, about that. A little history. The uh, and the, you know this looking at this, this could be something to think about from fair minimum return too. Back in 2005, uh, BET licensed managers voted in accordance with the Randolph Shepard Act to dissolve a retirement program uh, in effect at that time and to research possibilities for a new benefit uh, program. That that retirement program had been around for a while, uh, and the managers <laughs> were just dissatisfied and wanted to look at something new. Our agency con uh, contracted with a consulting firm to provide objective information for licensed managers so that they could make educated decisions about their potential new plan. Additionally, and very important, our legislature authorized a trust fund for the program that would receive all revenues from federal vending machine income forwarded directly to the agency by, uh, uh, to fund the benefit program. Uh, the idea was is that anything that we received uh, from federal vending machines that was not going directly into the pockets of a manager would, would go to this fund. Uh, during this period, we also settled a federal lawsuit with the post office that uh, provided us exclusive rights to all vending on postal properties, which immediately started producing funding for the trust fund. The new benefit program uh, voted into place by the BT licensed managers was and is titled REVIS. R-H-I-V-S, and that's an acronym for Retirement, Health Insurance, Vacation, and Sick Pay. You may remember those are the items that are listed in the Act and the, the Code of Federal Regulations that these funds can be used for. So we didn't dictate which one or how much of each. We uh, developed a plan that managers could use it for any of those things. The program, the, the Rebus program, pays out all funds and interest deposited and that trust fund annually to BT managers based on eligibility uh, conditions such as tenure uh, in the program. Before the first annual payout that we did at Revis, we had accumulated already about a million dollars in the trust fund from the closeout of the old retirement program and the postal settlement. So it was kind of a one-time hit, you know, that we were going to get it. And as you can imagine, with the postal service, we started making new facilities and doing all types of things. But we had this million. So the electric, the elected committee and the agency decided that we'd just leave that cash reserve in there and for a rainy day fund. And we'll continue on with the plan as we've discussed, where each year we would pay out what we got in. Thank goodness we did. Because now to the present in 2020, because we had that money there, we were able to develop an emergency income replacement. Uh, program for the managers. We developed it with the active participation of the elected committee. And then we went ahead and did a vote, uh, a, a majority vote of the managers to make sure that they wanted to use those cash reserves for this. As you can imagine, it was a landslide. Of course, they wanted uh, uh, to use these excess funds for that. Uh, but we wanted to do it correctly and, 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 and do it by the act. Uh, so the, the just to kind of cut to the chase, 
uh, it worked uh, and we put it together and we, and we put together a plan. And the first payment from that emergency uh, plan uh, of $3,000 per licensed manager was processed in May of 2020. It was based on income reports submitted by the managers the prior month, April, when really all this started. Licensed managers reporting less than $2,720 a month qualified for the payments. So you really, you didn't even have to be assigned to a facility. And we have very few unassigned managers, but there were two or three out there. Uh, and so uh, any li anybody licensed in the program that made less than 2720, certainly if you weren't assigned, uh, uh, you wouldn't have made it or were eligible for that money. Uh, we, we paid that, that first one out in May. Uh, licensed managers um, also received a payment under the same conditions uh, in uh, June. And then we did a third payment in July. At that point, we had pretty much exhausted the, the uh, excess funds that we had, the cash reserves that we had in uh, the trust fund. Uh, at that point, though, we had realized how important this was to the manager, certainly the agency had uh, uh, as well. And we're, you know, this is my third agency in the same job or like jobs. You know, most people change agencies in state government. They just keep running us off to another agency. You know, the, uh, I started with the Texas Commission for the Blind and uh, they abolished that and uh, developed a new uh, agency called the Texas Department of Assistive and Rehabilitative Services. And I think we lasted ugh, maybe 10 years there. Then they threw that one out too. Uh, and we have been, uh, they abolished that agency. And now we're with the Texas Workforce Commission. Uh, and by far, it's the biggest agency that this program has resided in. And I think the best. Uh, and to give you an example uh, on that, when the agency saw, the commissioners and the agency saw that we had run out uh, of the money, they went to work on a plan to use uh, general revenue and to try to dig up and extend the plan a little bit. And in fact, they actually were able to do that for two more months. Uh, and we were able to pay out the 3,000 under the same conditions, the same eligibility for two more months, giving us five months. So in effect, any manager making less than that 2720 a year received $15,000 uh, in income during uh, 2020. That income uh, was not, that was pre, uh, free of set-aside fee. In Texas, we have a flat 5% uh, set-aside fee, but that fee was not assessed against this income that, that came in the program. In fact, that would have just been mean uh, uh, to do that. The, uh, <laughs> here's some money, now we're gonna take some back. Uh, the, uh, finally, when that, when we exhausted that, and I think it was about October that we had exhausted all those options, we still had the allotted money in the, the trust fund for the Revis payment that we would normally make in April of 21. Uh, and so it would still be a couple of three months out before we did that. Uh, we, uh, once again, went to the managers, took them and asked, would you like to get that early? Uh, is it, everybody was cash strapped. We were right there at the, uh, right after Christmas. So uh, that worked out. We got that, that payment authorized. And so we were able to make yet another uh, payment. And depending on how long you've been in the program, it was in between $1,478 and $4,433, depending on your uh, uh, tenure. And we, we paid that one out in, in, uh, in January uh, as well. Um, uh, and certainly there's no set aside uh, fee charged on those uh, either. So um, 
I guess the, the, the idea that I'm, I'm talking to, that I think about here, so, so many programs, so many governments, uh, so many, many of us in our personal lives, we tend to um, spin it as we get it, you know, uh, and, and really not have a lot there. You know, you, get, you don't have to read very far to know that most people in the United States don't have a savings account, you know, and, uh, and our, even our government, we're, we're kind of behind uh, there as well. But uh, the, uh, I, I guess I, what I'm saying is, is that working between the, uh, the committee and the agency finding anyway, and I know now it's not the time, but to get some money set aside. Uh, and, and if you can get that in a trust fund where it's protected, uh, you're in even better shape. Uh, I can tell you that in Texas, I'm, I'm not sure how it works in other states, that if you have money in the treasury for something that's not in a trust fund, theoretically it can be rated and used for other items. Uh, and uh, for instance, the fund in Texas uh, that it's, uh, that's funded by uh, license, uh, hunting and fishing licenses that's supposed to go completely to the, uh, the uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife, sometimes is used in times of need for other things. In the trust fund, it was fully protected. Also in Texas, and again, I'm not sure about other states, the uh, interest is, is uh, removed from uh, funds at the end of the year and used for general revenue, unless it's a trust fund. And then that interest stays in there as well. So, it, you know, uh, interest on a million dollars is sizable. Uh, and, uh, and so we were able to uh, uh, utilize that as well. So again, it's not a fair minimum return policy, nor do I think of the income rates in Texas that we have that trying to make sure someone makes 20 grand is an issue because if they're not making 20 grand, they could apply for another place that does or more, you know, I'm just using 20 as a discussion piece. But uh, this, I think some of the components of this work well uh, uh, for helping develop a fair minimum return policy in uh, some other states. I know that's a lot fast and I covered a lot of detail. I went from 2005 to 2020 or 2020 pretty uh, darn fast there. So I'll, I'll open it up uh, to any questions that you may have. Well, uh, you know, that being said, now I'll just start bragging. Uh, the, uh, you know, I, I gotta live up to my, hey, can y'all see behind me? Uh, the, uh, those of you that can- Ken, can make what is that? And, and we are digging the biggest hole in Austin, Texas right now. It's, it's underway. Uh, in Austin, Texas, uh, the capital is at uh, 19th, uh, excuse me, the capital is at uh, 15th, 12th in this little campus area. If you go north uh, to 19th or MLK Street, you start the University of Texas right there. And that's just a, a street right now. We're gonna close in that entire street from, from uh, 15th Street up to the university and put in a grassy mall uh, uh, with oaks uh, trim on the side of it and there's new buildings being built. Now, right now we're parking lots, so we're gonna have new buildings. And behind me there, uh, the one that I'm leaning over to show you is, uh, it's, a, it's a copy kind of our, our Texas uh, uh, History Museum. And we're gonna have a micro market and vending in there. And then uh, back two or three blocks, we're going to have a, a large food service operation and a new building there that will be open. Uh, you can walk right into the door and into the facility, no security. Uh, and so we'll be able to open that for all of the civic activities that are going to occur in this mall. Uh, and so uh, Lizette and her team are working uh, with the, our uh, Texas Facilities Commission to get that put together. 
I cannot tell you how jealous I am uh, that those things are not coming to fruition back when I was director. Uh, you know, I, I think everybody just said, oh, he's old. Let's get this new person in there. Then we'll we'll start clicking. Uh, <laughs> working on a new vending uh, facility in a, uh, in a hospital at Fort Bliss uh, as well. So don't get him, Lizette. Uh, she, hit the, she hit the down running. Now shut up again in case there was a question. Michael. Yes, sir. Now, I just wanted to take a second to thank uh, you, Mr. Hooks, for coming on and telling uh, us about this, because so many states do need to have money put back for emergencies like this. And uh, I I'm going to reach out to you one on one. But I just want to tell you, I know you're extremely busy and you've got a lot more than BET under you. But thank you for taking time to speak with us today, because this should be an encouragement to all programs around the country uh, to, to put money back, because we absolutely uh, you just never know what's going to face us. So thank you, sir, for, for your time today. Well, you, you bet you. And I, I want to add again that that wasn't solely the decision of the agency. You know, the elected committee uh, was a part of that decision when it was made. And I congratulate them on not just saying, no, give me all the bucks, show me the money. You know, they uh, they realized that that was something they could hold back. And wow, it, it really paid off for us. OK, well, I'm, I'm going to ask one. And I, I always like to get uh, a little more up to speed on things, Michael. But uh, uh, can you tell me how many managers that you have in Texas and how many facilities? Just kind of a rough number and just give me a little layout of the land in Texas. Sure, I'll give you I'll give you some. Let's just start with the first two that you asked. Uh, we've got 111 facilities uh, uh, right now. Uh, of uh, uh, Within those, we've got three uh, uh, Department of Defense contracts. And we're actually, well, that's another thing that we're working on. It's, it's funny, it's one of the, you know, there was a, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I think started a novel that they made us read in school. But, uh, the, <laughs> but right now, although we're going through this pandemic, there's lots of cool things coming. And uh, one of them's a, a naval reserve base that we're negotiations with them right now too. Uh, so uh, there, there's, there's, we've got, we'll have four of those soon, but there's 111. And I would say that of the, uh, of the layout and, and oh, and, and about 105 managers today, we can okay. see, we have a few less managers than we, we've uh, got facilities. We've never had a waiting list uh, uh, in Texas. Uh, in the 25 years that I've been associated with the program, we've never had a time when we didn't have facilities uh, for managers. Uh, the, um, so the, uh, of that, I'd say about uh, 30, 35% uh, of it is on federal property and about 75% of it is on uh, state property. The, our, our state priority only extends to state properties, unlike some states that may have county or municipalities or high, and higher education is also exempted uh, from priority in Texas. We still work in those arenas when we can, but they're there. Uh, the, uh, then on food service, right, food service versus vending, we're about 70% vending, 30% uh, food service. Uh, the, you know, we, we operate, you know, uh, cafeterias, uh, uh, what we used to call snack bars, uh, uh, you know, I, they, they look more like subways now, uh, micromarkets, convenience stores. Uh, we've got vending in uh, roadside rest areas, the state prison systems, uh, the, uh, some federal prisons. Uh, we're, we're pretty much all over the, the board. Uh, Texas is, is fortunate uh, because it's big, you know, and there's, there's, a, there's a lot of territory. And, and then from a rural standpoint, we're lucky too, because our prisons not only popular with Texas criminals, but they send them to us from other states sometimes too. Uh, so we have tourist uh, uh, prisoners here too, and 
and everybody's spending money. Uh, also, the uh, you know we have ICE prisons here, uh, and that's not where where someone who maybe someone thought they shouldn't be here is being held temporarily. It's more for convicted felons uh, and uh, that have done something bad here. We operate in those uh, as well. So we're we're all over the board uh, uh, out there. I mentioned the bragging numbers earlier on uh, income and stuff, so I won't I won't go through all that again. Uh, are we all just, uh, you know, happy as punch and all getting along and everything's fine? Well, heck no. Uh, show me that state. Uh, you know, <laughs> that, uh, that says that, but you know, guess what? There's, uh, it doesn't, even if you and your elected committee are 100% together, that doesn't mean everybody will be, you know? And uh, uh, so, but we, we certainly have our uh, disagreements. I will say that we went from 2003 2019, uh, no, 2003 to 2020 with no grievances, not one grievance in that time. Now that's over. Uh, you know, uh, if you've experienced new directors in your state, you know that when you get a new director, you get grievances too. It's, it's, it seems to be the hip time. To uh, but uh, we, we work through those disagreements and we get them taken care of. Sure. And how, how has COVID affected, affected your, your, um, businesses, will you still be as healthy coming out of COVID or have you lost some? No, the, I mean, obviously the initial impact is devastating. Uh, it's been yep. devastating uh, in, in, in virtually everything that we do. You know, one of the first uh, executive orders by our governor was to shut down visitation in the prison systems. And, you know, you, we took out a number of managers of that. Uh, Texans can't drive in the rain well, let alone <laughs> ice. None of us have any snow tires or chains or anything of, 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 that, of that nature. We don't even have sleds. We have to get the snow on our surfboards. Uh, so uh, all travel shut down. Uh, and so the roadside rest areas. Then, of course, uh, as everybody's experienced, our state and federal offices are almost all teleworking. You know, the, the, uh, I think we're above 90% of our staff of 4,000 in Texas Workforce Commission is teleworking. Now, I think we all know, and anybody that, that reads that, when we, we'll never be able to go back. You know, how's it, are we gonna be healthy when we come out? I, I'll tell you my opinion on that. All of us are gonna be as healthy as we are flexible. All of us are gonna be as wealthy as we, as we are innovative. Uh, it's, it, it's gonna be innovation or disintegration because a 1950s style line them up and, uh, and feed them comfort food cafeteria and, and all the labor and food costs that comes with it is probably not going to work in the, the new teleworking world uh, that we have to deal with. So I, I think we'll be good as long as we're, we're, we're brave and we're, and we have, we're constantly looking at new ways, new business models uh, to make it go. That's another reason why I'm glad that Lizette is here because, you know, let's face it, I'm old and crotchety and stuck in my ways. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to get me to do anything new, but, but we're, we're working on it. All right, area code 480. This is Mike Feeney out of uh, Arizona. I was curious, you mentioned 105 managers, uh, operators, and 111 facilities. How large is your state staff? Uh, 18. Uh, we have, uh, we have a, an annual budget of about $2.6 a year uh, and 18 uh, individuals operating. Take that, California. Uh, the, uh, but uh, so we're—I I like to think of us as lean and mean. But we have 18 of them, and of those 18 uh, staff members in the program, 12 of them 
are business consultants that operate in the field. Uh, and, and we have those all over Texas. What we have is the state divided into six geographical districts. And each of the geographical districts has a team of two business consultants. That way we can actually do things like take vacations, become sick and get well, and still have help uh, uh, out there. And that's, that's worked well for us. And also it just so happens there's 12 members of our elected committee of managers. So if a fight breaks out, we're even, it's 12 to 12. Very good, thank you. I wish our ratios were down as low as y'all's are, but uh, we're hopefully maybe working on that. Thank you once again. Thank you. Rick and Tice, uh, Rick, uh, or yeah, either one of you, any more questions? No, not at this time. I, I guess I would have one. Um, just doing the math in my head, and you said that you're, um, you're at a 5% uh, uh, levy across the board. I would have to assume that you have quite a bit on unassigned or coming in from unassigned vending. Well, we did before the pandemic. pandemic. Uh, but, with, you know, we, we, yeah, we, we do. We run about, uh, you know, on the, uh, the federal side of it. It, it runs, uh, we'll run about a half a million a year on that. And that just goes straight into the pockets of the managers. Remember that any unassigned vending on the Fed side goes right to the trust fund and goes to the managers. Uh, now, on state property, we, we have, I don't know, we run seven, 800,000 a, a year. All of that goes into the operation of the program. Uh, you know, when, when I started here, uh, back in the days of dinosaurs, we had a 17% set-aside fee in the state of Texas. Because we've been able to use that state unassigned, uh, uh, for uh, helping to fund the program, we've got that thing down to five. And in fact, I think we did three years, maybe four, with no set-aside fee because we built up cash reserves in the in the set-aside. That's that's terrific. Um, what you've done for your managers and, and along with the active participation from your state committee of blind vendors, sounds, sounds like you have a great relationship. Uh, you know, we have a relationship. <laughs> Well, I got to tell you, I, you know, I'm from the state of New York and I, I'm actually chairperson for our state committee of blind vendors. And I feel we have a very good uh, relationship with our SLA. Um, we are one of the states that did have a fair minimum return and uh, having that money in reserve definitely makes a difference. And I applaud any of the states that have kind of had that safeguard uh, for the managers for such a crisis. I mean, nobody expected this, but you know, it certainly was some financial relief to the managers. If you have enough time, there's one more hand up. Sure, you could have interrupted me anytime, Tyson. <laughs> I wouldn't dream of doing that. <laughs> Trevor, go ahead and unmute. All right, that is that is that working? Yep. Okay. Sorry. Um, now, thank you so much for coming on because I really appreciate that you've you know, uh, shared that with us. And it's just giving us uh, really an insight into how we, can, how we can perform together and working actively and how we can really uh, be uh, an encouragement and, and be there to help those who are maybe struggling during this time. And we, and if I just wanted to quickly clarify, you, you said um, that your set aside is at 5% currently? Maybe I heard that wrong. That, you know, it's, uh, that's correct. It's a, it's a flat 5%. Okay. Thank you so much. And I, I guess I would add to that, that the 5%, you know, why is it 5%? Where did we come to that? 
in, in Texas, we've never tried to handle, well, the last 20 something years, the set aside fee is a, is a philosophical number, it's a budget number. And so the idea is if you, if you wanna live a particular lifestyle in your program and have particular, uh, you know, have nice equipment, that type of thing, then you, you can kind of figure out your budget. Then figure out your budget, you take whatever uh, Fed funds you're getting or unassigned funds, and that, that final hole is the set-aside fee. Yeah. And then what you do is say, what do we have to charge to get that number? Not what do we have to charge to think we do that. And so I can remember this current, the 5% when we started it, we knew that we needed um, about 650000 a year in set-aside fees to get where we wanted to be. And uh, basically, I just handed it to the, the committee and said, you all know the math, you know the deal, we need 650. How do you want to get there? You want to do a progressive rate? You want to do a flat rate? How do you want to do it? And they came back and said, nah, let's just do it flat. And, uh, you know, so there's an incentive making more money. Uh, and uh, and 5% will get us to 650. And that's how that came to be. Michael, thank you so much for joining us and really going into such depth on how your state did it and how you're able to do it. Um, we really appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Michael. It's Dan Simple. Thank you. And I, I really appreciate your continued dedication and commitment to our program. Uh, you just have not given up and you, you're always open. And I, as you talked about, you know, differences in opinion and this and there, I had a reminder uh, when Charlene Dwyer first became our administrator, I was chair of their committee. We simply sat down at dinner one night and we said, there's certain things we're going to have to agree to disagree upon. And we got along super right after that. It just yeah. went fantastic all the way through. Because there's certain things that we each had our own opinion and she had her limitations and I had my limitations. And we just worked through it. Well, thank you for your dedication and commitment. That's it. And Dan, I, I, I so wish that you and I were having this conversation out there by the pool with that shark tank thing. And <laughs> oh, that, you're a kid, yes. <laughs> you know what, folks, next year, Let's let's all just um, you know hope and pray that next year we'll all be doing this in person. Um, Sagebrush definitely had a different year, but I think it's fantastic. Um, so sometimes we all have to expect the unexpected, and um, for those uh, you know, I, I'm in Buffalo, New York, where we're at about 10 degrees, and my furnace went out. Um, Scott, I need to throw you the ball for about an hour. Okay. I will be back um, to take care of my part of the presentation with, with Michael Talley. I'm looking forward to that, but um, I'm going to have to leave for, for a little bit. I will be back though. No problem. No problem. Uh, this is not going to be a problem because I, I uh, looking at uh, who's up next, uh, we've got some old friends with us. Uh, we've got... Uh, how to maximize and use of Pepsi food service products. So uh, the first panelist has got a great first name. I give him a bad time about this all the time. Uh, Scott Stella, uh, he's their national account sales manager. Uh, we've also got uh, Doug Purdy and we also have Shelly Malesha. So I hope I didn't kill those names, but uh, if you folks are here and you'd like to start your presentation, let's let's roll into it. And it's it, it's great to have you folks at Sagebrush. 
I know it looks a little different this year, but uh, we are thrilled to have you. Okay, well, hey, Scott, uh, first of all, you have a great first name, too. Thank you. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, now we got two people going to beam us up. <laughs> so um so yeah thanks thanks uh thanks a lot for the invite to your uh your virtual um sagebrush this year um in addition to myself like you had mentioned scott doug purdy our director of vending is on uh, on the zoom call also and shelly malika who is our nasm for the food side of the business um so uh, first of all, I have to commend all of you for putting this together in, in tough times and not being able to meet in person and putting together this uh, virtual uh, um, sagebrush here. We sure took a lot more work actually than putting together yeah. <laughs> putting together the live one because you guys had you had the live one down um, very you had it very organized and everything was uh, was very nice so. Um, I have to commend you on this. Um, the only thing that I'm a little concerned about is um, we used to get tickets from Dan at the end of the uh, <laughs> show. And I'm, I'm wondering how that's going to happen because I'm, yeah, I'm looking for mine too. <laughs> we'll, we'll make we'll make up for it next year. Years from now, double tickets next year. All right, I'm in. I'll be there next year. So, so again, thanks, thanks a lot, everyone, for uh, for having us and allowing us to be part of your sagebrush um, this year. Um, I think this is probably the seventh year um, we've been involved, or I've been involved in Doug and Shelley. And um, you know, every year is uh, is a real pleasure meeting with your group and talking to your group. Um, I've said it every year that your your organization is the type of organization that um, we really want to be a sponsorship of. We want to be involved in. Um, you guys are out there sampling our products for us through your vending machines and micro markets and so forth. And you do a great job of it, of representing Pepsi. So, so thank you very much for that. Um, so this year, um, I'm going to talk again about innovation. I know the last three years I've talked about, you know, fixing the mix from, you know, carbonated soft drinks to non-carbs. I've talked about micro markets. I've talked about even the importance of CSD or carbonated soft drinks before, um, but I thought we would kind of talk more about innovation since um, I can't really be at the show giving out the new innovation items and, and let you guys sample them. I thought I would probably go in depth on what's new on what, what we're coming out with and Shelly's going to do something similar also. So. Um, as far as innovation, though, before I talk about the specific items. You know, the reason for embracing innovation is really um, similar to why you should be carrying non-carbs, right? Um, non-carbs are the growing piece of the business. Carbonated soft drinks have tended to be flattened down year over year. And innovation um, is also a growing piece of the business. Um, you know, we, when we introduce stuff, it creates excitement, creates trial, um, and creates incremental sales. And we know for a fact that customers um, vending operators that embrace innovation, there's a few things that um, really shine through for customers that do that. For example, um, operators that embrace innovation tend to actually have a better all, better overall performance in their total volume. Um, we see that year over year, the customers that embrace innovation, their, their sales tend to be up, while the ones that tend to just stick with the same seven or eight, yeah, seven or eight items in the vending machines and sales tend to be down. 
Um, machines with innovation keep the customers engaged, right? Um, nobody wants to walk up to the same machine every day and see the same product day in and day out. And, you know, that tends to, it's hard to do that in vending, switch products out, but adding an innovation item once a month or every couple of months does help spark that excitement when a consumer comes up there. Um, the other important thing with innovation is customers see innovation through media, whether it's commercials, whether it's billboards, whether, you know, it's people talking about a new product, right? Um, and they want to try it. And it's, I think it's very important for the vending industry to have that out in front of consumers versus the retail market um, getting all of the sales for innovation. You know, let's put it in our vending machines. Let's make sure that it's in front of the consumers and let them, when they're excited about it, let them try it out of our machines versus out of the retail store. Um, and then if you think about um, innovation, right, everything was innovation at one time or another. And while innovation sometimes starts out small, um, some of the items that were innovation before were Frappuccino, for example, from Starbucks, Mountain Dew Code Red, um, Lipton Purely. Those are items now that are huge items for us that um, are driving a lot of sales for you through your machine that were at one time and not that long ago were actually innovation items for us. So, um, again, getting involved in innovation and taking advantage of it and putting it in your machine um, is definitely going to be a positive for you. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the innovation items that we're coming out with. This is pretty much the first third of the year, the first, um, first trimester of the year. All of this stuff will be coming out that I'm going to be talking about. We're going to have some stuff later on in the year, but since it isn't all finalized yet, I thought I would just talk about, um, I got about eight or nine items on here that I'm going to, you know, top line. So first one that we're really excited about is Mountain Dew Major Melon and Major Melon Zero. Um, Mountain Dew Major Melon is actually our newest addition to the Mountain Dew permanent lineup. So this is not an LTO or a limited time offer. It's going to be in our permanent lineup. It's watermelon flavor with a, with a dew twist in it. Um, so it's a, I've actually got some samples that were mailed to my house. It's a very good, very good product. And anything that we put the Mountain Dew name on just does gangbusters. Um, so I would definitely, you know, that's like probably the most exciting one this year. And again, it's not only in regular uh, Major Melon, it's also Major Melon Zero, so the Zero Sugar Offering also. Um, bubbly. Uh, bubbly is not really a new item for us anymore. We've had it out for a couple of years. Um, it's been doing fantastic for us. We actually have it in 14 flavors now. We're actually adding two new flavors this year white peach ginger and blueberry pomegranate. Um, so those are new offerings. And then we are also coming out with a new lineup of bounce that a new lineup of bubbly that has caffeine in it called bubbly bounce. Um, it has 35 milligrams of caffeine, has no calories, no sweeteners. Again, it's a carbonated water with really just all good stuff in it and, and plus the caffeine. Um, it actually is gonna be in three different flavors which is mango passion fruit, triple berry, and blood orange grapefruit. So um, some pretty exciting flavors there too. So that's a, a new item. And I would, um, a lot of people, a lot of consumers have been asking us, hey, can we get caffeine in our sparkling water? This is it. Um, this, I think this is gonna be a real hit. Um, on the isotonic lineup, we have Gator Light. 
So Gator Light is actually a new sports drink um, formulated to deliver rapid hydration. So actually what it does is it promotes faster absorption of the electrolytes, um, and it is also a lower sugar uh, product for us. Um, Gator Light actually has 75 less calories and 16 grams less sugar than electrolyte, our competition for 20-ounce serving. Um, Gator Light will be available in three flavors, orange, strawberry, kiwi, and cherry lime. Cherry lime, though, will only be available in the central and west division. So basically the left side of the country will only be able to get the cherry lime. Okay. Um, G0 with protein. Okay, to add into our, our hydration lineup here. It's a hydration protein drink that provides performance benefits of, of starting and the recovery process. Key electrolytes for hydration while providing great taste. It has 10 grams of protein in it, it's zero sugar, and it has Gatorade electrolytes. And this product comes in a 16.9 ounce bottle, not a 20 ounce, it's a 16.9. Um, it comes in three flavors, fruit punch, cool blue, and glacier cherry. Okay, so um, you'll see that uh, hitting the shelves here soon. Um, so we have a very new product for us called Evolve. Evolve is actually a plant-based protein shake. Okay, so we're kind of staying on the protein theme here. Um, it comes in three different flavors. It comes in double chocolate, vanilla bean, and berry medley. It has 20 grams of plant protein. Okay, so it's uh, protein derived from plants. 10 grams of fiber. Um, so again, it's a, it's a, it's a, a protein fiber type drink. It has no artificials in it and is a non-GMO, um, product. So it also has good sources of B12, calcium, iron, and zinc. And this product comes in 11.16 ounce, uh, bottle, plastic bottle. Okay. So that's a kind of a new category for us there in a way. Um, triple shot. So from the Starbucks lineup, we've always had triple shot, but now we actually have a zero sugar triple shot. So for those that were, you know, concerned with sugar, um, it's no longer there. It still has all the energy boosts that uh, regular triple shot has. It has uh, 40 less calories. Um, and the way they explain it, it has a clean black coffee taste. So this is in the traditional 15 ounce uh, single serve can that the regular triple shot comes in. Um, it comes in two flavors, black, zero sugar, and vanilla, zero sugar. So um, they're kind of like a, a more of a black coffee taste type product. Also from the Starbucks lineup, we have cold and crafted. So you remember we used to have cold brew. Um, they've really made this product a lot better tasting. We've upgraded it quite a bit, and it's called cold and crafted. Um, it's a small, smooth cold brew taste with a splash of milk and a hint of flavor. There's also under 100 calories per bottle, and this is an 11-ounce glass bottle, similar to what our iced coffee came in. Um, it's four different flavors. There's coffee with a splash of milk. There's sweet and black, coffee with a splash of milk and vanilla, and then also coffee with a splash of milk and mocha. Um, so, again, kind of that vanilla, mocha, um, black coffee theme that, that uh, you know, Starbucks is known for. And the last one I'm going to talk about, again, is another Starbucks item. I mean, Starbucks has just been a brand for us that continues. We continue to throw innovation out there, and it continues to do well, continues to stick. Um, and we're actually um, coming out with a Starbucks Passport series. Um, and really, this is just a high blend of Frappuccino, 
um, and it's inspired by some international specialties and world destinations. So it's like it comes in a 13.7 ounce bottle, like all other Frappuccino does in the glass bottle. Um, it has three different flavors, and I may kill. Uh, well, it comes in chocolate chihuahua, if I pronounce that pronounce that right. Hazelnut tiramisu and a caramel flan. Um, so uh, those are really interesting flavors. I can't wait to get some samples of those and try them uh, myself. So, um, so that's just sampling of some of the innovation that we have coming out in 2021. Um, your Pepsi bottlers should be carrying this. They tend to carry all the innovation, um, other than that one that I mentioned that's only on the west side of the country. We will also be offering all of these items that I mentioned on purchase power in Q1 for $2 off a rebate. So um, if you're part of the, the um, RSA group with USG, there's purchase power $2 off. Um, so with that, I don't know if, if we should just roll right into Shelly or do you want to take questions in between? I believe we have a half an hour, right? So yeah, maybe we'll just keep rolling here and we'll come back for questions for all of you at the end. Does that work for you? Okay, perfect. Yep, that works great. So what we'll do is uh, Shelly will go ahead and she'll um, take it over and talk about the Frito. Okay. Right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to 2021. Hey. Yay! <laughs> so with most of us, we've been doing a little extra snacking during COVID-19. And then actually 53% of us have been doing a little bit more snacking. And what we're becoming more snacking is, is with flavors. So flavors and intense flavors are being consumed seven times more in potato and tortilla chips than in the previous year. And if you think about it, we have been seeing spicy grow within the last two years, but this year was really the big wow factor on how many people are really looking for that intense flavor. So not only are we becoming a nation who loves flavors, but we're becoming a nation who loves intense and spicy flavors. So today what I kind of wanted to talk a little bit is about the importance of adding some intense flavors into your vending machines. The demand for intense and spicy flavors is broad reaching and is on the rise. The snacks, spicy snacks is actually outpacing regular tortilla chips and regular potato chips by three share points, which is a lot. And really with no signs of slowing down. So if we're looking at it with growth over 7% and 90% of consumers, which if you think about it is one in four, are now purchasing and eating more spicy foods than ever. So the question then comes in, you know, is what does that really mean for vending? Well, that means that if we start adding in intensive and spicy flavors into your vending machine, we're gonna start capturing that consumer that is really kind of looking for that and kind of bringing a little bit of life to your vending lineup. I know Scott talked about this earlier about innovation in vending and how it kind of brings excitement. And that's what spicy and intense flavors do also. So, you know, pulsing in flavors, and, it, and let me explain, flavors with spicy and intense don't just necessarily mean hot, they mean flavors. You could have a dill pickle is a flavor, right? A hickory barbecue is a flavor. So all of these flavor profiles are starting to come out and are, on the grow, and are growing. So 
when you start adding a little bit of this in, like just as well as with beverage, it starts bringing excitement to the vending machine. People spend a few more minutes looking at the vending machine and it really gives them um, an opportunity to keep coming back to the vending machine. Now, in no way am I saying, hey, replace a classic Lay's or a Doritos nacho. But we all know in your vending machine, you have maybe two, maybe three items that are really low performance. And those are really the SKUs and the items that we're looking for to maybe change it up a little bit, take them out and put in some intense or spicy flavors and kind of see what works best. So some of the top intense flavors that I would suggest would be Cheetos Flaming Hot. That's number one. So if you were to take only one item across um, and say, hey, I'm gonna pull out my lowest item and I'm only gonna replace one, I would definitely replace it with Cheetos Flaming Hot. And some other items that would be also really good, but you need, uh, would be Miss Vicky's Jalapeno, Doritos Flaming Hot, maybe a Munchies Hot Mix, a Lay's Jalapeno and Cheddar, uh, Dill Pickle, and Wavy's Barbecue. So really something with a lot of more flavor. And that really um, will be able to gauge and get excitement to your vending machine. So there's a lot of different options that you can use with that. And a lot of the flavors that we see growing are really kind of regional. So what I would do is make sure you're either talking to your local distributor, connecting with them, or your Frito-Lay representative and kind of really see what intense flavors and spicy flavors are really hot in your market and try to switch them out and see where we can kind of go from there. So unfortunately, um, we don't have all the samples to taste, but virtually you can just see it in your head, all the great flavors, and then we'll definitely be able to check it out next year when we have some time to taste together. So that's uh, really what I have. And then we can open it up for questions for Scott and myself and Doug. All right, do we, do we have any uh, folks with a question? Um, I, I do want to add something quick here, and, uh, more to Scott, but both to all of you for sure. Um, with COVID, it seems like a lot of the supply chain has been disrupted. Uh, with, with PepsiCo, when I'm placing orders, I don't hear we're out of stock in that item. We can't get that item. That's not been an experience I've had with you. So kudos to you folks. I don't know how you did it, but that, that's pretty impressive. I would just like to echo that, uh, Scott. Is you know, I was in the vending for 20 years, and my local representative here was the one that really sold me on PepsiCo products. He was there to help me out, and I learned an awful lot from him. And from Scott and Doug's predecessors, they continued that uh, along. PepsiCo has been nothing but uh, my mentor, always through the process up until I retired a year and a half ago from the vending industry. And I'm uh, just as a footnote, Scott, um, my son-in-law, he helped me out on the last few years of my vending route. He is now currently a driver for PepsiCo and he just received a couple of awards for the Midwest region. Thank you much. 
That's awesome. I'm sure that's what Scott's trying to say, being on mute. Oh. <laughs> there I go again. Okay. I, I said, I said, that's great. I said, um, tell him congratulations. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. He, I think he's continuing along the, the trend of my, my original sales rep, Ted Jose, many years ago. And Ted was just fantastic uh, rep and he just helped me out so much. And uh, my son-in-law worked with me for a number of years and uh, I think he's following suit with his customer service attitude toward and, and PepsiCo just has a tradition of treating all the people. Uh, David Ward out of Louisiana, fantastic. You, you guys got the top product, but you still sell the product. You don't let the product sell itself. And that's always impressed me. Thank you. No, you're welcome. And thank you for the compliments. I mean, traditionally as manufacturers, a lot of times we just hear all the bad, right? And we have tripped up through COVID with not being able to get some products and production and things like that. But I uh, appreciate you guys um, emphasizing some of the positives. Thank you. Absolutely. Do we have any questions on the line? We do have one from the attendee side, Stuart Boggs. PepsiCo has this competitor that is looking at rebottling in maybe a paper form um, I, I've seen this on the news, and I don't know how widespread and how close it is, but there was talk about bottling their products in a paper bottle with a screw lid. I would think that that would not hold carbonation very well, but may vend a lot better for some products. Does Pepsi have any innovations in their bottling processes in the future that you know of? Yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> it's a very great question. Yeah, so, um, I mean, we are constantly looking at being more green when it comes to packaging and things like that. Um, I know some of our objectives are to become 100% um, recyclable plastic. I mean, some of the plastic that we're using is recycled is not 100% recyclable. I know we're, we're constantly looking at innovation to be more um, earth-friendly when it comes to packaging. As far as paper packaging or cardboard packaging holding carbonated beverages, um, I'm not aware of that. I mean, I'm sure there's things that we may be working on. I could try and get a follow-up answer to that to see um, if there is something in, down those lines that we're working on. I, it was just a general question. I, I, I don't, you know, need any, any follow-up, but I was just, uh, I was just curious what kind of innovations were out there for uh, for PepsiCo. Yeah, yeah, we're we're very focused on, you know, making greener packaging, right? Stuff that's biodegradable, stuff that's recyclable. Um, you know, uh, we're constantly doing that and getting more and more into that. I mean, it's only the right thing to do. So um, we're going to continue to do that. I know that, that some of these uh, products might vend better, not necessarily out of a drink machine, but let's say out of an elevator machine. Uh, some of our vendors sell Starbucks products in their elevator machines, and as they, as they vend into the elevator and down to the customer, it can be a rough travel. Um, so that, that, that was something that I was thinking of. Maybe, maybe in the future that might become a little easier with packaging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think on the equipment front too, we're constantly looking to, um, you know, get the best, most reliable 
best delivery system for our glass front vendors out there. Um, we're constantly looking at innovation that the uh, equipment manufacturers are producing, as well as um, even doing some production of equipment ourselves or testing of equipment ourselves. Um, so, yeah, that's, again, something we're constantly trying to be better at. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Well, fantastic. I, I, I can't thank you folks enough from Pepsi. Uh, thank you for being our Leopard sponsor. We really appreciate that. And uh, every year I look forward to hearing what's new from Pepsi. And I can't wait to shake your hand next year. Hopefully we can still shake hands again, but uh, <laughs> looking forward to it and looking forward to being in some warm sunshine. All right. Thanks a lot, everyone. We really appreciate uh, you having us as part of your sagebrush again. We'll look forward to seeing you next year. Well, thank you. Thank you, Scott. And did another excellent job of beaming us up again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, everyone. Yep. Thank you. So um, let's move on to our three o'clock session and uh, how to successfully use the RS-15 form. Uh, Kathy wrote uh, from Iowa, the uh, administrator for the Iowa Department for the Blind. Hi, Scott. Yeah, hi, welcome. Thanks for coming in. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for the introduction. Yes, Kathy. Hi, Dan. Well, thank you. And thanks for all the participants who are hanging on for a report. Um, hopefully we'll make it uh, exciting and find a way to make it valuable to you. My goal is to allow several minutes at the end um, for questions and to start with at least 20 minutes in which I'll define and cover at a really high level the eight sections of the RSA 15 report, share how the RSA 15 can be used to help blind vendors and the program. It's not just for not, there's a real purpose and useful for us, and highlight parts that are easy to misunderstand. Um, by the way, this is my first year that I did it by myself and I've seen it happen before. So this, um, I asked a lot of questions. Uh, Terry Smith is a person who gave me a lot of answers and um, I hope that some of this will be useful to you, especially if you're uh, on the elected committee and wondering what is this about. So what is the RSA 15? It's a once a year report, which is like an umbrella, collecting data on all the vending facilities managed and operated by the SLAs under the Randolph Shepard Act. It's due on December 30th, the middle of the holidays when all other reports are also due, and it is submitted electronically. It covers the most recent federal fiscal year. So that runs October 1st through September 30th each year. And to make it valuable, the information really needs to be consistent. So we're measuring apples to apples, both within our own organizations and across states. Um, it is helpful, I have found, to use the most current instructions, which for the 2020 version were the 2014 instructions, and I did pass those on to artists in case anybody else needs them. So, big question to make you stay on, why take time to accurately gather data, and what does this matter to you? I asked Jesse Hartle this morning, a program manager with RSA, for a nugget to share with you. He said, RSA 15 is an important guide for state BEP programs. You cannot set goals for the future of your program without understanding the past performance of the program. It can then be used to measure progress at meeting program goals. The information should be shared with the vendors in the state as they are partners in meeting planned goals. And I just really wanna agree with that. Um, from my business background, I find it's very helpful to compare my own state's program 
to itself year after year. That helps navigate the waters so you know where you are and where you're ebbing and flowing. And then the value at looking at other states is to pique curiosity and interest about possibilities that might work even better. You're finding out this other state's doing something that's really working, what is it? And then you can see whether that's scalable to your um, facilities as well. I am so glad you're here because if you have um, any needs to work with this program, uh, if you're on the elected committee, this is something that you wanna know about. And by finding, I found that it's helpful to know what kinds of data are being asked so that I can plan for that and pay attention to it throughout the year. And that will help the SLA and the ECBV, the Elected Committee of Blind Vendors, in case you use a different acronym, um, monitor the program's health. It helps you avoid surprises and it helps you be intentional about healthy choices for the program. Um, knowing what's on the RSA at the beginning of the year helps you look for and encourage reporting throughout the year and keep a running track of it. I found it's really helpful that I have an Excel file and I can track all the training and all the sites we've visited and, and much data so that when it comes crunch time around Christmas and the holidays, um, we are not scrambling for data. The purpose of the Randolph Shepherd, if we can all agree, is to generate financial independence and maximize potential, right? Some sections of this report form mimic data that employers in the private sector use that they keep, um, it helps them, it helps prepare vendors for future roles within the business enterprises program or out on their own with anything else that they plan to do as an entrepreneurial business. It gets them ready. Other sections help um, our vendors and, and us as an organization identify trends. How prepared are we? What about growth? Are we shrinking? How are we doing on professional development? And it gives you a barometer of your health regarding the funds that are available to you and the investment that you've been making into the program and identifies where there may be gaps or strengths. Involving the elected committee is so important in doing this in following, helping them also follow and compare year over year figures. When they can help identify trends, then you're working together to move the dial towards your desired outcomes. As I mentioned before, there are eight sections. We're gonna spend most of the time on a few of them. Um, and I wanna, can I do a hand raise real quick? If I don't know how to do that, but if I can ask if who's here as yeah, a military- Tyson, can, we, can we get a hand with that? Um, go ahead and ask and yep. we'll get a report from Tyson here. You should be able to do that. How, right many of, how many, thanks Tyson. How many of you have military troop dining facilities? Give it a second. Takes a few for it to tally. And while we're, while it's tallying, I'll just go ahead and mention that the military troop that dining facilities are recorded in um, for RSA purposes, like any other vending facility, regardless of whether you're using a teaming partner or whether those are vendors operating it. Well, we have uh, five hands raised. Okay. I, I will mention it a little bit, but I, if I'm running short on time, I might not, but I want to let you know that uh, there are special things you want to read about uh, as it relates to military vending. So in section one, earnings and employment, this is important for everybody to pay attention to. Um, in Iowa, our, our vendors are reporting this on monthly reports. And it the gross sales in line one should just reflect the facilities actually operated by vendors. No full service vending or third party, co party contracts are recorded here. That's later on under line eight. Um, it does count if you have a temporary operation running, like a holiday or something. 
uh, and it should reflect the total amount of money sold. So for those with military contracts, that is the total gross amount collected from the government. If you had $98,000 million in sales, that's what you put here, not the smaller figure of 1.5 billion, million, sorry, which was billion, <laughs> million dollars that the blind vendors actually take home. Um, the second one that is important is line two, merchandise purchases. And I totally would have gotten this wrong had these instructions not been here. To do this right, it really requires at least an annual physical inventory. And in some cases for the health of the organization, weekly or monthly might be appropriate, but uh, it is based on the cost of merchandise. And the way you get it is you start with the total value of the inventory on hand at the beginning of the year, which is October 1st, add the dollar amount at cost of goods purchases during the year, and then subtract the total amount, total value of the goods that you have at the end of the year. And that is a proper way to um, address the merchandise purchases for your year. And that was the case even when I was in private industry. Um, if a military contractor or vendor purchases food supplies as part of the contract, that does get counted in those costs. And I'm just gonna skip through some of these that I think are easily misunderstood or very important. Um, payroll expenses. I've noticed some vendors don't record payroll. They might be using friends or neighbors. And I just ask you to pay attention to that regarding vendor health. Some vendors inflate their net earnings by not paying payroll. And that's unfortunate because it artificially inflates the payroll and it might have them relying on family and friends and giving them less autonomy in their business. So um, just do pay attention to whether what people are doing as you um, determine later on their total net profits. Line eight in section one has vending machine and other income. And that is where you would put the full service and third party vending commissions, um, subsidies, rebates, and other sources of income other than fair minimum return. And in line nine, you put retirement and other benefit, benefits paid to vendors. And just an awareness again, especially if you're looking at other states or comparing you to private years, past years where you may not have had benefits that you were able to offer. Um, this does is included in average income, so it kind of inflates net income. But uh, you do want to record any indirect or direct fringe benefits um, that are paid to vendors here. And then, of course, we have net proceeds. That is in line 10, something we really want to know about, operating profit plus the income from vending machines and other sources. Uh, something interesting about the levied set-aside funds, not every state does this, but we do. Line 11 should reflect the actual collected set-aside funds as of October 1st. And that is where your accounting department's gonna come in handy because I have the report that the vendor said they sent in and what, vend and what our CFO told me was a totally different number. So you have to be not what's due, but what has been collected from October to September 31st. October 1st to September 30th. And that is, remember, the fiscal year, not the calendar year. We have net profit, fair minimum return. A cut, uh, the next lines are really important to pay attention to. Vendor earnings, line 14. This is one of the most important financial data elements in the financial statement. It's equal net, it equals net profit to vendors plus fair minimum return. And the tip I have here is that the way you would think you'd calculate 
vendor person years of employment on line 15 is not the way it works. So when I heard that first time, I thought Joe has been a vendor for nine years, Sally for three years, my Keisha for 15 years. That average is nine years. That is not correct. So the way you calculate it is you add the number of months that each vendor worked um, and then divide that by 12. So um, for the, that would mean that Joe worked 12 months, Sally worked six months, Mykeisha worked nine months. That gives us um, divided by 12 is a total of 2.25 vendor years. And that is the number that you use when you're trying to um, calculate the vendor average earnings and median average earnings. I didn't say that right, sorry. Um, the average vendor earnings on line 16 um, determines the average income. And so you wanna have um, that net income divided by the number you calculated for the vendor years. Sorry, that's confusing. Um, next is the median of vendor earnings. And that's an important one because it lets you know where on the dial most of your vendors are operating. Are they a whole bunch of them making a lot of money and just a few making a little, or are a lot of folks struggling? There's a couple rock stars out there. And knowing both of those figures together will help you estimate where you need to go help folks and where who you wanna look at for um, examples. Lines 18, 19, and 20 are ones that we just ask at the annual meeting, and I think that we might change how we do that now that I take a look at that. Apparently, in Randolph-Shepard, we have been criticized nationally for not, in, not employing people with disabilities and blind persons. That's our mission. <laughs> so um, Ability One, I understand, who we're going to start partnering with, has like 70% of dis people with disabilities, and I think one of the missing elements for a lot of SLAs and vendors is that this figure counts diabetics and non-obvious disabilities that you may not guess are a disability. So um, invite your employees to use self-declaration, or if you know that someone has a disability, to mention that to your SLA so it can be included here and reflect truly how well we are supporting um, vendors with and people in general with disabilities. Um, that takes us out of that section and we're going to move on to, sorry, I'm trying to use the actual form here, vending facilities and vendors. Um, this was also a, a curiosity to me when we talk about a facility, it is the total number of sites that is included in a person's operation. It might be one building, it might be many, but altogether a vending route would be considered um, one facility. And in this report, it's really good to look through this section because there are so many different categories of um, types of operations. But in general, you're going to, you want to know about federal, state, and then municipalities. And the way you calculate, if you have 15 different buildings, you take a look at which ones um, generate the greatest income for you. And that would be your anchor, so to speak. And that, that's how you would categorize it. So if most of your money comes from a postal service, then that's considered federal and you would be a federal facility. Again, something good to note throughout the year and for vendors to kind of get a feel for that themselves. Um, in section B, just review it. There's GSA, USPS, Department of Defense and all kinds of subcategories 
that you just might as well know up front and make sure that that is being recorded um, as the locations, as you record locations for vendors. Slow scrolling here. Military dining facilities are in included in this category as well. Number three is vending locations under the interstate highway program. And this is totally varies from department, from state to state. In Iowa, every single rest area is covered by an independent um, vending operator. And then in other states, they use third parties so that they can get the revenues from it. And it, I don't think there's a right or wrong way, but this information is very important to show that this legislation is valuable. And if you don't include those numbers, um, then we may not be, we may not get to keep the highway program one day down the road. So it's just important from that perspective. Section four, give a big star by this one. This is program expenditures by source of funds. And for this part, um, this is reflects sources of funding that you have. There are four different ones. I'm not gonna go through them, but the part that's important to you to know is the kinds of ways that you have to code it when it comes in. Um, purchase of new equipment. I was thinking, yes, we're buying all sorts of new equipment and it goes under this line one. No, it doesn't. Um, if it is made in 2021, it doesn't consider, it's not counted as new equipment unless it's going into a brand spanking new facility um, or it is a, maybe I used to have a bank of three machines and now I'm adding a fourth machine and that is a new to the operation. Or you're going from vending to a micro market. That's a new concept. So that equipment would be new. And that's what line one is. Line three, replacement of equipment. That might be your brand new machine, but it's replacing another machine that broke down or became obsolete. Um, so if you're a vendor or in the SLA, just to try and keep that straight and help um, everyone keep track of those correctly. Management services fall in here, minimum fair return, uh, retirement and pension, lots of different categories. And then we come to the next one that's very important. Um, district number five, distribution and expenditure of program funds from vending machine income and levied set aside. So how the funds that have been previously recorded as collected are being used or banked for your program. I know that a lot of um, states who had that this money set aside in this fund, this area used it to help out vendors during COVID. Um, and then some states said, whoa, we're, we, this, we depend on this for our new equipment revenues and we're gonna hang on to it. So whichever way you're doing it, this is for accountability purposes on how you use and expend the funds that um, come from vending machine income and levied set aside. Number six, number of sites surveyed. This has a two-pronged benefit to you as an operation. First, um, it gives you uh, a, an idea, especially compared to past years, how are we doing at expanding our program? Where are we looking? Are, are, there, um, are we fully using all the opportunities we have within um, our priorities to reach out and build business? And that's so important, especially during COVID. How do we figure out what the best moves are? The second question is to ask yourself, what's our reputation? One of the questions here is which ones have you been denied? And it could be you're, you've been denied because they didn't know about it. 
it could be denied because they're being jerks and hopefully that's not the case. But the other reason it could be, people could be deny you is if your brand is not great, if you don't have a good reputation. So are you, is your brand operating at a high um, creative level? That PepsiCo pr presentation we just had talked about innovation. Are you the standard for all the other vending operations, private or public in, um, in your state? And if you're not, then what can we do to get that brand up? Because when it comes time to going for legislation and wanting to make changes, we want people to say, yes, by all means, we want to get you in here. You're the best. So anyway, that's how I'm going to plan to use it. I do want to note that a site survey requires an on-site visit and a consultation with the SLA and the management property. Um, it doesn't mean you get to just drive by and walk in and say, gee, this would be a great site. Uh, you do have to make that connection. <laughs> Um, oh, Kathy, have we covered about everything you would like to cover here? We're, we're... I'm very close. Do I okay. have nine minutes altogether left? Okay. Um, two, we have vendor training. Well, I mean, section seven is vendor training. And then I'll, I'll kind of combine section eight talks about state and nominee agency personnel. And um, just... Training is so important and it's one of the requirements of the elected committee of line vendors to work together with the SLA to elevate the skill sets and the potential of vendors. Some um, states only record things that have been certified and others record the one hour sexual harassment training that you did in an in-service um, program. So that does vary from state to state, but just to have it in there is very important and to make sure that your employees on the SLA side are getting that same training so that they're qualified to be consultants to the vendors. And then the last box is there is an area at the back at the end for you to be able to say um, anything you want that is related to this report that wasn't showing up there. And so COVID, the Iowa derecho, those kinds of things would be included there. And now I'm done. Okay. <laughs> well, great. There's, there's so many things, Kathy, that you and I could talk about. Um, so I'm going to ask if there's questions from the audience. And while Tyson's lining those up, um, one of the first things I heard, and I'm, I'm trying to totally understand it, when you talked about what you're designated as if you're a federal facility or a state facility. Mm -hmm. So if I give you an example of, so I have, and I don't have this on my route, but if I had a number of state buildings, but yet the biggest piece was this federal post office, then it would be declared as a federal facility? Yes. Okay. Okay. Great question. Yes. Tyson, do we have any questions lined up? Or if you, if you are really experienced and you have something that you want to share also, um, that would be welcome. Yep. Okay, Trevor, go ahead with your question. So I, quick question, uh, kind of to add to Scott's question is, so as I understand it, then it would be a pie graph. It's, and you wouldn't have to draw a pie graph, but essentially whatever your biggest, highest selling area is, that's what you would list, would be listed on the, uh, on the, yes. Yes, yes for you as an individual vendor. So each vendor will be different. So it'll say how many vendors have federal facilities. And that would mean if I said three, that means that three of our vendors on that pie of all this revenue that they got, the biggest chunk of that is going to be federal, just like you said. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, Kathy? Yes. Um, just one footnote on you know, the line about um, where we employ 
of uh, individuals with other disabilities. Just a, a thought that where I had extreme good success, um, I primarily um, hired retired government um, bureaucrats since I was a huh. former bureaucrat myself. And mm -hmm. many of those had, uh, you know, people think we in the blind community think of disability being blind. No, there are dozens and dozens of <laughs> types of disability. And I've had extreme um, success with people that have heart transplants or aortic valve uh, replacements. Um, and I've had several with um, mental illness, but they mm -hmm. could control it with medication that they still maintain a driver's license. The driver's license was critical. It's what I had to have, driver's license. And the issue is you could not request them or expect them to work 100% 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week. You had to be flexible with, um, with the mental illness issue. And, even, and sometimes even with the heart transplant or the uh, aortic valve transplant, you know, there's, there's doctor's appointments they had to maintain, but they they had to give up their other employment because of their current disability. Mm -hmm. And they could not work uh, what we call a standard work week. And yep. they were the most fantastic people I've ever had. And um, it's just that I think a lot of people, probably half some of those on staff, the other disabilities, they're just not aware of it. Yes. And that, you know, that might be a great training opportunity to have someone come in who can explain what's considered a disability and how and when do you ask about that and uh, and just anything else you need to know about that. Because I think fear stops people. And also, like you said, ignorance, if you don't know um, right. what could be right. considered. Thanks, Dan. Dan. This is Dan, S-I-P-P-L. He sounds right. like a great resource. Yeah. S-I-P-P-L. P is in... P is poor, poor state employee, <laughs> <laughs> and there's no no e on it, no e, no m and no e on it. <laughs> is there anything I haven't covered that people have questions about um, that that we could send out information later? Uh, that I'm not sure, and we'd have to ask out amongst the group. But uh, I I can only speak for myself. Um, as we look at our summer convention or our fall convention, I'd love to to uh, drill down into this just a little bit more because you you sparked some things that have really got me thinking but we don't have time in this forum to talk deeper about them but uh would you be open to doing another little presentation where we could go a little oh. deeper down the road i'd love it okay and Perfect. thank you for the Perfect. possibility and yeah. um i did i did send to artists um the pete the Word document that had the instructions from 2014 that are still current. They might okay. change, you know, but right. if anybody needs those and they're operating from ones that are older than that, this was really a helpful. RSA did a great job um, delineating those instructions. Yes, well, it's, it's always been important for us to know these things, but I would say in this day and age, it's even more important that we as operators learn more about what is in that form and what it means in the bigger picture for our, our whole program. Information is power. Yeah. And that's what this gives you. And from all these things, the webinars I've heard, we have to be nimble and able to turn on a dime and identify our weaknesses and move on it. Yep. And if we don't know where we are, we can't do anything. We're right. just beholden. So thank you for the and, time. To and talk we about know this. what happened to the dinosaurs. So, yep. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, thank you, Kathy. Thank you so very much. And this has been a great presentation and I'm looking forward to hearing more later. Great. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you, Kathy. All right. Uh, do we have uh, well, Barry. phone service? Yeah. Oh. Hello. Oh, oh, well, 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 I hope everybody is staying warmer than we are. And uh, <laughs> so I did just for everybody. We, we, we made it above zero here in Wisconsin today. <laughs> well, it just just to rub it, it's 58 degrees in Las Vegas. So, for there was any other uh, reason, oh. <laughs> I know we'd so all rather be there. Not missing as much, not being there. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate uh, appreciate y'all having us. I've been told I have about five minutes, so I've try, I'm trying to condense my 30 minute uh, speech into a five minute. Time <laughs> Uh, but thanks for joining us. Go ahead, got the floor. You actually Absolutely. have ten minutes, so <laughs> okay. Well, uh, <laughs> I can fill it. Uh, we are very much appreciate uh, being a sponsor of Sagebrush. Uh, I'm uh, Walt Berry, Southern Food Service Management. I'm the president of Southern Food Service Management, and uh, we are a Randolph Shepherd teaming partner. Uh, we have been a sponsor of Sagebrush. Uh, Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's we're coming up on probably about 20 years. At uh, least, at least. Uh, of being a sponsor and uh, a proud sponsor. And uh, we always enjoy this conference every year. And um, we uh, look forward to getting back to Vegas next year. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as I mentioned, uh, just give you a brief history of Southern Food Service Management. We are uh, a food service contractor, and we have been in business uh, since 1952. Uh, and it, but prior to that, we were a division of a company that had been founded in the 1915-1916 timeframe. So um, we're we've been in continuous operation for over 100 years, and. The uh, contract division was spun off in 1952 uh, and had started with some uh, Navy contracts for the Department of Defense in 1940s, during the war, actually. Um, and uh, then that uh, spilled over into some GSA contracts and other federal agency contracts. And uh, then from there, they also moved into the private sector and started uh, uh, performing food service contracts for a private industry that had employee dining uh, facilities and feeding people in the at-work environment. And today, those two divisions uh, still make up 80% uh, of our business. Now, we also operate in a, we have a, a schools division um, which operates about a dozen school districts. And we also have a sports uh, and leisure uh, division. We operate uh, three football stadiums. And we also have a convention. We operate some convention centers uh, also uh, in a, a catering division. So, uh, but as I mentioned, uh, Department of Defense and uh, or mil uh, government in general, uh, and private uh, business dining make up 80% of our business. Uh, 
And we are unique among teaming partners that I know of, at least that uh, will team on uh, the government office space and government office buildings and um, perform at work dining. And that's, that's kind of our specialty uh, in our private sector business. Um, and we, you know, we have approximately uh, 60 contracts in the private sector um, in, uh, in office space and factories um, feeding people at work. Um, we do uh, also have about uh, 15 to 20 uh, contract government office space contracts um, or other types of, uh, there is actually some manufacturing that the government owns, little known fact there. And we operate the dining services in a couple of government uh, manufacturing facilities. Um, and in you know the majority of those, uh, with with a few exceptions, the majority of those are in teaming partnerships uh, with uh, the the different state licensing agencies. So we are uh, we have the ability to operate nationally in scope. We have contract. We're based out of Birmingham, Alabama, uh, but we are we're believe it or not, it's twenty some twenty two degrees right now. Still in the low twenties, but. Uh, we operate in, in uh, California, Colorado, New Mexico, um, and you know we will we can team on uh, contracts just about just about anywhere in the country. So uh, we're currently in 19 states uh, that we operate in, and um, we have about 15 teaming parts. Uh, uh, teaming partnerships that we operate for. So, um, or, or I'm sorry, state licensing agencies um, that we operate. And in a lot of those states, we have multiple contracts uh, with different teaming partners or licensed blind vendors. Uh, our philosophy uh, has, is, uh, you know, focusing on the two words of teaming partner. We're a team and we're partners. And we approach every teaming partnership um, with that mindset. And we uh, loop every blind vendor in on, on decisions, on daily operations. Uh, we work as a partnership. And uh, all, of our, all of our blind vendors uh, are very involved. Um, we, we train if necessary. Um, and we you know, work with each blind vendor to determine which, you know, what areas they want to focus on and concentrate on and uh, contribute to. And um, we just love being uh, in this role and being a part of the Randolph Shepherd community. And we look forward to many, many years. <clears throat> well, um, how, that, I, that, that sounds wonderful. Um, Unfortunately, we're out of time right now, but I really want to thank you on behalf of RSBA and the whole Sagebrush crew um, for sponsoring um, this year and all your years in the past. Um, we, we do have your information up on our website, so if people have any questions, I'm sure they can feel free to reach out to you directly or one of your colleagues. Okay, yes. That's, that's terrific. Thank you so much for coming on live and doing your presentation. Well, thank you for having me.
Thank you, Walt. Thank you for your continued support. Thank you much. Thank you. Um, so hi, folks. This is Karen Blackwitz. And yes, I'm back. Um, <laughs> little crisis sometimes. Um, next up, we have uh, Debbie Green, who is a retired rehabilitation counselor. And she's going to be giving us a presentation. And then we're going to open it up for some questions. So Debbie, you were a rehabilitation counselor. Um, where, where are you located? Tell us about yourself. And, sure. and you can start your presentation. Okay, thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me to be here. I am actually in Kentucky. And that's where I had my career. I was a rehabilitation counselor and supervisor for 20 plus years. Um, loved it. Um, and what, what I, what I uh, want to do here today is just to talk a little bit about those, my experience, um, and how that might relate to what's, you know, to, to the vendors. Um, this has been a, a kind of a crazy year for everybody um, and a lot of a lot of um, bad things have happened for people people have lost loved ones and of course I think small businesses has been have been hurt um, as much as any anybody in the in our um, in our nation and of course that includes uh, the vending operations um, but what I want to do is is talk about a couple uh, principles here um, that I think would be real beneficial to keep in mind as as we are working with our rehab counselors um, that you know going forward. And then at the end, I want to tell some stories um, that I think will illustrate the things that I'm talking about. Um, I think the first I've got six principles. I think that really will be important to keep in mind. The first, the first one is clear communication. Now, all of these are things that really have to, really do relate to uh, just life in general, uh, but absolutely in this scenario. It's really important when you're talking to your, uh, to your counselor or your agency representative that you're very clear on, on what it is that you, uh, what you need. And that would seem initially like a no brainer, but sometimes it's real important that you step back and do some soul searching yourself so that you know exactly what it is that you need. It may not always be as obvious um, as, as it would appear on the surface. And then maybe processing that with someone, maybe even taking some notes so that when you have opportunity to have that, those conversations uh, with, the, with uh, the rehab agency personnel, that you absolutely are very clear on what it is you feel like you need. So clear communication. A second, a second piece to that is um, good listening. Um, we in the field call it active listening because as you know, um, listening uh, takes energy <laughs> and takes concentration um, and that needs to happen then on both sides from uh, the counselor's perspective, but and also from uh, the consumer's perspective that both, both people are listening um, and hearing exactly what's being said. Um, it might involve uh, asking questions to be sure that you're getting, um, you're getting the right information and you're hearing correctly. Could be questions like, so 
you could say something like, so what you mean is, and then kind of restate what you just heard to be sure you're hearing it correctly. Maybe uh, it's something like this. Okay, um, I think I got that. Will you tell me some more? Um, the next, you know, could be something like is, um, so what do you imagine would happen after that? You know, just again, to, to stimulate good conversation to make sure you're hearing things correctly. Um, and even something like, I'm not sure I understand. Would you, would you tell me more? So it's important that you're, that you're communicating clearly, but also that you're hearing what's being said. So a third, a third thing that, that we need to um, absolutely keep in mind is um, having respect for each other as, as the consumer and the counselor are talking, being respectful uh, for the, uh, to, to each other during that conversation. Um, and, and again, that's, that goes two ways. Um, the counselors are, as you probably know, are sometimes limited in what they can do. I know when I was a counselor, I was given a budget. Um, that money was, was uh, federal a combination often of federal and state tax money. Uh, I was, I was very, um, it was very clear <laughs> how I was allowed to spend that money. And there were lots of times that I felt very conflicted because I, I wanted to really do more than what I was allowed to do. Um, and, and if I spent money that was, um, inappropriate, that's called uh, um, um, a misappropriation of funds. <laughs> and that could get me and the agency in a lot of trouble. So being respectful of that, um, I think is really important. Here's the thing, uh, typically, at least for in my scenario, I wanted my people to be successful, even more sometimes than I think they wanted to be successful. <laughs> so we really were on the same page in that regard. Um, uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's really important to just to keep that in mind that I wanted, I wanted them to be uh, successful and, and we really did have, we really did have the same goal. Um, so that's, that is a, the third thing is just being respectful of each other and understanding, you know, at the end of a year, uh, when I sat down for uh, with my supervisor and had my uh, annual evaluation, I was evaluated on how many people I was able to help. Um, and so I was absolutely all in on wanting to help as many people as I could. Um, the, fourth, the fourth thing I want to point out is just being cooperative. I think it's real important that both people, the counselor as well as uh, the consumer are um, are cooperative with, with each other. Often there is information that needs to be gathered or exchanged. Um, some uh, and sometimes I, I thought of the example of of uh, you know maybe the maybe the agency needs a, an updated eye exam. Okay, so the counselor would say, uh, would you would you uh, make that appointment? Uh, we can pay for it, but you need to get back with me. 
and let me know when that is. And then if, if the consumer doesn't get back and um, that communication breaks down, uh, then, then everybody kind of feels frustrated with everybody, but it's, it's, that, it's that people haven't followed up. Sometimes, sometimes it absolutely is the counselor that's not following through. And I think it's totally appropriate at that point uh, in, in the spirit of cooperation, you know, for the consumer to make that phone call, you know, and say to, to the agency representative, I was, I was expecting to hear back from you, um, just checking in, uh, or what progress are we making here? Is there anything I can do to help? So that's part of, part of the uh, being cooperative uh, with each other in the process. A fifth thing that uh, I think is really important is being flexible. Sometimes things don't always go the way we have them planned. Um, and, and often um, that's a, a source of frustration, but you know, sometimes that turns out to be a good thing. <laughs> um, I, I had an example of that in my personal life here and back in probably about, well, it was about a year ago, February of 2020, our city here, Elizabethtown, um, threw out a challenge um, for people to see if they could, would, could walk a thousand miles in 2020, walk or run. And I thought, okay, I can do that. I'm not running as much these days, but I certainly am good with walking. So I signed up for it, first of February. And um, had a friend, a couple I was going to the gym with and was accruing miles. And of course, by the middle of March, then everything got shut down. Okay, talk about being flexible. <laughs> so I wasn't sure. There was seemed to be no communication whether the city was going to continue with this or not. But as I added up my miles, I realized I had already put in 150 miles. And to me, that was too far in to back out. And so I just thought I was going to keep rolling with it and uh, saw some news stories and was encouraged to just continue walking, but I couldn't walk outside. It was winter, couldn't go to the gym. So I kind of rearranged some furniture and uh, fixed a place here in my home where I could do some, where I could do some major walking and, and continued to do that. When the weather got nice, I was able to walk in my neighborhood. And, and then by, by winter again, I, I figured out, you know, that my gym, my gym people were going to actually be accommodating, and if if I walked in, they would get me situated on a treadmill, and I could keep rolling. Um, so it was just um, I learned a lot through that, but it's just an example of of how sometimes things turn out differently uh, and go in a different direction, uh, and it's real important to to mentally be flexible. Um, and yes, I did get my thousand miles in. <laughs> so what happens sometimes uh, in, in this scenario here is it's really important to maintain that, that mental flexibility so that you know, if, if you're continuing to be uh, successful and you can still have a business as a vendor, you know, that's absolutely, that's fabulous. There might be times though that it's, um, it's not possible or that there might be a better option. Um, so it's, I, I just want to encourage, encourage people to, 
don't necessarily rule things out. You know, your, your counselor might say, might make a suggestion. Have you ever thought of make that going in a different direction career-wise? Um, would you be willing to get some more training and do something a little different so you can maintain a, uh, your income at a high level? Um, I think our first tendency is to just is to just turn that down and say absolutely not. But I would just like to encourage you to to don't rule it out initially. To uh, give yourself some time to think it through. And, and just to say, you know what, that's not the direction I really had thought about going, but let me give it some thought and let me get back with you. And give yourself, um, give yourself the freedom to have that kind of flexibility so that, so that if, if there is an opportunity to go in a different direction, you're not, you're not gonna lock yourself in. Uh, so being flexible uh, is, is an important piece. Um, I think the, the last thing I want to the principle here is, is being grateful. Um, we all know how really important that is. You know how good it feels when someone uh, is appreciative of something you did, when someone says thank you. We know how important it is in our homes, in with our spouse, <laughs> to show uh, appreciation, to say, you know, thank you so much, honey, that was a good meal, or you know, thank you for picking up your dirty socks. I, uh, you know, or to your kids. You know, we know how much uh, uh, it, how much it means for to children when we can affirm them um, and and tell them, uh, give them some words of encouragement. That is um, that is true in our personal lives, in our all of our relationships. It's also true, of course, in our relationship with with the rehab agency and with the counselor. Um, if you have received um, services from them um, in, in any way, I think it's really important, you know, to be appreciative and to, and to say, you know, thank you. Uh, uh, and and it, goes, it goes a long way. So those are the six principles that I think might be really important to keep in, to keep in mind. Um, what I'd like to do here in the last few minutes is just to tell a couple stories of uh, that kind of illustrates this. I had an individual one time, um, of course, blind, he, but he had, he was a diabetic, uh, a serious diabetic and um, had some other complications along with that. But he had told me that he wanted to be a disc jockey. Um, I wasn't sure that that was possible for him, but, but he, he um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to shut it down. So, so I said, you know what? I know that there is a blind disc jockey in Louisville. Um, so I'll tell you what, would you be willing to go with me and talk with him? And, and, um, and my friend said, sure, uh, sure. So we did, got my secretary, drive us to Louisville. We sat down, had a conversation. I had questions, he had questions. You know, we, we had a great conversation and I came away very encouraged thinking, you know what? I, this can happen. This this could work. On the way home in the car, I said to him, "Okay, um, I'm convinced. This we can do this. You know, uh, where, let's let's talk about where do we go from here? Do you, you heard some of the skills that maybe you need to brush up on, and we can do this." And he said, "No, I don't want to do it." And I said, "Well, you can. You could do it." 
And he said, no, I don't want to. I don't want, it's too much work. And, and I was disappointed. <laughs> but I just wanted to tell that story because sometimes that's the way it is from a counselor's perspective that I've, that I felt like there were things um, that I had higher, higher expectations and higher aspirations than, than what my friend did. There was another time when there was an individual who had applied for services. Um, um, and of course, the, the purpose of the agency is to have to help people to, to work, to find work. And, and he, he, he did not seem, after I got to talking with him for a while, that he did not want to work. He wants services from the agency, but he did not want to work. He didn't want to go for job interviews. He didn't want to consider going to school. He, he didn't want to do any of that. But what he did want was for me to pay for him to move from where he was living to, an, uh, to another county. Uh, he wanted me to pay for the deposits on the apartment. Um, and he had a whole list of things that he wanted me to pay for. But again, not consistent with what the, the goal of the agency is. And so I had to tell him, you know, I am sorry, but I am not going to be able to do that. Well, he got pretty angry and he said, well, I'm just going to call your supervisor. And I said, well, uh, that will be fine. I said, do you want to, you want to call from right here? I'll call the number. I always had a good relationship with my supervisors. And sometimes that's appropriate if your counselor is absolutely not performing. Um, but I, I um, he said, no, I'll, I'll call on my own. Gave him the number. And as soon as he left, and I called my supervisor and just gave her a heads up. You're going to be getting a phone call, I think, and this is what it's about. So sure enough, in about uh, in a couple days, I got a phone call back from her that said, uh, yes, he did call me. And uh, yes, he's angry with you. And yes, you're doing the right thing. And no, you can't pay. You can't spend any more money on him. <laughs> um, and she said, and so he is asking that you close his case. And I said, okay, I can do that. Um, but as I did that, I was disappointed um, because I really would have liked, I really, really, really wanted something better for him. Um, and so that was the end of that story. <laughs> but but it, was, it was one of those times when I really would have liked to do more. One other story, lady came to my office, um, mid thirties, married, couple of school aged children. She was developing, uh, developing a visual problem. It wasn't real serious. My vision was way worse than hers. Um, but she was uh, telling me that she had gotten married, had children, and she really did want to go back to college and get a good job. But she was waiting until her children were uh, in school. And now they were, and she was ready to go back to college. But now she was having a vision problem, and she was not going to be able to go back to school. And of course, uh, I kind of leaned back in my chair. I said, so let me see if I got this right. Um, you're, you're not gonna be able to go back to school. Do you have another, do you have a disability besides your vision? That's an issue. And, and why do you think you can't go to school? And she said, well, I just told you, I felt, you know, she was getting a little frustrated with me. <laughs> I just told you, um, I can't, my vision's back. I can't drive anymore. I can't see print very good. You know, I can see to walk around. I don't really need a cane or anything, but I can't, you know, I'm not going, I'm going to have trouble seeing the blackboard. I just, I just can't do it. And I said, well, you know what? Um, you can do it. I said, I've done it. 
I know how to go to college as a blind person. I can, I can walk you through that. I can tell you what to say to the professors. I can get you books and audio. I can, I can help you with all of that. And you can do it if you, if you want to. I'll, I'll walk you through that. And, and she said, um, I'm, I'm not sure. But finally, I did convince her and she went back to school. Um, I ended up retiring in the middle of that process. So I, I never really knew for sure what happened to her until a couple years later, I uh, ran into her at a Walmart. Now, apparently she had maintained enough vision that she recognized me. <laughs> and she said, oh, Debbie Green. I said, yes. She said, this is, identified herself. I said, oh, great. How in the world are you? We're doing, you know, here's my husband. You know, remember I told you about that count? Yes, yes. We, you know, I got caught up. Then she said, I'll never forget the day that you yelled at me in your office. And I said, I yelled at you? I said, I would not ever do that. She said, yeah, you did. You yelled at me. I needed to hear it, but you yelled at me. And I said, what did I say? Because I don't remember yelling at you at all. And she said, you told me that just because I was blind was no reason why I couldn't go back to college. <laughs> I said, well, I do remember saying that, but I don't believe I yelled at you. And she said, oh yeah, you did. You yelled at me. Now, I think what happened is I probably said it firmly <laughs> because I was, I had a lot of conviction about that. Um, and she said, but I needed to hear it. And yes, I graduated. Yes, I have a job and, and, and uh, thank you so much. And I said, oh, you're more than welcome. Happy to, happy to be there for you at that time. So um, again, just, just a couple of stories um, to, to, to emphasize the, that it's, it's a two-way street. Um, remember that the, the clear communication, good listening, showing respect, um, having, um, being cooperative, um, being flexible, and showing gratitude. And I think those principles will contribute to uh, life in general, but absolutely in this scenario. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I thought you did such a, a fantastic presentation and so much of the responsibility does fall on the consumer. We do have to do our part and listening to the guidance from your counselors, they, they, most of them have been around the block a few times. Yes. And it's, and again, it's, it's a two-way street. I remember, I'll tell you one more little story since we got time. I remember there was a time when uh, I had a client that, um, or I guess it's consumer here, um, that applied for services. And um, they had a vision, they had a, a significant vision problem, went for an eye exam. Um, I got the report back. I hadn't, I hadn't actually had it read to me yet. But uh, at one point, my secretary came to me and said, oh, uh, Joe Blow called and asked if we could buy uh, the glasses that the doctor recommended. And, um, I, and, and my secretary said, and I told them yes. I said, oh, well, I haven't seen that eye exam yet. Why don't you get that and read it for me? Well, she did. And as, as it turns out, um, in the eye report, the doctor did recommend glasses, but the glasses corrected the person to 2020. Well, they're not eligible then. You know, seen that. And, and so I said to her, well, we cannot buy the glasses. 
we can pay for the eye exam, but but then as if it's correctable to 2020, we if the vision's correctable 2020, we can't pay for it. And she said, well, I already told them that we could. And I said, well, then you're going to have to call and tell them that you were wrong. <laughs> because I'm not signing that document. Um, that's, you know, that's going to be a violation of, of the eligibility criteria. Um, so, so sometimes the agencies don't always have their act together too. <laughs> so, um, but there's, it's a, definitely a, a two-way street. So. Well, this is artists. I just wanted to <clears throat> mention that when I lost my sight, um, um, the counselor wanted me to go to college. And at the time I'd been working for a couple of years and I didn't want to go to college. So I asked for other options and they did. They gave me the Rendell Shepherd program. So I think yeah. it's important for us to communicate too if we yeah. don't find the option uh, acceptable at the time. Of course, later I did go back to school when I was in the program. So, uh, <laughs> you know, times change. I have okay. I have one one quick funny story. Not funny. It's actually the way times have changed about <laughs> um, counselors. And uh, then I know we do have to close the section session. But about twenty years ago, I was looking into the option of BEP, and uh, my counselor at the time looked at me like I had three heads and said, "Women don't come into BEP." <laughs> I would say them's fighting words. <laughs> you know, it was so long ago, and here I am now. So it's it's just yeah, times have certainly changed. And Good for you. Yeah, I had a similar I had a similar experience when I uh, had a teenage daughter, and I was and I bought a car for her, and I remember sitting in a dealership. And I am getting ready to, to write the, the, the check and do the paperwork for the car. And the person said, I need to see your driver's license. And I said, I don't have a driver's license. And she said, oh, then I don't think we can sell you this car. And I said, excuse me? Are you telling me that because I'm blind, I can't own a car? Are you, are you kidding me? And, and I mean, I was ready to, I was, I mean, I was, I was fired up and she I, said, well, let me, uh, let me talk to somebody. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's, it's funny. Oh, yeah. I, think, I think as blind people, um, uh, many, many of us have owned cars and I think we all can tell similar stories about that, but, but Debbie, I really wanted to thank you for coming on. Um, your presentation was really great. Um, you gave some you. some very good advice and tools and listening, and it was just fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. You're so welcome. God bless you guys. If I can help in any way, let me know. And if so people much. have questions later, they can um, send them to me and I can forward them to you. Thanks. Absolutely. That'd be great. Thank you. You're welcome. We have some door prizes. Yes. <clears throat> the door prizes go to... Audrey Crisp, Larry Hall, James Roberts, and Leslie Spoon. Thanks. Oh, congratulations, folks. Beautiful. Thank you so much, artists, for those wonderful door prizes, and Scott for the uh, code. Um, so I... We'll be rolling into a couple of videos next year. Awesome. Hi. Yep. My name is Sam Today we will be talking about eSight, which is a life-changing assistive technology used daily by thousands of individuals that have low vision and legal blindness to achieve their professional and personal goals. 
In this 10-minute session, I will share what eSight is, who it can benefit, what sets eSight apart, how eSight is used in the workplace, and how we work with corporations. I will also share examples of individuals using eSight to advance at work. To start things off, I'd like to set the landscape regarding the low vision community when it comes to employment. According to the American Community Survey, over half of working age people who are blind or visually impaired are not in the labor market. That's more than double the rate for people without disabilities, where less than a quarter are not in the labor market. Underemployment is also a major issue in the low vision community. eSight's technology is helping to address this inequality in two ways. First, it empowers individuals living with visual impairments to achieve their goals. Second, it opens everyone's eyes to the abilities of this community. This in turn creates a better, more inclusive world. It is our belief that innovation only yields true advancement when the discussion switches from what we can do for this population to what this population can do for the world with just the right tools enough. So how exactly does eSight enhance the wearer's sight? eSight is a head-mounted device that works to provide the brain with increased visual information that compensates for gaps in the user's field of view. To be specific, the device captures high-quality video and displays it on two high-resolution OLED screens directly in front of each eye. The use of custom optics and proprietary algorithms enhances the image and results in maximized sight function. This works by stimulating synaptic activity from the remaining functional dormant photoreceptors in the user's eyes. We have a video that demonstrates this on eSightEyewear.com, or you can email me, Samuel, at eSightEyewear.com if you'd like the link. So who can benefit from eSight? eSight works for individuals with over 20 different eye conditions, including macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, Stargardt's disease, and more. There are three main criteria for potential candidates. eSight is proven to be most effective in correcting acuities of 20 over 60 to 20 over 800 with many of our wearers able to achieve 20 over 20. We recommend wearers be between the ages of 13 to 80, as well at least 15 degrees field of view is necessary to see the best results. Now, I'll get into the details on how the new eSight 4 is delivering on these promises. First, it offers greater visual acuity through software enhancement and new best match camera lenses. It provides all day comfort with the new Halo Comfort Band that wraps around the wearer's head and features comfortable padding that can be removed for cleaning. A size dial allows the wearer to adjust the band to the perfect fit. And it features a battery that can be changed in seconds. This is positioned at the back of the Halo Band and the battery balances the weight of the visor that sits in front of the wearer's eyes. Note that the visor is attached by two arms to the halo band, so there's no weight on the user's nose. eSight 4 offers superior mobility as the device is now wireless with built-in vision controls. The wearer simply follows the braille dots on the arm of the visor to swipe forwards and backwards to zoom in or out, or up and down to adjust contrast. And they can access a full array of vision controls like color filters, indoor, outdoor, reading TV, custom modes, simply by following the same guided dots to the back of the visor's arms to the context menu. The voice navigation makes it easy for the wearer to choose between options. eSight 4 is advanced yet easy to use. For many wearers, all they need are the features built right into the headset. For wearers looking to do even more, a streamlined remote control, as well as a mobile app are provided. 
The remote and mobile app offer all the vision controls available through the headset and more. Advanced capabilities include the ability to take photos and videos, view them in their eSight gallery and share them with friends, view their computer or phone screen right on their eSight and watch videos playing on their phone or TV right on their eSight for optimal view, and access e-support or get cloud-based updates to the latest software enhancement. Additionally, eSight 4 continues to use the same clinically validated technological approach as our previous model and maintains the streamlined visor that incorporates the wearer's remaining peripheral vision, the patented bioptic tilt, allowing the user access to even more peripheral vision or full natural vision, ideal when exploring new places, and customization features like the ability to adjust the pupillary distance to offer the best fit for maximum visual acuity for the wearer. So what sets eSight apart? In addition to enhancing sight, eSight is passionately committed to maximizing quality of life for our clients. To achieve this, we don't just build for the low vision community, we build with the low vision community. We know from our clients that it's essential that our device not only provide best in class enhanced visual acuity, but that it provides mobility, comfort, and ease of use. Our clients just don't wanna see when sitting at their computer screen. They want a device that makes it easy for them to commute to work or work from home. They wanna be able to read a paper up close or a whiteboard in the distance. They wanna be able to read text and also see facial expressions. And they need a device that is easy to use and comfortable enough so they can benefit from it all day. Now, before speaking about eSight Workplace, I would like to mention that eSight has been validated through a multi-center peer-reviewed clinical trial that was conducted across six leading independent low vision research institutes and published in 2017. The key findings showed a seven-line gain in distance acuity, a 12-letter contrast improvement, 100% mobility retention, and significant improvements in facial recognition. Various clinicians have also gone on record to further highlight how beneficial eSight truly is. For example, Dr. Jilan Dineli from John Hopkins said, eSight has a substantial impact on the lives of many people with severe vision loss. Now that we've established what eSight is and how it can benefit individuals with low vision, I'd like to introduce you to eSight Workplace, a solution that makes it easy for corporations to create a workplace more inclusive of individual and legal blindness. eSight Workplace combines the eSight 4 device with comprehensive service and support, including direct shipping of the device to the employee's home, a virtual no-risk evaluation in the comfort of your employee, one-on-one -on -one personalized online training and support for employees, and gold standard device maintenance. As an employer of many people who live with sight loss, we see daily the abilities of these members of our team, and we're thrilled to see more corporations working to empower their employees with low vision with eSight. Now, I'm pleased to tell you about one of many individuals who uses eSight for work. Meet Rashida. Rashida is a 43-year-old professional who works in risk management at Canada Post. She also lives with retinitis pigmentosa. Rashida has been able to work with the support of two technologies. Zoom text and a special computer monitor with a high contrast screen. This method has worked over the years, but there were a few issues she experienced. Zoom text would slow her computer down, and she found that even with Zoom text, she would need to put her face just a few inches from her computer monitor. This positioning was not ergonomic and put a lot of strain on her back and her eyes. She reached a point in her life where she was worried she would soon have to leave her job and collect disability. As a last resort, Rashida started researching other options extensively. She explored several wearable 
assistive technologies, ultimately deciding on eSight, which brought her from 20 over 200 vision acuity to 20 over 20. Rather than sit close to her monitor, straining her back and eyes further, Rashida wears her eSight for work each day. She can now sit at a regular distance from the computer and is more comfortable. She no longer needs to use a special monitor or software to zoom or enlarge fonts. The device's patented bioptic tilt also allows her to move around her office without having to remove the device. Rashida knows that one day working will become too difficult due to her declining vision, but with eSight, she feels that she has added years to her career. Rashida is just one example. In our case studies package, you can hear the eSight journeys of individuals in very diverse jobs, including Ed, who is a high school math teacher, Mark, who is a Wendy's restaurant manager, and Shane, who has expanded his responsibilities at the radio station where he works. You can download the case studies package at eSightEyewear.com slash eSight-workplace. Overall, eSight is a life-changing device and creates new possibilities for many individuals with serious visual impairments in the workplace. To learn more, contact me at samuel at eSightEyewear.com or call 1-855-837-4448. With CPI's newest technology offering for vending machines, consumers can now use their mobile phones to select and pay for their product and have a complete touchless experience with the vending machine. In this video, the consumer uses a mobile phone app to select the location of the product as they would on the touchscreen of the vending machine. They then authorize the payment on the mobile phone app and the product is vended by the machine. The consumer's only touch points are their own mobile phone and the product they wished to purchase. Hello from Leader Dogs for the Blind. My name is Leslie Haskins and I'm the Outreach Services and Community Engagement Manager. I hope you enjoy this recording as we briefly provide an overview of the programs and services we offer, empowering people who are blind or visually impaired with lifelong skills for safe and independent daily travel. Throughout this recording, we're going to discuss our free guide dog mobility training options, our free orientation mobility program, and lastly, our free summer experience camp for teens. You're probably chuckling at the number of times I've said free, but we've learned many potential clients just don't believe it. And it's true. These programs are all offered free to clients in the U.S. and Canada, including Airfare. All Leader Dog programs are available to individuals who are 16 and older, and there are no vocational requirements to receive these services. If you have any questions after this recording, please call 888 777-5332 and ask to speak with a client services representative. I'm now going to introduce you to Eric Rodman, one of our guide dog mobility instructors, to discuss our guide dog training options. Thank you, Leslie. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Eric Rodman, and I'm a guide dog mobility instructor here at Leader Dogs for the Blind. Uh, so Leader Dogs for the Blind was first established in 1939 in Rochester Hills, Michigan, and throughout the years, uh, we've continued to grow and develop to ensure that we're providing quality guide dogs for people with visual impairments. Uh, we recognize that the needs of our client base are ever-changing and evolving, and therefore there's a need to, for a variety of training options to offer to our client base. Uh, Leader Dog now does offer several unique training formats to best serve each individual client, and of course all of our services are provided free of charge. So first I'm going to cover our guide dog program and the admissions process and then Leslie is going to cover our orientation and mobility program as well as the summer experience camp a bit later. 
So to receive a guide dog from Leader Dogs, you must be 16 years of age, also legally blind. You must be of good mental and physical health, including being able to walk several blocks without jeopardizing any current medical conditions. You also need to have completed a basic course in orientation and mobility training, which is the white cane training. Now I'm going to go on to our guide dog training options for you, uh, the first of which being our on-campus training. So this is actually a three-week residential training that takes place on the Leader Dog Campus here in Rochester Hills, Michigan. Uh, it takes advantage of time away from the home, um, and with the home comes many distractions. Uh, so this actually allows the client to come here and spend the three weeks helping to solidify their skills and mechanics of working with a guide dog, um, to further their understanding of the working concepts and also uh, gives them time to focus on bonding with their new guide dog, which is very important to the working relationship. Uh, the on-campus training typically has the shortest wait time. It's the most comprehensive of our training options, allowing for three weeks with instruction from one of our guide dog mobility instructors. You'll also be in class with several other clients, uh, so there is a direct support system around you of fellow trainees. Uh, we also have support from our on-campus orientation and mobility specialists, should we need it, um, and as well as our lovely kitchen and residence staff who uh, work really hard to make sure that our clients feel at home during their three-week stay here for the residential training. The second option is our uh, in-home delivery. This is when a guide dog mobility instructor will actually travel and deliver a dog to a client's home environment and then provide one-on-one -on -one tailored instruction. Uh, this training can take anywhere from 10 to 14 days, depending on how the team is progressing. Uh, and this allows for clients to continue their care for their families, uh, any work responsibilities they may have at home. Uh, they can focus on the client's routes in their immediate home area, while also allowing uh, for personal or family health issues if clients need to attend to those. So the next option we offer is our flex training option. And this is actually just a combination of the two options that I've just described. Uh, the flex training starts in the uh, residence, just like the first model that I covered, uh, and is a shortened stay on campus here at Leader Dogs in Rochester. Uh, and then following that is an immediate uh, in-home follow-up. So it's part on-campus training and part in-home delivery to uh, allow clients to have a shortened stay and also to make sure that that transition back to the home area is nice and smooth. Finally, we offer a deaf-blind program. This is a three-week training that takes place at Leader Dogs Campus and is specifically for clients who are deaf-blind communicating with American Sign Language, either visual or tactile. Uh, and this is dependent upon the client's individual needs. The deaf-blind class is on a smaller ratio, typically one-to-one -one or two-to-one uh, client-to-instructor ratio. And the dog may also be dual-trained to uh, perform additional tasks on top of the guide work that is asked of them. So with that, I'd just like to recap some key points. Again, our guide dog training is offered to individuals who are 16 years or older, legally blind, and have good independent travel skills to be successful with a guide dog. Uh, you can apply for a guide dog on our website at leaderdog.org. That's one word, leaderdog.org. Um, or you can also call the phone number that is mentioned previously. 
I'm going to go ahead and turn it back over to Leslie to discuss our orientation and mobility program and our summer experience camp. So thank you everybody for your time today. I appreciate it. We've developed a few different program options for clients to better understand what services we can provide and maybe what type of training they're looking for. The first training option we offer is Introduction to O&M. This is ideal for individuals who have received little to no training at all. It's a really good selection for someone who's never traveled with a cane before, but may be wondering if now is the right time to start. Additionally, all of our O&M clients will be given a cane, but you are welcome to use your own. And then we have various cane tips that you can try out throughout the week in several different environments to see what you like. The second option we have is O&M Brush Up. This is ideal for individuals who have had some formal training in the past and wish to increase or refresh their independent travel skills. It's a perfect opportunity if you've had a change in vision or your travel environment has changed since your last training and you're looking to modify some of those travel techniques that you've learned and adapt to these different changes. We've also found that this is a really good option for our long-time guide dog users who have been seeking some brush-up, whether that be um, in between guide dogs or you just want to be more independent when traveling with a cane. We have a third option, which is our guide dog readiness program. This is ideal for individuals who want to learn more about the skills required to successfully work with a guide dog. It's a really good option for those who are wondering if a guide dog is a good fit. We're going to talk about lifestyle and travel environment. It's a great opportunity to also talk with clients who are in class and learn from their experiences. While clients will learn a lot about preparing for a guide dog, this class does not guarantee acceptance into guide dog training. And lastly, we have our advanced O&M. This is ideal for individuals who are seeking to travel more confidently in difficult environments. It's perfect for someone who wants to analyze complex intersections regularly and be challenged with some unique situations. This is also a really good option for someone who frequently travels in unfamiliar environments. So the O&M program is offered to individuals who are 16 or older and legally blind. Please remember that no matter what your skill level, from those that have never worked with a cane before to even the most advanced users, LeaderDog has an O&M training for you. And lastly, we have our Summer Experience Camp. Each year, we host a week-long Summer Experience Camp for 16- and 17-year-olds who are legally blind. This camp focuses on leadership skills, mobility options such as a guide dog, making friendships and memories to last a lifetime. Summer experience campers go tandem bike riding, rock wall climbing, zip lining, play beep kickball, and so many more fun activities throughout the week. They are issued their very own guide dog for a day to understand the work and skill level required to be successful with a guide dog. The week is designed to be fun and challenging by helping the campers navigate these transition years from teenager to adult. This camp provides a safe environment to try new things and meet new people similar to themselves. This year, like many events, our in-person summer experience camp was canceled due to COVID-19, but we just wrapped up our very first ever virtual summer experience camp. Being virtual gave us the opportunity to open the camp up to ages 14 through 17 and provide some fun and education in a very interactive virtual way. We are looking forward to returning to our on-campus summer experience camp in the summer of 2021. That concludes our brief overview of the programs at Leader Dogs for the Blind. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoyed learning about what we have to offer. Please feel free to reach out with any questions regarding our programs or requirements by calling 
888-777-5332 and asking to speak with a client services representative. Thanks for listening and enjoy your day. Leader Dogs for the Blind. So this next session is considered one of the breakout sessions that I understand everybody loves in person at Sagebrush. Um, so it's definitely going to have a little bit of a different look to it. So Karen, I'll, I'll be kind of hanging in the background here for just a little while. And then uh, I'll probably be stepping away unless you need me for something. I, I, I think uh, I'm leaving you in the hands of with Michael here. You guys will be able to handle this very well. I think I'm in good hands, Scott. Scott, thank you for everything today. Thank you for being my safety net. Um, as always, I appreciate you so much and just everything you do to make Sagebrush such, such a success. Happy to do it and, and uh, waiting to say hello to Michael too here. Michael, hey, are, you, are you with us? Can you, yes, can you hear me, Scott? I, I can. Michael, we I can, can hear you now. <laughs> All right. Good afternoon to you and to Karen and both of you have done a wonderful job. I, I'm not even sure if y'all need me. <laughs> y'all have uh, done an outstanding job hosting. Y'all really have. Oh, nope, nope. Uh, Michael, you are stepping up and you are going to <laughs> toe the line with me now. It's you, and me, you got it. All right. So, folks, we are moving into the section where um, people, uh, chairs from State Committee of Blind Vendors, have the opportunity to talk and share and ask one another questions. Um, little disclosure before we get started, I do want to remind everybody this does have a little different look than, than we normally would have at Sagebrush. Um, everybody in the country is hearing us and, and even around the world. Um, so I'm going to ask that people really, you know, reserve um, personal uh, qu questions are great in general, um, but let's not turn it towards one another's individual situations necessarily. So um, with saying that, I'm going to let Michael introduce himself yeah. and tell us a little about yourself. Sure. Karen, can I jump in just for a quick second? And um, I just want to, uh, I want to, uh, uh, tag on to what you just said there. So this group has typically been a great place for people to communicate what's going on in their state, but this is not an SLA bash session. We're not going to go down that road. So just remember, um, yeah. So, uh, keep those thoughts to yourself. And, uh, uh, this is a great place to share and learn from other chairs, other groups. And certainly if you're not a chair or a co-chair in your organization, um, Stay, stick around anyway, because there's always things to learn from this group. Very, very intelligent group. And uh, I'll let the two of you take over from there. And thank you very much. And it's been a great day, folks. Thank you so much, Scott. Michael, why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself and how involved you've been with Randolph Shepard and with your own state committee. And um, then we'll set down a little bit of the forum we're going to use and some guidelines. So tell us about yourself, Michael. All right. Well, thank you, Karen. I appreciate the, that and uh, the opportunity to speak. I am um, I'm the elected committee chair here in Alabama. I'm a blind vendor that lives and works in the Birmingham, uh, Alabama area. I have about 150 machines. I have been as high as 210 vending machines, but uh, I'm okay with 150. That's still plenty to do. Keeps me busy. As a matter of fact, I'm coming in from the route now. It's hoping to be home by now, but ran into some issues weather-wise. Um, but I have been, um, I came into the program in 2002. I got on our elected committee in 2005. 
Uh, in 2008, I became the vice chair of the elected committee. And in 2013, I became the chair when longtime RSVA uh, board of director, Charlie Carroll passed away. He was a great mentor for me. And uh, he just worked really hard for vendors, uh, regardless of uh, you know any consumer group that they were in. He just, he fought very hard for the Randolph Shepard program. And so I've been the chair since 2013, and it's been a great learning opportunity. Um, we have uh, a pretty good working relationship with our SLA here in Alabama, um, and um, it can always improve and get better at, with anything, but it, it's just been, um, we do have a really good active participation, and I'm, I'm proud of that um, here in Alabama. The nationally, I do enjoy working with um, vendors from all across the country. I've spoken many states. Um, the um, NABM president, Nikki Gakos, asked me to help co-host a monthly call with chairs and vice chairs. They, um, and, and so I worked with Zach Snow on that. And that's been very good. That's the second Tuesday of every month. And if any chair or co-chair is not in that, I would encourage you to, to call into that. But I, I do, I believe in, we, you know, this program has been such a blessing uh, to, to, to my family, to, to blind vendors, not only in Alabama, but across the country. And we just have to work and help each other, uh, inspire each other, encourage each other, support each other to, to move this program forward. You know, Karen, you I love your passion and your energy. From the first day that I met you, I was like, she is on fire. And uh, it's just exciting to know that you um, are the, the the head of your committee there in New York. And, you know, it's just, it, it's a lot. It's a lot uh, of responsibility because you get a lot of calls. You get uh, vendors that um, have complaints and you, you get people that need help and you want to help them all, but it can be very time consuming. So I think it's important today as we, as we discuss things, like you said, to keep it very positive for one, but if there's something that's positive in your state that's going well, let's, let's share with each other. Let's help each other. Um, you know, with the uh, Katrina McDonald did such a good job yesterday of talking about the money that's coming in and you know, let's, we're, we're about to begin talks with our SLA on how to best figure out that formula. Um, and, you know, I think that I, I hope that there are uh, many chairs and vice chairs on this call that are listening that you've already began those talks. If you haven't, I want to strongly encourage you to do so. Um, and, you know, I just, this is a great learning opportunity. So I'll, I'll stop there, Karen, but I, you know, I just, I, I, I appreciate this program and I want to fight and help any vendor that I can. And um, I just I appreciate the opportunity to, to encourage other people. Well, well, thank you, Michael. And I certainly uh, respect your energy. And um, <clears throat> I'm sure the other organization appreciated the uh, commercial you just gave them. Uh, however, I, I, as committee chair, have never been invited to one of those meetings. So that's interesting. Um, so hello, everybody. Um, I am Karen Blackwist. I am chair of the State Committee of Blind Vendors in New York. Um, I am also a board member for Randolph Shepherd Vendors of America. Um, we do have a little bit of a structured program today. And what I'm going to do first is we're going to go around and we're going to do some introductions. I'm going to call you by um, states, not, not all individually. I'm going to go a couple at a time. And what we're going to do is ask you to raise your hand and then our wonderful um, hosts, Tyson and Rick, will uh, send you a little unmute notification. And when you unmute, if you could keep it to about two minutes, but tell us a little bit about yourself. 
um, and maybe a little bit about your state committee of blind vendors. Um, we can get through the introductions rather quickly, and then we can get into some topics that um, had been posted on the agenda. Um, <clears throat> with the exception that I would like to um, touch a little bit on the active participation, because we, we do all know um, what's going on on the federal level and, and how things have come down and that active participation is very important with each of our SLAs. Um, so with saying that, um, any chairs from the states that begin A through C, A as in apple, B as in boy, C as in cat. I, and Karen, do you want just the chairs to uh, speak up um, or, or if there's a vice chair that's on? I mean, I, that could get a little long and take a little time, but I just didn't know if you, you know, uh, like my vice chair from Alabama is on here. His name's Wade Coker. I'll just throw, go ahead and throw that out there. But anyway, I didn't know if um, you, you want just the chairs to speak up. Um, I, I would I, I would say a chair or a vice chair. Um, yeah, I know we can't get into committee members because sure, that could be sure. way too so, long. Yes. Right. So if, if your vice chair from Alabama is on, go ahead and raise your hand. And um, <laughs> let's let's go through it this way. Let's get through the well, introduction, folks. And, and if it saves time, I mean, I'll just say Wade Coker, unless Wade, you just want to speak. No, it's, it's, <laughs> Wade it's fine. Let's, no, it's fine, Michael. Let's just go with it. All right. Um, Tyson, do we have hands up? Uh, Scott Egan here. Um, can I interject for just a second? Please don't be shy because we really want to know who's out there uh, and yes. where you're from. So uh, don't be afraid. This group won't bite. Uh, this is we've over the years. We've had just a very open and honest uh, flowing conversation and i'd love to see that continue virtually so yeah please feel free absolutely believe me you really don't want to hear michael and i speak for the next two hours <laughs> seriously not me anyway <laughs> I, I i know you folks love listening to me talk but nobody can listen to me talk for two hours straight so um all right tyson if there's no hands up yet i'm gonna move on keith holly hi what? keith how are you welcome Good, Keith Haley out of Connecticut. I don't really have a ton to add, but just like everyone nationwide, we're, we're happy with all the work that Terry Smith and Nikki Gakos have done with the $20 million. Um, and I'm, I'm excited uh, with the state of Connecticut because it seems nationwide, a lot of um, committees and their SLAs, you know, kind of butt heads a lot. And, um, you know, that's why people are saying, let's get your conversation started um, now opposed to later. Um, and I just want to say a good thing about Connecticut because we, we have a good working relationship with our SLA. Just like many states, we probably don't see eye to eye uh, on all things, but that's to be expected. Um, but we're bo both sides are looking forward to the guidance that's coming out. Um, you know, some of us have some ideas already, so we're working with each other. Um, so that, that's a positive thing here in Connecticut, you know, and I hope nationwide other states and their SLA and elected committee members can work together. This is an important step for the blind vendors in this day of COVID. Um, so just wanted to apply, applaud the state of Connecticut and we're looking forward to the, the, the guidance coming out so that we can all move forward and, and uh, get some money in the blind vendors' hands. Thank you so much. So how, lo how long have you been a chair of the con uh, committee in Connecticut? Um, the way Connecticut does it is um, you can, um, it's a two year term and then you can uh, put your hat back in the ring for another two years. But after you've committed, uh, completed two two-year terms, you need to take a year off. So last year I had to take a year off 
Uh, so I just became the committee chair um, this year, but prior to my, my year off, I was the uh, committee chair for the four consecutive years before my year off. And then prior to by taking my year off, prior to those four years, I was the committee chair another year. So collectively, probably about six years, I've been the committee chair, but uh, I, I, I'm doing my first, my first uh, year in 2021 now. So hopefully I'll be the chair again next year as well. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, can I ask him a quick question? Uh, just can, can have y'all start. Okay, go ahead. I was just going to ask him if they have a formula, if they've even started talks with their SLA. Well, um, but we can move on. Through, let's get through some introductions first. We want to make sure that everybody has an opportunity. And then we have plenty of time. We can open it up for conversation. But let's let's get through the introductions and know who's on the line first. 402 area code. Hi, this is Sandy Alvarado from Nebraska. I'm Hi, the committee chairperson. Oh, I'm wonderful. And I love listening to you, Karen, by the way. Oh, um, thank you. I'm used to listening to myself during most of the meetings, but you know, I just feel like the teacher when I'm there. <laughs> we have a great relationship with our SLA. I've been in the program about 11 years on the committee in different situations for probably nine, but a good eight years as the chair. That's wonderful. That's, I, that's really, really good to hear. And a second note on that, for the longest time, I was the only female. <laughs> now at least my committee is majority female. <laughs> hey, good news. That's great. We have had. Yes. Yes, it is. We, thank we've you. Had a, thank you so much. Um, We'll definitely have some great conversations uh, moving forward through this evening and and down the line. But um, I have Trevor Garcia. I just want to say thank you guys so much for uh, uh, putting this on, and because you know we I'm not a chair, but we really appreciate it. And you know it's informative for me, especially this being my first Sagebrush to attend, and you know to really kind of get some ideas outside of our own state and kind of talk and, and visit with everybody nationwide and. So we really appreciate it. I think somebody else from Oregon was on too, but we'll probably get a chance. But uh, yeah, we really appreciate the this uh, forum and the opportunity to be able to be part of it. And thank you so much. We look forward to attending the live event. Oh, thank you. Um, it, it, and we and do I'm, too. Glad <laughs> we can't to wait to have a live event. <laughs> this is George Abbott from Maryland. Oh, George. Hey. And I'm vice George. chairman of the... I'm vice chairman of the committee. Um, I have I actually served on the very first committee in Maryland and back in the 70s when they were first organized. So I spent quite a few number of years serving on the committee in various capacities from then till now. And we have um, already had several phone calls and written or email communications about the 20 million and um, we have a very good working relationship with with our com uh, license, the, you know, the SLA. And we have a um, eight-member committee with three alternates, so making a total of eleven people. And we have we serve two-year terms. So that's Please. it. <laughs> hey George, well, can I ask you a quick question? You've been around for a very long time, and you've been on your committee for a very long time. Uh, hopefully you have a quick answer for me. What do you see as your committee's greatest accomplishment? 
Oh my goodness. Well, we we transitioned from a um, nominee agency employee type status to self-employment corp, you know, self-employed individual like sole proprietorships. So that was a, a big thing. And then um, just the whole process process of working with trying to develop the administrative manual over the years. Um, and that's basically we've not had a and we, we and we and we had a transition period when we dropped the nominee agency and went to be straight with the SLA. So sure. just those numbers of things have happened over the years, and the committee's been very involved. Um, we we are we are recognized within our state state of Maryland Comar. That was a good function to get accomplished. We have. Uh, through the state legislature, we also have the right to interview staff. We're on the interview team for when they hire new staff in our program. So just things like that over the years, and uh, keep plugging. <laughs> That's impressive. Thank you, George. That that was that was super. I love hearing stuff like that. What we yeah, do matters. Yeah. That's that's terrific. Five oh three area code. Uh, hey everybody. Hi. Uh, hey, Michael. Hey, George. Hey, uh, Randy. <laughs> hey, buddy. Andy. Hey. And uh, I just want to first and foremost say what a great conference this is. Uh, you know, I've been part of RSBA off and on over the years. I've served on the board and, uh, you know, I've worked on the Sagebush Committee alongside uh, Michael Talley and some um, other great advocates across the land. And I just want to say that really enjoyed the presentations um, this far, you know, and so anyway, wanted to get that out of the way. Um, so I've been a blind vendor for 34, 35 years. Um, and I've been the committee chair here in Oregon for probably 12 years. Um, it's been a, a real, real struggle in Oregon. Uh, you know, uh, you have some states that um, are easier and more supportive of the blind priority. And you have some that are more interested and entrenched in the ways that they do business and the administrative hierarchy. And, and you know, frankly, I think some states believe that this program is for them and not the blind. Um, so it's been a challenge, but I have a great board that, uh, you know, we all work together trying to um, encourage change. Uh, and I was, um, I think one of the, I will, without being asked by Steve, I will say one of the greatest accomplishments that our board and our managers did, um, including uh, Trevor Garcia. That's one of the reasons Trevor became a blind vendor is that we were able to change our mini Randall Shepard Act here a couple of years ago. We went from a preference to a priority and we encouraged within the language of the law that folks here are going to be installed in locations you know it's not going to be um any any more avoiding of putting blind people to work of course COVID has set that aside for a while but um we we work hard uh i you know I believe in all affiliations. I think uh, NABM is doing some great things, and I think RSVA is doing some great things. And I really, in my mind, I don't see a dividing line. We all are blind vendors. We all suffer the same things, and we achieve the same rewards. And 
you know, um, why we might have different ideological, um, you know, philosophical uh, missions going forward or thoughts. It's so great to work together. And uh, I go to Blast, I go to Sagebrush, I go to NAMA, and I know I see a lot of people around the land and advocates like Michael Pally, um, hats off to uh, Michael and, uh, and many others. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Um, we appreciate you joining us and I'm sure the conversation is, is gonna get um, terrific as we move forward today. Okay, area code 732. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, Karen, I apologize for not being on earlier, but um, I would personally like to uh, make sure that you know you are invited to join the, I'm surprised Michael didn't tell you that. The committee chair, it's bipartisan. Uh, that's why Michael chairs it with Zach Snow. Um, it's bipartisan, so we could share ideas. Um, so I would help with this make, was. We will make sure that we get you on it. You're more than welcome to be invited. Absolutely, you're a committee chair. And uh, Michael can get you on there. You can give him your number. And if you'd like to join us, we'd love for you to join us. We have sometimes 30 or 40 people on the calls. We do it the first Tuesday of every, uh, second Tuesday of every month. And I personally want to make sure that you're on there. So um, it has, you know, like I said, that these are issues. Um, I, I'm a believer that we need to work together. I've been that way for the past 25 years when we tried to merge the two organizations to come together. Um, and that didn't happen, but that's okay. We move forward. And, um, you know, and then we got the, the issues of active participation and many things that you've heard on this call. And, uh, you know, those are the things that we work on. So um, it, it, it's important that blind vendors work together. Um, and that's been my belief and that's what I'm going to keep moving to do. And, um, so, um, I'm putting out the olive branch, putting out the hand to say, come join us. Um, and, uh, you know, I, there's people on the call that are not members of either group. There are people on the calls that are members of RSVA and that's fine. And that's, that's great. Absolutely. And I, I will, we're I will great. definitely, I'll take you up on your offer. It would be great if I knew who you were because great. I'm not recognizing your voice. Oh, I'm sorry. This is Nikki Gakis from New Jersey. Oh, I'm sorry. President of the National Association of Blind Merchants. That's okay. I not you speak much. So there we go. That's well, okay. I appreciate hey. that, Nikki, and I will certainly join um, as okay. well. Okay, you give your phone number to Michael, and we'll have you on tonight if you want. So, um, and join hey, us. Hey, Nikki. And, um, if you want to. Yes, sir. Yep. Hey, Nikki. Scott Egan. I just wanted to hey, say or. hi. And uh, remembering hey, that we, we're all working on raising the, the ship to its highest point. We all are wanting to make our lives better for everybody. Well, rising ships lift, lift all tides, and that's why we develop partnerships and leadership and, and relationships, and that's what we do. And, um, you know, we're excited about getting this $20 million. We're excited about things that are going on, and uh, we have a great group of, of, of leaders, and uh, we want to continue to move forward, you know. so um, Fantastic. So, yeah. so that's uh, what we do. And um, Michael and I have worked on a number of things together, um, and we, we will continue to work on things together. Um, and that's the way, that's the way that we are, that my, my board and our group and everybody that we have works together. Um, Hey, so hey Nikki, Nikki, yes, um, w can we hear a little bit about New Jersey? Can you tell us about your state and uh, what's going on there? Sure. So, um, you know, we have, uh, we just got four dicks back again. We won an arbitration and we put a blind vendor there started October 1st. So we have two military bases. Um, we, you know, you, we have all our post offices, which have been extremely busy during the um, 
pandemic. Um, we also have uh, seven Dunkin' Donuts that we partner with, in, mainly in our post office, one in a library, that are very, very successful. Um, so we continue to move forward with that. And uh, we do the Hadley training, which we're very excited about. Um, and and um, we're down, we're, we're, we're hurting big time because of the pandemic. Um, we have about 21 vendors that have not worked since last March. That's why we decided to try to go for some money for our, you know, to do that and move forward. Um, so, but we're looking to grow. We're looking to get outside of, you know, we do some outside, um, uh, outside of Randall Shepard um, with some LA fitness gyms and some uh, micro markets at Bank of New York and, and other things. So we're expanding and we're always looking. We put in our new rules uh, last year that um, we have to have, we have to keep our license. We, we believe that, you know, if a nurse or a teacher has to renew their license, that we need to do that also. Thank you, Alabama and Florida. Um, but anyway, um, and we also make sure that we can go outside and look for our own locations too, um, which is important because, you know, who, who knows, you know, if we're going to be entrepreneurs and not just vendors and just, you know, what's a vendor, what's a merchant, what is, what, what are they? Um, you know, so we want to be entrepreneurs and do that. We want to make sure that um, we can go out and look for locations. And if we find a location that's, you know, the state does a site survey and if it's, if it's good, um, then it goes on to your permit. So we've been very happy with that. We're looking for more locations. We're going to start working with some other groups, some private organizations to look for other locations because state and federal buildings, as we've heard on many of our conferences, on our blast live conferences and stuff, are not going to come back. Um, you know, cafeterias are uh, dead, um, in, you know, and they should be with labor and everything else. And especially in some of our states like West Virginia and Tennessee and other states, if the minimum wage goes to $15 an hour, that will kill a lot of our businesses down there and stuff like that. So, you know, we, we're, we're keeping positive, um, you know, um, and that's we what we can to. do. And that's what we yep. try to do. And, um, you know, if, you know, I think I thought originally when this started last year, we'd lose a couple hundred blind vendors throughout the country. I think we're going to lose close to four or five hundred, you know, just people retiring, not from dying of COVID or anything, but just retiring. And and that's, you know, that's maybe it's going to be a slimmer, trimmer program. But, you know, I don't want to see a blind person lose a job. and That's what's going to happen. But, um, you know, so what do we got to look for? You know, if we, you know, it was said earlier by Hooks. That if we, you know, if we think it's going to be mashed potatoes and cafeteria lines and cafeterias and it's going to be the old Randall Shepard, well, then we're in big trouble. I wonder if his phone went dead. So, well, uh, thank you for New Jersey. That was a good update. And uh, let's keep going down the list. Area code 256. Uh, my name's Wade Coker. I'm Michael's vice chair. Uh, I've, I've been in the program about. 33 to 34 years. Uh, I've been on the elected committee for probably uh, about 21 years, I think. Uh, I've, I've been uh, chairman of the rules committee for all oh, several years, probably about eight, eight years, you know. And uh, as Michael said, we've got a fair working uh, relationship with our SLA and uh, uh, I want to thank y'all for putting this program on, and I've, I've, this is my first uh, uh, sagebrush. I, I am a lifetime member of our Randolph Shepherd vendors, and uh, thank y'all very much. Well, thank you. And this this program is about the people. Um, 
as Scott always says, I'm going to steal your phrase, you know, Randolph Shepard Vendors of America and our vendors, we are the nuts and bolts of the program. And it's about all of us. Um, so that yep. I, I want to get through and see if there's any other um, folks um, on the line that need an introduction. While we're waiting, and if there's no other hands, um, we did have on the agenda a couple um, talking items. Um, we had fair minimum return on there. And um, actually, I forget what the other one was. I think. Um, I say 15. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Um, however, you know, one of the things that that obviously, you know, there's been some changes and some guidelines sent down from RSA and we're all still waiting for some more guidance. But I think what would be, um, you know, the very important topic to discuss is active participation and what that's supposed to look like or what it could look like um, with our State Committee of Blind Vendors along with our SLAs. Um, I'm gonna introduce uh, myself a little bit here too, and then we're gonna go into the topic, but I wanted to, um, you know, bring that out so we can all like kind of gather some of our thoughts and and stuff. Um, my name is Karen Blackwood. I am the state committee chairperson in the state of New York, the wonderful state of New York. Um, I have a couple hats that I wear. I do sit on the Randolph Shepard Vendors of America Board of Directors. Um, I have become very active and I take my role very serious. And I was honored uh, when I was asked to sit on the board because I believe in all the work that Randolph Shepard Vendors of America do. And the respect I have for, for Dan Sipple is um, out of this world. I can't say enough good things about him and his leadership and the grassroots value that he brings uh, to the organization and, and keeps us all very grounded. Scott Egan has been just a, a tremendous mentor in uh, bringing me up to speed on a lot of the people and the players and things that I didn't necessarily know uh, ahead of time. And the energy I, I see in Scott is something I am certainly trying to echo. Um, the common sense approach that Scott has is just um, just amazing uh, to see and to watch. Um, all of the rest of the board of directors, uh, Linda Ellis from Tennessee, Woody Matthews, uh, Miles from Hawaii, Donna, who I'm not sure what state Donna's from, but she's just a lovely, lovely lady. Artist she's from Iowa. Yep, she's from Iowa. Iowa. Yep. And, and, and all the rest and just just so much um, enthusiasm and talent and like I said, grassroots values that just mean so much to me and why I'm where I am now. Um, it, it is the soul of what I believe in. Um, so I, I sit on that board and I'm also president of the American Council of the Blind of New York. Um, so as you can see, advocacy is in my core. And, and what we do is so very important. And I will not pretend that I know all of the answers. Um, but if I don't, I usually know where to find those answers. So as we move forward through this session, um, I want people to, to ask questions, talk freely um, about how your state committee of blind vendor 
vendors um, is actively participating with your state licensing agency. Um, I'll give you um, a little picture of what how we are here in New York. We have a very active committee of 12. Um, we have, uh, you know, the normal quarterly meetings with our SLA. However, we have many, many meetings in between where if, if there's a topic that affects the blind vendors, our state committee of blind vendors and the director of our program, who is Louise Warner, we have very open upfront conversations on how we feel, how they feel, how we can compromise and do the best for the managers around the whole state. Uh, not just senior managers, not just new managers, but all. And the word fair seems to come up a lot. And we, as a committee, are, are very diverse. We have everything from newbies to very seasoned managers. So we have opinions all over the board. Our, SL, our SLA and our um, specialists and district supervisors are all receptive to hear our thoughts and ideas on on what we think. Then we try to put a plan into place that's gonna work for everybody. Um, everything usually will go before a vote with the whole state committee and then out to the managers, which is how it really should be. Um, RSA has set down guidelines um, with the release of this federal funding. And I wanna make just a brief statement that I hope people really read the guidance from RSA and the information that is released by them. Um, we want to be very careful not to have any kind of misinterpretation of what they're saying. So please, you know, look at the information they are sending out, read carefully, and then discuss with your state committees of blind vendors and also with your SLA. We here in New York have already started um, working together uh, uh, to, to come up with a couple different ideas on the requirements that RSA has uh, sent down. Um, of course, we, there, there is still some a little bit more clarification that we need. I had the initial conversation with our director of the program, and we have a meeting coming up very soon with the whole committee. Um, to kind of toss some ideas around and talk. And that is what active participation really should look like. Conversation, open conversation with your SLAs, with the state committee, uh, uh, with the state committee uh, representatives. But it's also important for those listening that aren't on the state committee to communicate with who is representing you on your state committees. Uh, communication, really equates to active participation. So I'm going to, I'm going to pick on you, Scott. What does uh -oh. active participation look like in your state? In Minnesota, you know, I'm, I'm not on our committee right now. And I was kind of hoping that our chair would be on and, and um, address some of this. Um, but um, uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely some, some voices that, uh, are coming from the committee and I, I, I have, I can, I'll speak to it like this. I'll speak to it from my time. I always felt like in my time as the committee chair that uh, there was some issues that were addressed over the years. And 
I always felt like we had a, a, a good ear from our director and that uh, there was a good working relationship. So uh, I'll just put it, that's the best I can say for my experience. I'll just put it that way. All right, Michael, um, I know you have a very, very active role with Alabama in your SL, SLA. And I, you know, I'm gonna ask that we really stay focused and on topic, but if you could tell us, what does it look like in Alabama, your state committee of blind vendors with your SLA? Uh, before Eric jumps on, I'm, I'm gonna say uh, adieu to everyone. It's been uh, great to hear so many familiar voices and some new voices on this group. And uh, best of luck with the rest of your visit today. And I'll be looking forward to hearing and seeing from you folks tomorrow. So thank you all, and uh, we will talk soon. Scott, thank you for all you do. All right, Michael Tallier, are you still unmuted? Yes, I think so. You can hear me okay, right? Uh, we can hear you clearly. Yeah, Michael, so, sorry. Tell, us, tell us about what active participation sure. looks like in the state of yeah. Alabama. You got it. And, and I was steadily talking a while ago, and then I was like, oh, no, it's muted me. But anyway, <laughs> so, yeah, so we per, traditionally we, we've had really good active participation. We did go through a lull there for a while where we the, the SLA stopped uh, communicating so much with the elected committee. But right now, let me give some good examples. So we actually, if there's an issue that comes up that's not clearly defined by our rules, then um, our director will call the executive officers, uh, the chair, the vice chair the uh, secretary and the treasurer are, um, I'm sorry, um, but, uh, par uh, parliamentarian. But anyway, so they'll call and say, hey, what do you all think? What, what you know, we're, we're faced with this situation and what do y'all think? So they'll actually get guidance. I think that's, that is true collaboration. It's one thing for an SLA to say, hey, what do y'all think? And then they get the feedback, but then don't do anything with it. Um, I think it's important that we we do give feedback and then we work toward meeting in the middle. We're team, we're a partnership, right? So um, our, our subcommittees, um, we have SLA on all of our subcommittees. So it, if whether it's finance or training conference or whatever, it's it's the, the collective committee vendors working with SLA members. So they're actually on our subcommittees and we're just working closely on that. Like even with our rules right now, um, we're going line by line through our rules and SLA's on there. The blind vendors are on there from the elected committee, and it's it's just about it's it's a true collaboration. It's it's having that dialogue, you know. Um, so I think it's important that the um, and we're we're very blessed in that they don't always agree with us. And and like you said, Karen, we're not always going to agree, but it's just having that meaningful dialogue that that means so much and can help a program move forward. We've had we had a few setbacks, uh, but we were able to go to them be honest and say, hey, here's our concerns. They truly listen to us and we've been able to move forward. That's that's terrific, Michael. And exactly what you just said, the communication is key between the state committee and the SLAs and representing all people in your state. Hey, Karen, right. Karen? Yeah, yes. Yeah, uh, Dan here. Um, yes, Dan. Just um, a little uh, quick thought, uh, I'll maybe switch the topic a little bit on you too, but in Wisconsin, you know, I was um, chair, you know, I was in the program 21 years and I was on the committee 19 out of those years and I was uh, chair the majority of those years and we termed out and we had to sit out a year and go back in and uh, a couple of us would rotate back and forth to chair and vice chair. And when I first come on some of the committee meetings, um, 
there was people that actually walked out. And then we uh, got a new administrator in and her and I sat down and she was actually quite heavily involved with CSAVR. And we sat down to dinner one evening and we said, you know, we're not going to agree on everything. You know, if we agree to everything, there's no point in having us. Uh, you know, just go with it. And he says, so all what we come to, we have to agree to disagree and work through it that way. And as a result, there's, there's things that we couldn't resolve. And so we ended up forming a nominee agency. And uh, we as uh, Randall Shepard Venters of Wisconsin, affiliate of RSV, are the nominee agency. Uh, and so we managed the, the program from the due to administrative function for the SLA. And, that, and it's worked out well. Um, and you create that layer because the SLA, when you're, you know, they're a state agency and it's difficult for them to go against another state agency like say Department of Transportation, Department of Corrections or, um, you know, Veterans Affairs or whatever else, you know, Health and Social Service, if they don't want a vending service, it's difficult, even though the law is very clear that they have to comply, but it's difficult for one state agency, to, they can't sue another state agency, but as a nominee agency, there's that extra voice in there and they can advocate and we can, you know, you know, be that in between, you know, uh, negotiator, mediator in between agencies. But um, one of the, in, the, in my mind, you know, I, I always been very uh, equipment uh, motivated and getting the proper equipment for the right location is that in Wisconsin and it's all states and it's in the federal government, their procurement process. You know, they got to put out a bid, put out a bid request, you know, RFP for anything they do with anything they spend in more than, you know, you, at that time it used to be a thousand dollars, five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars. They got to put out RFPs and bid, and then they got to, you get a minimum of three bids and then they got to decide what they want. And, and so by going to a nominee agency, we eliminate uh, uh, that, uh, we can ease that pain of the procurement process is we can go if we, if a particular manager wants a particular USI or a crane or an, uh, used to be an AP and row or um, whatever uh, now to cash you want NIAX or power level or you want USI or, or USAT with the nominee agency we have that freedom to do that we don't have to we're not bound by the procurement process um, that uh, all government agencies are bound to. And the other thing I would like to talk about or suggest is that when I, I started out, you know, uh, our minister encouraged me to get on uh, SRC. Every state has one. By law, they have to have an SRC under the U.S. Department of Education. And uh, S SRCs are similar to an elected committee but uh, not um, uh, elected committees are active participation, which means that the SLA has to come to the elected committee to discuss things on policy and procedure. With the SRC, they are strictly advisory, and they are appointed by the governor. So really all it takes is an application to your governor's office, or if you know someone in the governor's office, the, uh, you can get on the SRC, and your term, their, your term limited to and I served my two terms on uh, SRC. And I would encourage anyone and everyone 
to do your terms on your SRC within your state, um, to build alliances. And you know, many other disability groups, there are dozens and dozens of disability groups out there. They are sometimes envious of the blindness community because we have, uh, we have lobbied, we've been so successful in lobbying over the years with ACB, over the years in getting a lot of things in for his uh, income tax advantages in the Rand, in particular the Randolph Shepherd program. It's uh, quite envious, other disability groups are quite envious of that. And um, so your SRC gives you that ability uh, when they meet and they have to meet um, periodically in the, you know, yeah, yeah. and you have the, the ability that when they are criticizing the blindness community or the Randolph Shepherd program, they, you put a face to it. And it's not as easy for them. And you'd be surprised uh, uh, the relationship you can build with the other disability groups and realize that we're not a bunch of um, money hungry uh, hypocrites out there. We just want to work. Yes. Yeah, we get on your team, right. you can really impress that upon the other disability groups. And you, you're probably not going to eliminate the dis discriminatory attitude or the uh, derogatory attitude. To, you know, but uh, you will uh, mitigate a lot of it because yeah, you build, uh, you're not going to make, it's like any relation, you're not going to make good friends with everybody, but you make the right friends. Yeah, if you get your survey, a couple of terms on the SRC. So I, I guess I would just encourage uh, all of you on the phone and all of your colleagues around the country to, you know, submit your application to the governor and uh, for your um, serve your terms on the SRC. And uh, it it's just a little extra reading, um, three four meetings a year, and you got to travel to maybe that's and uh, and it's not a lot of it, but and it's well worth the effort, uh, even though it's strictly advisory. Um, yeah, you know, but the the so the gold coin to it is that your governor appointed you appointed by the governor. So if your secretary of your particular rehab agency doesn't follow the guidelines uh, or the recommendations of the SRC, they know you can go to the governor because you're appointed by the governor, and so that is your uh, your uh, your high card, your ace card in the in the deck is that. Um, you, you may hear, you know, the governors are going to have to listen to you. So I would encourage just, you know, get involved in your SRC uh, or get or at least have one, at least have one person from your, uh, from your BEP group get involved and serve it and rotate it out through the, throughout the years and keep somebody on the SRCs. That, that is a, that is a very, very good suggestion, Dan. Um, and like Dan said, by law, each state does have to have a, an SRC, which um, it's a great, uh, great way to have that additional voice. Um, thank you, Dan. Um, we always appreciate your your wisdom and your um, input uh, as such a terrific leader and president. Can I say something just real quick? You were mentioning the, the RSA 15, and I, if there's any state, any committee member on here that your state's not providing that for you, um, do not do not settle for that. We You need to know it. That was such a good seminar earlier explaining the importance of it, and 
you know, RSA in, in, in Washington, D.C. has said the committees have a right to know. They need to know that information. So if your state's not providing it, please, in a very professional way, ask for it, insist on it. And just to piggyback on that, the best way to request any kind of documentation is in writing and save the re responses. As, if, as we heard a lot on the conversation yesterday, uh, documentation is key in moving forward um, on any kind of uh, arbitration. Um, but send requests and letters, send multiple requests and save document all of your replies. Um, under law, you can't be denied to see those. This is Mary from Tennessee. Hi, and Mary. I'm not hi. I'm not chairman of the committee, but I am vice chair. I kept trying to unmute. It wouldn't let me do it for some reason. <laughs> but I thought I might want to enter into the conversations with the other chair and co-chairs of the committee. And um, what I'd like to say is that active participation in Tennessee is a continuous work of progress. Uh, some things we come together on fairly well and then other things are more of a challenge. I think that if, if both parties would get together more and actually have dialogue rather than one party or the other um, kind of making a decision as to that's the way things are gonna be and we're kind of not gonna change our minds sort of thing, if we could kind of get out of that mindset and that goes for both committee and SLA um, and just kind of come together and have some good dialogue. I think it's possible that more uh, controversial things that are on the table could possibly be worked out easier. You know, I want to um, make, make not necessarily make a suggestion, but an offer, you know, um, Miss Tennessee, I'm sorry, I, you said Mary, right? Do you guys yeah. have annual, you have annual meetings, of course, right? Once a year, you have um, a meeting with the SLA, maybe some we training. Have we have quarterly meetings with our SLA. But you don't have an annual meeting? You mean like a statewide manager's meeting? We do when we can. Okay, you know, here's here's the thing. There's there's people, those of us in RSVA that are more than willing to travel. And as you can tell, I love to talk. Um, sometimes having outside people come in and talk and representatives, you know, um, from, from different places, you know, sometimes things start to click when they hear it from somebody from outside of your state. And I know for myself, especially, you know, if you're on the East Coast, um, you know, west of the Mississippi, we have all kinds of representatives with RSA, R, excuse me, RSVA. They were all willing to travel and give presentations on active participation. And, you know, you never know when having a speaker may just flick a switch with your SLA or with the other members on your committee saying, hey, we could be communicating a whole lot more. Um, I, for one, and I know, I know Scott, a lot of us, all, almost all of us on the RSVA board are willing to travel and, and speak to the topic of active participation or anything else you folks want to hear about. Again, I can probably talk about any topic. Um, okay. You know, my big, big suggestions I have to people that are having difficulties 
with the active uh, active participation with their SRA, SLA is documentation. Send them letters. Hey, can we have an open conversation on the topic of, say, the federal, um, you know, uh, funding that's coming for the COVID relief? Uh, can we have an open conversation about fair minimum return? Can we have an open conversation about, you know, uh, different perspective locations, but document, send those emails, send them, send them, send them, and document your re your responses. Area code 402. This is, this is Miss Nebraska. Hi, um, Miss Nebraska. Hello. <laughs> yeah, I ended up having to hang up and come back through. It just wouldn't give me permission to unmute and all that stuff. So I decided to start from scratch, and apparently it worked. That's um, not if you remember what we were originally going to talk about. Um. I would, I would like. So, what we're doing now is, I would like you to tell us what does active participation look like in your state? Do you have a good open relationship with your SLA? Do you discuss topics? We do. You we do. We do. We. I, I talk to um, my SLA <laughs> all the time. They'll have questions and get my opinions. And if I think it needs to be, you know, talked amongst my committee members, I will do so. Uh, this morning we had our first draft or first conversation about the uh, distribution of funds. And I, I told them, I said, apparently I'm more stressed about doing this right and fairly because I didn't sleep very well last night knowing that this meeting was gonna happen this morning. Um, you know, and just, there's just not enough guidelines yet to really get anything firmed up as quickly as I would like. Um, but we do. Uh, they've had questions when um, they were wanting to place someone new in a facility, and so we talked about it. Uh, there wasn't multiple bids on one, but it was like putting in a brand new trainee, more or less. And we're working on trying to get a handbook put together for proper training for new licensees. So yeah, we communicate all the time. And it's there was a while that I was not the chairperson. I had stepped down and the vice chair stepped in and they continued to have good conversation with them at the same time. That's that's good. That's good. Um I I like to hear um so many states saying that they're already starting conversations and attempting to put something in place or at least a plan until, or multiple plans, until more mm -hmm. uh, guidelines come down from RSA. If there's, if there's a couple different plans in place and then when more guidance does come down, it, it'll be easier to implement whatever the plan may be. Um, we all know, you know, our blind vendors around the country have all just taken such a, a drastic hit in their finances. Um, you know, the one thing I, I'm i going to say is that I don't think any of this is going to happen tomorrow, no matter how fast of a plan we put in place or how quickly RSA does come down with some more guidance. Um, you know, patience is is going to be there. We We know there's going to be some relief. Uh, but what that's going to mm -hmm. look like, um, you know, may just take a little bit of patience and time. Um, so it's actually been quite, 
quite interesting this past year where there was so much that was impacted, but half of our licensees had growth, but that's because our SLA did get us some new facilities, uh, purchased card readers to help increase sales, and it it's hard to base on just strictly looking at income from one year to the previous year. Um, over half of us had better year in 2020 than we did in 2019. We also had two licensees that started brand new. One took over from where someone retired and one was just getting started. I don't even think they got their machines filled and like two, three days later, days later government was closed down. Wow. Um, that's impressive. So we kind of had extremes. We've had extremes, but those items that our SLA already had in the works, you know, well, part of it was dealing with prisons and things like that. So timing of getting machines placed and all that, but then getting the card readers that I think, you know, as we all have heard and know ourselves that touchless is the way that people want to go and the millennials just don't have cash. Um, I'm the only sole person in our state that I, I will whine and moan every time they talk about card readers because I cannot have them in my facility. I'm at the airbase at Stratcom. I can't even take in my phone. Everything is old school. Good thing I know Braille. Um, <laughs> we can we can do card readers, but it can't be Wi-Fi. It has to be hardwired, and then it's fiber optic, and it's extremely expensive. Wow. So, um, but that has definitely helped all the other licensees in our state, though, getting those card readers. I, I have to tell you, Miss Nebraska, I am a Braille reader myself, and there's been so many times where it has just saved my behind on notes for myself. Oh, sure. and absolutely. And, you know, I, look, I, I'm a Braille advocate, Now I, I will preach and preach and preach the benefits <laughs> of it even oh, if you're not definitely totally blind. you know i i am totally blind but for those that aren't there's just so many benefits to it um i'm glad to hear that see i knew i liked you from the beginning no no <laughs> sandy, sandy oh i just wanted to jump hi, in and Dan, say hi you? real good I haven't talked to you in a while it's been a year i guess or better yeah but uh i just wanted to kind of touch base a little too in that Nebraska has an excellent program. Um, and the, one of their formal commissioners for the blind, Pearl Van Zant, uh, was an oh, excellent yeah. advocate for the blind. And Pearl was had a lot of influence within C CSAVR. And she took a lot of the animosity away um, uh, or closed the division between CSAVR and NCSAB. Uh, she was a strong advocate for the blind, but she uh, was always a ranking official within CSAVR. So it, it melded uh, a lot of um, benefits for uh, Randall Shepard because she was a strong advocate for Randall Shepard. So Nebraska has always been high on my list. And in, uh, in was it been four or five years now? You uh, were successful in getting your statute revised to allow the mini Randolph yes. Shepard Act for county buildings as well as yes. federal buildings. So that's that's quite a quite a. And I think that was Pearl's uh, thank you for uh, 
before she retired. And that was a quite a quite a coup, quite a coup to get that done to get that accomplished. Yes, I'll tell and you, she was always very supportive. It it sounds like you've had a, a you have a fabulous program in Nebraska. I mean, that's that's a lot to say for a state that has grown facilities uh, during the crisis. Um, I can I can tell you, in New York. Um, you know, naturally we, we do, we have a lot, a lot of managers that are um, really, really hurting, but our SLA has really gone um, over and beyond trying to uh, get some things off unassigned vending and into managers that, that to give them extra to, to help them work right now. Um, mm -hmm. There's, there's been several uh, managers around the state that have picked up things that, you know, under pre-COVID may, may not have even really thought about, but I know our SLA is really scrambling to look at those um, places that are on um, the unassigned and, and get a manager back to work. Mm -hmm. um, so how is that in Alabama, Michael? Have you seen much coming off unassigned and into um, a manager's uh, facility? Um, honestly, we don't have, a, that's a very good question because the, where there is unassigned, we want blind vendors there. Uh, so we, we have about nine vendors out of 83. Y'all can't hear me. Okay. Right. It muted me. Welcome. Yeah, we can hear you. We can hear you. Okay. Woo, woo. Okay. So anyway, so uh, we have nine vendors that receive unassigned vending. Uh, if they're on a, a particular base or um, a, a federal facility or whatever, they will receive income from that. But even the, in this, those situations, we would rather our blind vendors be doing it than Coke. So to be honest with you, we don't hardly, we don't have any unassigned that goes into our set aside fund. And, and ours is 10%. I know Texas mentioned five earlier, but I'll just throw that out there real quick that we're at 10% Karen. I, I hear you. Um, every state, of course, is different depending on, you sure. know, each individual state's um, situation and structure. Um, I, I'm not going to, you know, really go into everything in New York because it would be too long. But, you know, they gave us so many different ways of relief during COVID that, you know, it, it's it saved some of our sanity and some. Yes. People in New York have continued to work throughout the crisis, but I will tell you, it's very few. And if you look at the percentage, um, so, but we use vacation checks, Karen. So our vacation checks are 290. Um, and so the elected committee would vote to either do a double vacation check. And so we, we, we spread those out. It was nowhere near what Texas was able to help or, or several other states. But um, we, and it probably wasn't enough, but we were able to use it in the form of vacation checks to be able to help our vendors. That's, that's good. Um, we here in New York, we, we did receive fair minimum returns. Um, what, what do they say about in Texas? If you're going to go, you go big in Texas. Um, we're, yes. <laughs> we're, uh, we were just, um, you know, slightly uh, 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 below what Texas did. Um, but our state was, we had very, very healthy accounts. And it, it really just helped the managers get through. Um, how about, um, Miss Nebraska, do you guys had, did you guys have fair minimum return? Well, you said you guys actually grew. So we, we didn't, um, 
we did sick pay one time for all our licensees. We need to look at some additional things now that I'm observing more from other states. Well, some other ideas, but our they did help us get um, some restart funding. So we have to kind of watch that when we're reallocating some of the funds to to not double dip. Right, um, and that's that's something that people do need to really remember when we're we're talking about this money. It's for relief for the managers that have really, you know been hurt. And, and this is why I'm just saying it and I'm going to say it again. Make sure we all read the guidance from uh, RSA. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I can go out over all email lists and I can put out there what I think, but what I think may not mirror what RSA is saying. So I want folks just to be very, very careful on, on the materials they, they receive and they may spread around. Make sure it's directly from RSA and that type of guidance. Um, right. Our, our SLA is concerned that we only want to give a plan once and not have it rejected and have to do it all over again. So we want to make sure we do it right the first time. And, and that's a very, you know, forward thinking kind of situation. That's, that's terrific. I am just so impressed to hear that you know you, you folks have grown um th through, through the crisis that's amazing um i was surprised at those numbers too when we had our meeting this morning i i knew i probably wouldn't get any relief because technically i did make more in 20 than i did in 19 but there was a new facility in 19 and halfway through the year so i wasn't really equal funding to compare um, right. And, and the big thing to remember about this funding, it is for COVID relief. So if you've been hurt, sure. if you've lost money, if you've made money, and, and this is a mm -hmm. rhetorical question, you know, let's all really look into our soul and our conscience. You know, should someone who wasn't hurt by COVID receive any of that? You know, or should it be, you know, um, looked at, analyzed? really see who got hurt and put the focus there. And that's not, I just want everybody to think about that in their own conscience. And, you know, when you go back to, to your SLAs and your state committees and you folks are working on the active participation and putting these plans together, you got to really think about the folks that had a lifestyle in accordance to what they were making. If they had a severe dip in their income what has that done to them and their families you know mm -hmm. so i hope um i hope and i pray that you know state committee reps all really think with their conscience and not out of greed exactly um i've always stated when i've talked to other committee members or even with some of my sla that I still had to work because fortunately, we don't want Stratcom to not operate. Um, granted, uh, quite a few less for me, but I said I'm not poor, broken, destitute. I still have a house. We still have power. We still had food. Um, we just didn't have as much entertainment funds. But other licensees I know struggled with paying utility bills and things along that line. And that's what this purpose is, is for those. 
Mm -hmm. And there's, there's ways to go about really finding out what people's losses were. Um, I don't know that this would exactly be the proper forum for it. Um, but I would certainly like at some point to follow up on a, on, on another call, um, to, to really continue this. And even if we threw ideas back and forth or just talk to one another, but again, I, I don't know that this is the exact forum to have that type of conversation. Hello, Scott. I see you pop back in. <laughs> just dropping in to see how things are going. Really good. Uh, Miss Nebraska, Mr. Alabama and I are having a great conversation. It's area code 503. This is Randy again from Oregon. I've been listening to your conversation. I just wanted to weigh in on something a little bit earlier. Um, so I know the pandemic has been obviously terrible on most all of Randall Shepard vendors across the land. And, you know, hopefully light at the end of the tunnel is uh, coming our way and we'll be able to get back to some kind of form of life as we see it. But as people um, who I've talked to across the states have tried to understand what monies are available, you know, when this first hit, people are saying, gosh, you know, I don't have any money. Is there any resources through fair minimum return or vacation or benefit. What I've noticed is um, is that people are getting more in touch and in tune with their program budgets and understanding that in some instances that unassigned vending. I heard yesterday one of the ladies who spoke, one of the DEP directors, I forget where she was from, but they had identified that there are 15 different states across the land that really, in my mind, monopolize unassigned vending, bringing it in as a funding mechanism to the programs rather than, you know, the priority of vending is a priority for persons who are blind to put us to work and to maximize our potential and all those things are not necessarily intended um, to help fund the program. But what I've noticed is people are starting to look at the RSA 15s. You know, this is the first time in years that I've heard people have RSA 15 reviews and reports um, on meetings and training. So blind vendors like you and I and you know the rest on the line it's really important to understand what our RSA 15 is saying you know what's the unassigned vending out there what are the opportunities that we as a committee can work with the agency to develop new jobs um, and so you know I just wanted to weigh in my personal opinion is I don't think there should be unassigned vending out there. The priority for blind persons is the priority for vending and opportunities. And I think there's states out there that take advantage of that and really strip that priority away. Uh, maybe that's something going forward that, you know, blind vendors and the committee will be able to encourage um, that to change, but I just wanted to, uh, wanted to weigh in there and say that, and thank you for uh, hosting the, the talk. I, I definitely appreciate the comments um, and the thoughts, and I definitely can see your perspective, um, but I, I think that in some places unassigned, it's, it's probably necessary. If you have more locations than you have managers, and you have managers already 
Um, working one facility, maybe two, some ha have even done three or, or more that I know of. Um, I don't, I don't want to say you're wrong and I don't want to say I'm right, but I'm saying, I think that that's, I think probably something each individual state, um, has to look at, but their state committee of blind vendors definitely needs to be active in seeing is this really necessary that it's on unassigned or isn't it is it a good good enough location for a manager um some on unassigned vending they're such small locations but yet they're still paying um you know into the funds for the blind vendor so it does still serve a purpose um and maybe well, I mean, not bottom line yeah, bottom line, if it's benefiting the, you know, like if there is third party vending and the agency worked with the committee to, you know, coordinate and decide that and if the benefit of that money is going to um, the vendors, you know, I can understand that. I think my point is I just get really discouraged when agencies take that unassigned vending to promote, you know, the administrative function of the program instead of trying to, like you said, gosh, maybe there aren't enough vendors. Well, why not? You know, let's, let's, let's promote that and that. But um, if there are programs that are using that unassigned vending for benefits and retirement and medical for blind vendors, then yeah, that's great, you know, but there's some blind vendors and yeah, that's great, you know, but there's some that I think aren't doing that. So. Um, and I, I would agree with you then that I would think that's an absolute shame. Um, I, I'm glad you clarified your, your perspective. Um, you know, here in New York, we do have some unassigned vending and it all does go into, um, you know, the funds for the managers. Um, there is no, there's no question about that whatsoever. And some of that money that went into those funds is what's made our accounts as healthy as they are. Because what, what managers pay in levy in comparison to what benefits people in New York get, it, it doesn't equate. So that money from the unassigned funds definitely sup supplements the benefits that, that those of us in New York do receive. Um, and then I, I do know that there's some states that have absolutely no unassigned. Um, I know I saw Miles kept popping in and popping out. If I don't know, Miles, are you on the line? Maybe not. Um, I, I believe that Hawaii is one of the states that doesn't have much run assigned. Um, they um, they didn't. I don't really want to speak for Hawaii without him. I, I don't want to step on toes, but there are some states that just didn't have healthy balances that couldn't do fair minimum returns for people. Um, so I, I think in some cases there's an advantage to the unassigned, especially if they're really small locations where a manager, you know, if you can't make a living there, or if they're so small, you know, it costs more in gas to go fill the machines or do whatever you got to do. I don't, you know, unassigned is, it can have benefits. Four eight zero. Can you hear me at this point? I can hear you. Hello. So it just uh, once you once you cleared it and it said host unmuted, it, I broke right in. So um, my name's Mike from from Arizona, and I'm I'm 
third, I'm just below the, the uh, vice chair on the committee. And y'all have been talking about this unassigned. A few, we used to have a lot of unassigned and it all went to the program. When at some point, Department of Economic Security, the state agency up the line said, no, the state can't make money this way. So we had to take, we did, between the agency and the, the committee, we decided we were going to take all the unassigned and assign it to operators because, as I said, the, the agency would not allow the state to hold those. Our concern was the program funds might drop, but just putting that money into the operator's hands and the set aside that it created, it wasn't as much, but the, the program survived without, without detrimental issues. And you're exactly right with, with smaller locations being spread out that you, some of it does need to be unassigned. And we had, we had subcontracts, but it was all assigned on temporary basis to our operators. Um, in the, and in the, the last couple of years, we created a couple of new facilities out of that. And then somebody walked out of one and they had changed the regulations. So that unassigned went back to the program as we were going into the COVID because we knew everybody's set aside was going to go down. We pay a high set aside rate and we've always had an excess. And at the end of the year, we received that excess and we were also just in the middle of changing the state laws, the the uh, AACs to be able to adjust our set aside, but it got caught up in the legislative with the COVID. But it, so we've worked out little bit of both ways and there's there's pl pluses and minuses to to both ends of that i believe thank absolutely. you absolutely so do you you have a very active state committee of blind vendors with your sla you have a lot of active participation yes we 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 meet um we probably have 10 to 11 meetings a year we have two mandatory all managers meetings we go through the RSA 15 in January or February. We've, we've used to do that in January, but it realized that um, with the holidays and so forth, it didn't give anybody and everybody enough time to get the information and so forth. So we've shifted those to February. As a matter of fact, our all managers is coming up this coming Monday. Um, we There are things, just like, Everybody, I shouldn't say everybody, but seems like the majority, most get along. There are some issues here and there. We are, our set aside is 20%. I think we're almost the highest in the country. We might be tied one, one state may be above. So we've, we've squabbled about that and tried to get it lowered. And we finally got it approved through fed and now it got stuck in the state. Um, the the unassigned we've gotten along we still have the federal unassigned that goes into our retirement that that dropped dramatically i believe when some of the vendors started running their own post offices and so forth to get that and 
I also believe we lost quite a bit of one of the army bases that just dropped off somehow, some way, and we were never hundred percent sure of that. But for the most part, we get along. We disagree with some of the the numbers the agency has per per operators, but and we're also it's mentioned and we're we're dealing with it. We don't have any knockdown drag outs. We have some heated conversations, but I don't imagine anyone doesn't. I think sometimes heated conversations can be good because it's the passion that drives us all. These are our careers and the careers that the, the potential people that come after us and the children and making sure the program survives and that the best interest of everybody is taken into consideration. Um, so sometimes heated arguments, not arguments, heated discussions can certainly be good, providing everybody respects one another and, and also knows the boundaries. And, you know, listen, I have been at some state committee meetings where behind closed doors, the 12 members on the committee can use some very colorful adjectives in a heated discussion. But then the next day when we sit down with the SLA, we're, we're all grownups and dignified because we all got it all out the night before on the topics that we may not necessarily all agree on. But we go in unified um, when we do meet with the SLA. And um, sometimes those, those heated conversations can, can be purposeful. Yes, but being unified is important too. That's a very good point. Absolutely. And that's why on state committees, you know, I, I would think that most do follow like Robert's rules, but as you're, as you're having your open discussions or your heated discussions or your mild discussions and respect the vote, if you have, you know, and just a random example, if you have 10 people on the committee voting one way and two voting against, those two need to respect the will of the majority. Um, and I, I know we're definitely finding that here. Um, you know, following Robert's rules and doing by the vote and, and majority votes really puts a lot of clarity to things. So then when we do go in before the SLA, we know exactly where we stand as a committee as then we, as me as chair, has to speak for the committee. Um, so I know where everybody's heads and thoughts are. And, and sometimes, even as chairs, you can present and you can say, listen, we took a vote on this issue and the vote was 10 to 2. And here's the reasoning uh, why the 10 people voted this way and why the two people voted that way. And at least it's out there, but it's not, again, it's a unified front when we go in because people do respect the vote. Um, we're getting, we're coming down um, to within about 10 or 15 minutes. So I'm wondering if there's anybody we have not heard from that would like their voice to be heard on today's call. Come on now, guys, you really don't want to just hear me and uh, Michael and I rattle off for the next 15 minutes. Oh, yeah, they do. No, nah, I don't think so. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they do. Mm -hmm. Totally. <laughs> That's funny. I do have a question for you, though, Karen, if no one raises their hand, but I would like to hear from if there's anyone out there. Y'all, please raise your hand by hitting star nine. Did it work? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't see anyone there. Oh. Um, Karen, while we're waiting, would you mind describing, uh, for some people that aren't, uh, you, you talked a little bit about fair minimum return and 
do you guys do that in New York? And if so, how do y'all determine that? Did y'all have a lot of say so in that? And, you know, is it working well for you guys? So we know, yes and no. We, we talked about fair minimum return when the COVID crisis hit. And, um, you know, honestly, we didn't have to, we, we didn't have to push all that hard. Our director is just such an amazing human being that she kind of stopped in her steps and said, oh my God, these managers are going to be hurting. You know, what can we, as a committee, and I honestly, I was not chair at, at the time when COVID hit. Um, we have a, a lovely man in Albany, Virgilio, who was a chairperson at the time. And, and she reached out and had some conversations with him. He brought it to the rest of us that were, I was on a committee at that time um, and said, hey, and so that's kind of how it, it happened here. As, as a rule before COVID, no, New York did not have fair minimum rate, but our, our set aside is, is structured a little bit different. Um, we have a threshold that you have to hit before you have to start paying uh, any kind of set aside or here we call it a levy. Um, so it's a little different structure. When COVID hit, those numbers were drastically readjusted. Um, so throughout this year, I, I can say that there's been very little coming in from managers back into the system. However, there was um, you know, $14,000 in fair minimum return paid out to the manager. Um, it was a very generous, um, very generous and very necessary um, assistance that we had, but we were able to get that because our accounts were so healthy. Uh, because of the money coming in through some of the unassigned and third-party vendors. Um, again, because what, what New York managers pay into the levy is not enough to cover the benefits. So that, that's how we were able to do that. What's going to happen moving forward in New York is, is a little unknown. You know, my crystal ball still has a crack. And none of us can predict how long this crisis is going to go on. You know, when um, there's a bulk immunity, when there's vaccinations are going to be given on a regular basis. So many of us, we just don't have any answers yet. I do know this, that the director of our program is, is very open to ideas and suggestions in hearing the needs of the managers um, across the state. And, and that's what we need, folks. We need directors of the program that care about the managers, care about the program, aren't just looking at it as, hey, I got a state job. No, we want, and I know we don't always have a lot of say-so in it, but um, our director, we couldn't have asked for a better one here. Honest to God, purest of intentions are there that she wants what's best for the managers and for the survivor of the program. So a, a good, healthy combination of both. Um, I, I know I just went off on my tangent about New York. I said, see guys, you let me talk. I'm just going to keep talking. Um, so I don't know, Michael, to answer your question. I have no idea what fair minimum return is going to look like down the line in the future. I don't know where our levy thresholds are going to be at. Uh, all stuff that we we all have to work on and let's just all pray that the crisis the situation doesn't go on for for another year or more I mean we have so many managers hurting um 
I, we have had some managers retire purely because of COVID. They just couldn't, they could survive, but with their facilities being so slow and some of them were up in age and then to put themselves at risk going into their buildings, you know, they had to analyze and decide for themselves that is this really worth the risk at a diminished capacity, putting my health, their health. I, I worked through the whole thing, but for, for those folks, you know, is it worth putting your health on the line? So um, a whole new world and perspective and pictures are going to look different on the other side of this. You know, I, I know I, I'm repeating what we've all been saying over and over, but none of us, I don't know that any of us don't have a crack in our crystal ball right now. And we don't know what state offices, federal, well, it, well, federal, we do know, we do know they're going to cut back on staffing. Um, how, how is it going to look in a year from now? None of us know. Active participation, guys. State Committee of Blind Vendors need to keep that open communication with their SLAs. If that is not happening, you really need to reach out, ask for the uh, rights that we are given for the active participation. Document their replies. And I don't, I don't want to pick on states. I don't want to call anybody out on this call, but you know, that if I was to give any advice, that would be my advice. Keep yourselves involved. Keep the lines of communication open. Document any denial of active participation if that's happening. Michael, how about uh, a little more from you we, on active participation? We do, we do have a hand up. Okay, Tyson, you have got to learn to interrupt me. I just did. Eric <laughs> <laughs> okay. code All 515. Right. All right, well, Michael, while they're trying to unmute, um, I'm going to give you the floor for about two minutes. Uh, any thoughts? Yes, ma'am. I, I would just, yeah, on active participation, and I, I appreciate you like pushing that, but uh, an important part of active participation is knowing your rules, your state rules, your federal regs, and being able to to have your committee members know those so that if the SLA does bring something to you that is not, <clears throat> it does not go along with with the Randolph Shepard Act that you can say, hey, it, it, it doesn't conform to that. We need to look at that. So the one of the best ways is to, to be knowledgeable, to know know your, your state rules, to know your federal rules, but but to speak up, to 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 be willing to unfortunately we have too many committees that four or five people on the committee are doing a majority of the work, 90, 95% of the work. The rest of them are just there. And we really need to encourage and inspire our vendors to get more involved. I know, I know we can all get busy and get tied up with doing things, but we need to be active and, and fight to make our program better for the next generation. So that active participation, um, we just, we've got to inspire others too, to get involved and, and then to work with our SLAs to make the program forward. I think 515. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. We can hear you now. Yes. yes. Hello. Oh, finally. <laughs> Sorry about that. That was operator error. Um, anyway, uh, this is Kevin Slayton from I've Hello, a, Iowa. Uh, I've been a, um, I'm not currently a chair or vice chair. I have been in the past and I am currently on the, um, so I figured I'd put in my two cents here. Um, so, uh, as far as active participation, I believe Iowa, we have a, um, you know, we have a very good relationship uh, with our SLA. Um, we currently are having monthly meetings. Um, if something comes up, we have, you know, we can always have a special meeting. 
Um, we have an, an at least an annual meeting with every wine manager in the state. Um, and uh, we're doing a lot more, uh, we're, we're trying to do a lot more training as currently. Um, as you could probably tell, our uh, the presentation earlier, our um, BEP administrator, Kathy Rode, is uh, very enthusiastic, and uh, and I applaud her for that. And um, uh, you were talking about unassigned income. I guess I'll let you know what we do here. Um, we don't have a lot of chains that are unassigned uh, income areas. Uh, we are getting a few more locations here coming up just because we don't have an operator uh, that can take them currently. Um, but what we're doing is we're going to draw up contracts so that they are a, uh, say, a nine-month or a one-year contract with month-to-month -month after that, which means that when an operator is available to take it and they want it, it's available for them. Um, that's how we're handling uh, that issue uh, currently. Um, and I guess uh, just to top off, we have uh, currently we have we're a small state. We got 16 operators right at the moment. Uh, so I think I covered everything. <laughs> if I missed something, go ahead and ask a question. Uh, were do you guys um, were you able to receive any kind of fair minimum return during the the crisis? Uh, no, and here's why. Um, <clears throat> I talk about a uh, landslide um, in April. Uh, in April was when we did our set aside. <laughs> oh, so. So we started set aside in actually we were supposed to start it in March and uh, they was like, uh, yeah, that's probably not a good idea right now. Um, so uh, we started it in April and uh, we, we are at 7% currently. So we were not able to do anything with that. I see. Yeah. And that's, it's, I'm sure it's been tough on you folks. And yeah, I, Iowa may be a small state, but it's someplace I'd like to visit someday. So um all those cornfields right <laughs> yeah <laughs> cornfields and uh, i mean i-35 is just is a wind uh wind farm uh basically so uh yeah well thank you thank you so much for joining us um and thank you for finally being able to to unmute folks we have about five minutes left um does, does anybody else have anything they want to share before i i close out the session any hands up, fellas? Huh. No, so, you know, if, if my songs aren't in the queue, you know, for the next five minutes, like I could just start doing a little rush and singing Working Man, but I don't know that that would be very entertaining to anybody other than me. I assume we don't have anything queued up yet, right? Not till tomorrow. Okay. <laughs>